The Parting of the Sea, How Volcanoes, Earthquakes, and Plagues Shaped the Story of Exodus. Written by Barbara J. Sivertson. Narrated by Bernadette Dunn. Based on the book published by Princeton University Press. Introduction. The Exodus, Oral Tradition, and Natural History. The story of the Exodus is one of the best-known narratives of Western civilization. As recounted in the Bible, the Israelites are slaves in ancient Egypt. Moses, an Israelite raised in the Egyptian court as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, kills an Egyptian who is mistreating an Israelite slave and is forced to flee the country. He arrives in the land of Midian, meets the daughters of the Midianite priest, Jethro, marries one of them, and produces two sons. One day, while tending sheep for his father-in-law on the west side, or the back side, or the far side, depending on how the Hebrew is translated, of the wilderness or the desert, Moses sees a burning bush. The odd thing is that the flames do not consume the bush, and out of it an angel of God speaks. This is the prelude to a series of conversations between Moses and God. God, or Yahweh, wants Moses to return to Egypt and bring Yahweh's people back to the land promised to their forefather Abraham, the land of Canaan. Moses is more than a little reluctant to take up the task, but eventually he returns to Egypt. Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go on a three days journey during which they are to make sacrifices to their God. The two brothers perform a series of supernatural tricks before Pharaoh to try to convince him to do what they ask. When these tricks prove ineffective, God inflicts a series of plagues on the Egyptians. The water of the Nile is turned to blood. There are plagues of frogs, gnats, and flies. Cattle become diseased. People develop boils. There are plagues of hail, locusts, and darkness. Finally, because Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go, God declares that he will kill the firstborn of Egypt. God tells Moses how to arrange for the Israelites to avoid this fate by killing a young goat or sheep, roasting it, and smearing its blood on the doorways of all the Israelite households. After the firstborn of Egypt die, Pharaoh tells Moses and his people to leave during the night. They depart immediately guided by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Pharaoh changes his mind, however, and the Israelites are pursued to the edge of the sea. God saves them by having the waters part, allowing the Israelites to pass through on dry land. After the Israelites have passed through, the waters return, drowning the pursuing Egyptians. What to make of all this? Is the story of the Exodus real? Did the ancestors of the Israelites really leave Egypt following plague and disaster, cross a body of water that miraculously separated before them, but drowned their pursuers, and go to a distant mountain to see God in a cloud of fire and smoke? Did they then wander in the wilderness for forty years and finally cross the Jordan River and conquer Jericho when its walls fell to the sound of their trumpets? Today only the most conservative biblical scholars champion a literal reading of the Exodus narrative. The majority of scholars and general readers alike discount such wondrous happenings as the figments of primitive imaginations. Their purpose is theological. Their historical value is limited at best. 
In fact, in the last 25 years, a group of biblical scholars known as revisionists or minimalists has gone so far as to suggest that the history of the Hebrew Bible was an invention of theologically-minded writers only a few centuries before the Common Era. Although their opinions are not shared by the majority of biblical scholars and archaeologists, no one has been able to point to any direct, textual, or archaeological evidence for the historical veracity of the stories in Exodus and Numbers. No archaeological traces can be attributed to the early Israelites in Canaan before the early Iron Age, after 1200 BCE, and there is no evidence of a distinct population of early Israelites in Egypt. The area west of the Jordan River reveals an archaeological picture quite at odds with the biblical accounts of the Israelite journey to the Promised Land, and there is little or no evidence of the conquest as it is described in the book of Joshua in the archaeological record of the late Bronze Age, 1550-1200 BCE, Canaan. In short, in ways large and small, the biblical story of the Exodus, the sojourn in the wilderness, and the conquest of Canaan does not agree with the archaeological picture that has emerged in the past 45 years. The Exodus, if it has any historical reality, must have occurred no later than the 13th century BCE, for toward the end of that century, the famous stele of the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah mentions an entity, Israel, already in existence in Canaan. Yet writing, by most estimates, didn't really get started in ancient Israel until the 10th century BCE or even later. This means that any accounts of the Exodus would have been carried down orally for hundreds of years. Biblical scholars who study the ancient texts are experts on the languages of the scriptures and on textual and literary criticism. They are, above all, textually minded. To them, the most important part of the texts are their literary elements, as conveyed by the words themselves, their meanings, their grammar, their syntax. But ancient Israelite society was overwhelmingly oral, and in oral societies, Words are important only insofar as they convey the story, the events taking place, not the literary text. Words usually change with each rendition, each oral performance, of a traditional story in a non-literate society. I believe that at their basic level, the stories, the narrations of the events of the Exodus, the sojourn in the wilderness, and the conquest must be seriously considered as oral traditions that may contain remnants of oral history. To do this, to consider the biblical stories as residually oral texts, we must ask several crucial questions. What exactly is oral history? What is it capable of transmitting, of remembering? Where and how does it fail? What is oral history? First, oral history is not history as we in the modern world have come to understand it. It is more intimate, concerning itself with what happened to an individual or a family or a small group of people. It scarcely ever deals with the great events that define what we call history. It starts with eyewitness testimony, like 17-year-old Ensign William Leake's account of the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Reading his story, we learn of his dismal night spent in the open before the battle, the rain pelting down, sharing a blanket and some straw with a fellow officer, 
and trying to avoid two galloping horses. In the battle itself, we hear of his carrying of the regimental flag, are told of the peculiar smell of gunpowder mixed with rye, his tears at the sight of the first two dead, and his horror as hundreds more fell. One of the most important parts of the battle for Ensign Leek was when he failed to draw his sword because the loop of his sword knot had become entangled with the scabbard. Only at the end of the day, when Ensign Leek's regiment, the 52nd Foot, marched in pursuit of Napoleon's retreating Imperial Guard, do we come into contact with the conventional history of the battle. If this were the only surviving account of the Battle of Waterloo, we would know very little of what really went on there. Eyewitness testimonies are personal experiences, much like Ensign Leake's. However, there are often striking differences and inconsistencies in eyewitness accounts of the same event. Jurors listening to various eyewitnesses to a traffic accident, for example, may sometimes wonder how people seeing the same incident can report it so differently. This is particularly true if there has been a long time gap between the accident and the testimony in court. The jurors would most probably be convinced by the most confident witness, and they would, quite possibly, be mistaken. As many studies of eyewitness testimony have shown, confidence does not necessarily relate to accuracy. Confidence comes from repeated retellings of a story which may or may not be correct in the first place. You can be mistaken and confident as often as you can be correct and confident. As time goes on, memory structures events, making them seem more logical and slanting them to put the narrator in a favorable light. People will often add explanations and commentaries to straightforward accounts to explain various things to their listeners. Because studies have shown that the same basic processes are at work in the memories of college students, non-literate Africans, and countless other groups of people around the world, we know that these same processes must have been at work in the minds of peoples in the past, in both individuals and groups, as they told their stories, formed their oral traditions, and carried these traditions down through time. What are the most important processes? First, there is forgetting. Most forgetting is done shortly after an event, but the initial high rate of forgetting levels off and the memory of an event stabilizes after a certain time. In forgetting, memories become more general. Details are lost. But more often, the less important details. Stories get reduced to anecdotes. Numbers and names fare poorly. But forgetting is selective. Details that define and validate an individual or group tend to get handed down. Earlier and less frequent events are remembered, but often telescoped toward the present. Recent events are remembered. Those in the middle are forgotten. This is the floating gap found by Belgian researcher Jan van Sina. Then there is embellishment, enhancement, or exaggeration. Implicational errors are introduced. Explanatory glosses, narrative links to the story, make sense to listeners. Some items are exaggerated at the expense of others to give the story a certain effect. Finally, there is assimilation or structuring. This is where real changes enter stories, the introduction of anachronisms, the fusion of similar incidents or people into one incident or person, 
or the transposition of details from one incident or person to another. On fusion, it sometimes seems as though memory tries to burden itself as little as possible. Instead of remembering separate items, it may be more economical to fuse them into a single general category. In transposition, retrieval errors come into play. Memory, especially as people age, is more and more reconstructed in one's mind, and retrieval errors, wrong event recalled or wrong time slice, that is, an error in the sequence of events, are the most common type of recall error. Structuring will often occur to meet the contemporary needs of the community carrying down the story, which may change from generation to generation. If you can identify this type of structuring, you will learn something about how the group thinks about itself and what it wants to convey. Oral Traditions Through Time As messages evolve into oral tradition, they take different forms. Poetry is one of the most common. Epic poetry, like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, is usually delivered orally for long stretches of time before it is ever written down. Alfred Lord and Milman Parry studied South Slavic narrative poetry and found, rather than simple memorization, that oral poets composed poems anew at each performance using stock scenes and descriptions and repeated phrases. Some forms of oral tradition, such as tales and proverbs, are supposed to contain a good deal of improvisation at every telling. Others, often narratives, are supposed to be transmitted faithfully, as truthful accounts, even though the meaning of truth can vary from group to group. This last category seems to fare best through time. In fact, the plot and the general sequence of episodes become set rather rapidly, and change after this is rather slight. For example... Looking at how an actual 19th century historical event was preserved in Hopi Indian oral tradition, one sees that a good deal of structuring or assimilation took place in the first two generations. Particularly noticeable were changes in the relative importance of certain individuals, as their actual influence within the tribe changed over time. One man who had played only a minor role in the original telling of the event grew more and more important in the story as it was retold and as the man developed into a tribal leader. But another and much older Hopi oral tradition, that of the coming of the Spaniards to Hopi territory in the early 17th century, had a good many elements that agreed with historical written records. From this, one sees that most of the forgetting and structuring takes place in the first two generations after an event. Beyond that, the process of change is very slow. This pattern mimics that of individual forgetting and retention over the short and long term, a not unexpected finding since traditions are memories of memories. Oral Tradition and Israelite History The longer narratives that eventually made their way into the first six books of the Hebrew Scriptures were based on the foundational oral traditions of Israel stories that for centuries defined them as a people separate and apart from their neighbors. Although there would be regional differences and variations in individual retellings, the essential contours of these foundational narratives would be reasonably stable through time. Biblical scholar Susan Nidditch suggests that the Israelite oral traditions passed down among the various tribes took a fixed shape at the beginning of the monarchy and its centralized pan-Hebraic festivals in Jerusalem, 
much as the Greek epic poems took shape during Pan-Hellenic festivals. During such festivals, oral retellings would become less and less variable, and regional differences, such as the various northern and southern oral traditions, would have been to some degree flattened out. Many of the various stands of oral tradition came together during this period before they were written down. The Levites may have been the principal tellers and keepers of these traditions, much as the Greek rhapsodes recounted the epics of Homer and Hesiod. Another biblical scholar, Frank Moore Cross, has suggested a largely poetic oral epic cycle that matured at the time of the Israelite League and was performed at cultic or pilgrimage festivals. Only later was it reformulated, passing through generations of editors, redactors, and copyists. Historical Gossip How Natural Events Become Mythic Tradition As personal reminiscences pass into group tradition, they usually become mixed with the long-term manifestation of rumor, known as historical gossip. This sort of historical information may be extremely old. One account of a well near the Chad-Libya border, into which the sun set each evening, heating the water in the well so that the people could cook their food, has been in existence for 2,500 years. In North America, Klamath Indian oral tradition remembered, with remarkable geological accuracy, the eruption of Mount Mazama and the formation of Crater Lake, events that occurred more than 7,600 years ago. A number of tribes in eastern New Guinea have oral traditions that remember two separate volcanic ash falls from two different eruptions of offshore volcanoes. Although many characteristics of these ash falls are remembered accurately, nearly all of the traditions have fused these two events, which occurred approximately 350 and 1100 years ago, into a single time of darkness. Numerous other peoples throughout the world have oral traditions and myths that harken back to real natural phenomena, such as earthquakes, tsunamis, and volcanic eruptions. These stories can shed light on both the historical context and the geological characteristics of such an event. The Natural History of the Exodus Many of the stories found in the biblical books of Exodus, Numbers, and Joshua also contain these same natural phenomena, earthquakes, tsunamis, and volcanic eruptions. In particular, there are three volcanic eruptions described in these ancient accounts. The first is the Minoan eruption of the Thera or Santorini volcano in the early 17th century, before the Common Era or BCE. The second is a volcanic eruption in the northern Arabian volcanic shield at nearly the same time. And the third is another Aegean eruption nearly 180 years later. Over time, the early people of Israel fused together and shifted these geological events in their oral traditions. Yet once recovered, they serve as markers for the original time and settings of the stories. When these markers are combined with other geological, geomorphological, and paleoclimatological data, and with biblical scholarship, archaeology, and information from other ancient texts, Many of the distortions and later alterations to the stories can be identified and set aside, and the original nature and sequence of the events which form the basis of the biblical accounts can be revealed. This book will make the case that the Exodus narrative as we know it 
is the result of the oral transmission of these three separate volcanic events, the after-effects of which were incorporated into Israelite oral history. Armed with an understanding of the ways in which oral history is constructed and transmitted, along with what the geological and archaeological record tells us about these volcanic events, we can plausibly reconstruct the actual events that underpin the Exodus narrative as we know it. Chapter 1. Dating the Exodus Actor Charlton Heston began his film career in 1950 on the steps of Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History, playing Mark Antony in an adaptation of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the impressive pillars and white marble steps of the museum providing a highly effective stand-in for the Roman Senate. Later, he would go on to do his most famous role, that of Moses, in Cecil B. DeMille's epic film The Ten Commandments. In this movie, the biblical exodus takes place during the reign of the pharaoh Ramesses II of Egypt's 19th dynasty. In the year 2000, Field Museum Egyptologist Frank Yurko included this film in his class, Exodus, the Egyptian Evidence. Evidence for the Exodus in Egypt Frank Yurko, who died in 2003, was among a minority of Egyptologists who hold to the view that the Exodus actually occurred. Like many biblical scholars for the past several centuries, he cited what he believed was the most reliable part of the scriptural narrative, the names of the store cities Python and Ramesses in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. This, Yerko asserted, pointed to the pharaoh Ramesses II, who reigned from 1279 to 1209 BCE. Ramesses II's capital was at Pi-Ramesses, a close approximation of the biblical name. Pi-Ramesses was located in Egypt's eastern delta region, thought to be the biblical land of Goshen. Earlier pharaohs, those of the 18th dynasty, had their capital farther south at Thebes or Amarna. Later pharaohs moved the capital to the city of Tanis. After this move, the name Pi-Ramesses disappeared from common usage, as shown in the Bible where the name Tanis appears several times. Yurko cited texts from the reign of Ramesses II to show that Apiru, a term many scholars think relates to the biblical Hebrews, did indeed labor on the monuments of Pi-Ramesses. Most of the buildings of this and other Egyptian cities, he noted, were made of mud bricks such as those mentioned in Exodus 5. Unlike the earlier kings, Ramesses II did indeed build cities in the Nile Delta for storing his military supplies. The pharaoh was also a resident in the capital of Pyramuses, and thus could have been physically accessible to Moses and Aaron, as the Bible account describes. Even the Red Sea crossing makes sense, in terms of the city of Pyramuses, if the Red Sea refers, in fact, to the Reed Sea. Since several marshy freshwater lakes filled with reeds were immediately to the east and northeast of that city. And finally, Egyptian names in the Exodus account— Moses, Phineas, Hophni, Shipra, and Pua are characteristic of the Ramesside era, less so in Dynasty 18, and least of all in Dynasty 26. Other eminent scholars at a 1992 Brown University conference on the Egyptian evidence for the Exodus expressed their doubts about Yerko's position. 
although archaeologist William Deaver did agree that Egyptian historical evidence pointed to a 13th century BCE date for the Exodus, he wondered how the newly escaped slaves could so quickly establish themselves in Canaan. For they appear, as a distinct people, Israel, on the famous Victory Stele of Merneptah of about 1207 BCE. Furthermore, the biblical account mentions the Israelites passing through the kingdoms of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Ammon, Dever noted, was sparsely occupied in the 13th century BCE, while Edom and Moab were not yet established kingdoms. Dever concluded that oral tradition may have preserved the memory of Canaanite groups in Egypt during the Hyksos period, 17th and 16th centuries BCE, and their expulsion by the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, Amos, but that the true settling of Canaan by the early Israelites had nothing to do with the biblical exodus or with the supposed wanderings in the wilderness and the subsequent conquest under Joshua, none of which fit any of the archaeological evidence. Noted Canadian Egyptologist Donald Redford was even more pessimistic. Thirty years before, he had pointed out that the biblical names Python and Ramesses or Ramses were known only in the Sayite period, that is, during the 7th and 6th centuries BCE. Other concrete aspects of the sojourn in Egypt and Exodus stories were likewise recent. As for an Exodus in the time of the 19th dynasty, he noted the total lack of any Egyptian evidence for a large population of Asiatics, that is, people from Southwest Asia, in Egypt living in large measure unto itself during the entire New Kingdom, 18th to 20th dynasties. Redford thought that the stories of the sojourn in Egypt and the Exodus had their origin in the Canaanite, not Israelite, folkloric memory of the occupation of Egypt by the Hyksos, a people originally from Southwest Asia. Another apparent nail in the coffin of a 13th century BCE exodus was provided by James Weinstein, who reviewed the archaeological evidence from the early 12th century BCE Israelite settlements and found hardly any evidence of Egyptian contact. Such contact would be expected from a people fresh out of Egypt. The only question that really mattered, Weinstein wrote, is whether any non-biblical textual or archaeological materials indicate a major outflow of Asiatics from Egypt to Canaan at any point in the 19th or even early 20th dynasty? So far, the answer to that question is no. Abraham Malamut of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem did discover an account of Asiatics leaving Egypt at the beginning of the 20th dynasty. This group in the first or second decade of the 12th century BCE was driven out of Egypt by the pharaoh Setnacht, after having been bribed with silver and gold to assist a rival political faction. More than any of the other scholars at the conference, Malamut viewed the Exodus as the compression of a chain of historical or durative events telescoped into one punctual event. Both Deaver and Weinstein pointed out the lack of archaeological evidence for a 13th or 12th century BCE conquest of Canaan by Joshua. William A. Ward summed up the consensus of the conference and the mainstream of scholarly opinion by noting that the Exodus could not be separated from the conquest under Joshua, and that if there was no conquest, there was no need of an Exodus. 
The archaeological evidence is indeed unequivocal. Although there is much archaeological evidence for the destruction of a number of Canaanite cities at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, starting about 1550 BCE, there is little or none for their destruction when the conquest of Joshua would have occurred, if the Exodus had taken place during the 19th dynasty. Dating the Exodus from Biblical and Other Ancient Texts More than 25 years ago, a British scholar, John Bimson, attempted to solve this problem. First, he used the statement in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that the beginning of Solomon's temple, about 965 to 967 BCE by modern calculation, took place 480 years after the flight from Egypt as a rough approximation of the actual Exodus date. Then he tried to move the dates for the end of the Middle Bronze Age forward more than 100 years. New archaeological finds, however, as well as radiocarbon dates for the destruction layer of the walled city of Jericho, have shown this approach to be fatally flawed. Earlier writers took a different approach to estimate the date of the Exodus, summing up the chronological information in the Book of Judges and working backward from the reigns of Kings David and Solomon. Using this method in 1925, J.W. Jack estimated 609 years between the Exodus and the building of the first Israelite temple. The most recent approach to determine the date of the Exodus involved computers. Using computer software to correlate the priestly cycles taken from the Talmud, the lunar and solar cycles, and the jubilee years, E.W. Falstich arrived at a date of July 31st, 588 BCE, for the destruction of the Solomonic Temple. Using the same method, he arrived at a date of 1421 BCE for the conquest of Jericho, and by adding 40 years to this figure, a date of 1461 BCE for the Exodus. A much earlier writer, a first-century C.E. Jew named Flavius Josephus, offered two dates for the Exodus. To counter the anti-Semitic claims of a writer named Apion, Josephus wrote a work entitled Against Apion, in which he quoted the 3rd century BCE Egyptian historian Manetho about the Hyksos, an Asiatic people who invaded and conquered Egypt in the first half of the 2nd millennium BCE. Josephus equated the Hyksos to the Israelites to prove his own people's antiquity and stated that the Exodus had occurred 612 years before Solomon built the temple. In another work, Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus again used the 612-year figure, along with a 466-year figure, for the length of the temple's existence. But elsewhere, in Antiquities, Josephus stated that the temple was started on the second month, 592 years after the Exodus, and also that the temple was destroyed 470 years, six months, and ten days after it was built. Combining the 592 years with the 470 years, he went on to write that the temple was destroyed 1,062 years, six months, and ten days after the Exodus, and further, that the flood occurred 1,957 years, six months, and ten days before the temple's destruction, and 3,513 years, six months, and ten days from Adam to the destruction. These sets of numbers apparently were from an ancient year-counting source now lost. This ancient source had at some point 
acquired the beginning of February as the starting point for each new year. Combining Josephus's year count of 1,062 years, 6 months, and 10 days with the accepted date for the destruction of the first temple, the 7th or 10th of A.B. 586 B.C.E., produces an exodus date of 1648 B.C.E. in early February. However, if Josephus had actually made a 20-year error in the wrong direction when he wrote 612 instead of 592 years, then the resulting figure, 572 years between the exodus and the break in the year count, would produce an exodus date of 1628 BCE. As we shall see in Chapter 3, this date is arguably the year of the Minoan eruption of Santorini Thera. Josephus' time of year agrees with Egyptian harvest times as well. See Chapter 4. The break designated as the start of the building of the temple is nearly a century too early for this event, but would accord nicely with the destruction of the principal Israelite cult center at Shiloh, known to have occurred in the mid-11th century BCE. Oral History, Natural Events, and the Story of the Exodus The modern-day oral historian would approach the Exodus story far differently than the literary scholar. First, the oral historian would give little weight to the fact that many people in the story don't have proper names, including Pharaoh. Proper names often fall by the wayside in oral transmission. In the same vein, the names Python and Ramesses, so important to literary scholars, would be treated with caution as possible later additions, anachronisms, a common feature of oral traditions. Second, the oral historian would give little weight to the number of years mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, since numbers are likewise subject to great distortion. Moreover, this particular number is a multiple of 40 and 12, two ritual numbers for the early Israelites. An oral historian might pay a little more attention to the diverse numbers of years given for the rule of the judges, but some of them are recognizably ritual numbers as well. There's also the possibility of overlap for various judges in different parts or tribes of Israel or missing periods or other uncountable stretches of time. Oral historians have often tried to use natural events to date traditional stories, but they have discovered that such events do not always stay attached to their original time and place. A way to detect this problem is to look at the story as a whole. If an oral tradition does contain an extraordinary natural event, or a series of them, how intrinsic is the event to the story? Could the extraordinary event be moved or removed without changing the basic structure of the story? To put it another way, is it likely in the context of the story that the extraordinary event was added or moved? The story of the Exodus contains a whole series of extraordinary natural or supernatural events. There is the burning bush, the ten plagues, the parting of the waters, certainly the plagues and some sort of miraculous event involving the drowning of the Egyptians are intrinsic to the story. Without them, there is no story, nor any reason to have such a story in the first place. It is worth noting that in the ancient world, both the normal and abnormal occurrences of nature were held to be the works of the gods and goddesses. If something unusual had indeed happened, 
the people of the time, both Egyptian and Israelite, would have credited it to the working of divine authority. Natural Phenomena as Explanations for the Exodus With this in mind, in 1957, one ecologically-minded scholar, Greta Hort, saw the plagues as disturbances in the ecology of the Nile, triggered by exceptionally strong July and August Nile flooding that brought down blood-red flagellates from the mountain lakes of Ethiopia along with larger-than-normal quantities of the reddish sediments from the Abyssinian Plateau. These flagellates, Euglena sanguinea, took oxygen from the river water, which killed the fish and brought on flies. This drove the frogs from the river not long before the high flood levels produced a lot of mosquitoes. Unfortunately, the frogs had contracted anthrax and spread it to animals and people, producing more of the plagues. Hail, coming in early February, just before the barley harvest in the Egyptian delta, destroyed the flax and barley. Locusts blew in from Arabia, and a dust storm produced the exceptional darkness of the ninth plague. Hort didn't explain the pillar of cloud and fire, however. In fact, large amounts of sediment from Ethiopia show up during low Nile floods, not high ones. More importantly, the vicissitudes of the Nile floods and their effects would have occurred in other years and would thus have been regarded as ordinary events, whereas the Exodus portrays the water turning to blood as an extraordinary one-time-only event. Moreover, how did such reasonably ordinary events get so closely connected in the minds of people, they supposedly happened over the course of most of a year, or come to be considered so extraordinary that they were remembered for centuries? In a similar vein, archaeologists J.B.E. Garstang and his son John had earlier, in 1940, come up with the idea that the plagues were manifestations of a volcanic eruption that took place in the Rift Valley of Central Africa. The Garstangs theorized that the Central African lakes that are the sources of the White Nile were poisoned by rift volcanoes, and the Nile brought the toxins north to Egypt, killing the fish and causing the earlier plagues. Another volcano, Mount Horeb, erupted in the land of Midian, east of the Red Sea, and prevailing winds blew dust, steam, and ash over to Egypt, causing the hail and darkness plagues. An earthquake related to all this volcanic activity caused the sea to part, and later to return and drown the Egyptians. Modern geological knowledge dispenses with this scenario, however. The volcanoes in Central Africa are still active today, their effusive eruptions sending lava south into Lake Kivu, not northward to Lake Edward, which connects to Lake Albert, the source of the White Nile. The greatest danger humans and animals face from these basaltic shield volcanoes is through direct contact with the molten lava, or through asphyxiation from inhaling local pockets of carbon dioxide gas that form close to the ground. Only in the immediate vicinity of where the lava flows into Lake Kivu are fish parboiled, a bonanza to local fishermen. Across the Red Sea, the effects of the volcanoes of Midian would only be felt locally not as far away as Egypt. In 1964, a better candidate for the volcanic origin of the Exodus plagues emerged when A.G. Galanopoulos suggested that the Minoan eruption of the Santorini-Thera volcano in the Aegean Sea 
was responsible for the plagues of the Exodus and the destruction of the Egyptian army at the Sirbonis Lagoon on the northeastern coast of Egypt. Despite being roundly criticized, but not usually by geologists and volcanologists, this idea became quite popular. Although, in fact, archaeological remains indicate that the land spit over which the Israelites were said to have passed did not exist before the mid-first millennium BCE, well after any possible exodus. The connection between the exodus and the Santorini eruption was discussed in Dorothy Vitaliano's 1973 Legends of the Earth, Their Geologic Origins, in Ian Wilson's 1985 book Exodus, The True Story Behind the Biblical Account, and most recently in Elizabeth and Paul Barber's When They Severed Earth from Sky, How the Human Mind Shapes Myth. Barber and Barber point out that parts of the Exodus story are quite characteristic of an ash cloud, their Group D account of an eruption. In his book, Wilson put the Exodus in the reign of the female pharaoh Hatshepsut, in accord with the theory of renowned Egyptologist Hans Goedeke. The Exodus and the Eruption of the Thera Volcano Goodica made headlines in 1981 when he announced that the exodus had occurred in 1477 and that the pursuing Egyptians had been drowned by a tsunami caused by the eruption of the Thera volcano. In support of his theory, he offered a new translation of Hatshepsut's Speos Artemidos inscription. I annulled the former privileges that existed since the time the Asiatics were in the region of Avaris of Lower Egypt, and when I allowed the abominations of the gods, i.e. these immigrants, to depart, the earth swallowed their footsteps. This was the directive of the primeval father, literally the father of fathers, none the primeval water, who came one day unexpectedly. This is a difficult text, and two other translators, Alan Gardner and Donald Redford, have different endings. Gardner's is... Such has been the guiding rule of the father of my fathers, who came at his appointed times, even Ra. And Redford's is, That was the instruction of the father of the fathers, who comes at his regular times, viz. Ra. Redford does mention that the term father of the fathers could mean a god, but an even more contentious item is whether the god or the primeval water came expectedly or unexpectedly. An unexpected appearance could refer to a tsunami, but an expected one certainly couldn't. In 1992, Goetheke published a paper on the Thera Santorini eruption, which was in part a reaction to the scientific date for the Minoan eruption suggested at the Third International Congress on Thera and the Aegean world. Like many other Egyptologists, he rejected this scientifically derived date of 1628 BCE for the eruption and opted instead for a two-tiered Thera eruption, the first in the reign of Amos, first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and the second during the reign of Hatshepsut. Although there is no geological evidence for a two-tiered Theran eruption, Goodica cited a mid-to-late first millennium BCE Naos from Soft Elhena as support for a volcanic disaster in Hatshepsut's time. The Naos is an inscribed rectangular block of granite pointed at the top with a large niche carved out of its front that once held the figurine of a god. Goodica believes that the inscription on the Naos 
is a mythologized history of the 18th dynasty from the time of Tutmosis I to the beginning of Tutmosis III's sole rule. This text describes an intense darkness that lasted for nine days. During this time, the sea intruded inland. The Exodus from Egypt and the Conquest in Joshua If Goodica's reconstructions and attestations are correct, this event certainly has a good many similarities to the biblical Exodus. But there are also significant differences. The 18th dynasty pharaohs, and certainly Hatshepsut, lived much farther south in Egypt in Thebes, not in the Delta. Moses and Aaron couldn't shuttle back and forth between Pharaoh and the Israelites living in the land of Goshen, undeniably located in the Delta, as they negotiated for the release of their people. Also, this Pharaoh had no sons, firstborn or otherwise, to die during the Passover, nor did she lead a pursuing army and drown in the Sea of Reeds, and lastly, and most tellingly, had the exodus occurred in Hatshepsut's reign, it was not and could not have been followed forty years later by the conquest described in the book of Joshua. In a very real way, the exodus is connected to this conquest. As William Ward concluded at the 1992 conference, if there was no conquest, there is no need of an exodus. There are now radiocarbon dates on charred seeds from the only destruction level at Jericho that plausibly could have been associated with the Israelite destruction under Joshua. The average of these dates is 3311, plus or minus 13 radiocarbon years BP, before present. Wiggle matched to either the 1993 or 1998 tree ring calibration curve. This date falls in the middle 16th century BCE. This is well before Hatshepsut's reign, before or at the very start of the 18th dynasty. If an exodus from Egypt took place earlier, it would have occurred when the Nile Delta region was dominated by the people mentioned by Manitho, a Semitic-speaking people originally from Southwest Asia, known to history as the Hyksos. Chapter 2 The Coming of the Hyksos Archaeology and the Hyksos Genuine archaeology in Egypt goes back nearly 150 years, when serious excavators began to probe the dust-dried tombs along the middle and lower or southern reaches of the Nile. Relatively little archaeological work was done in the Egyptian delta, however, for delta sediments are nothing but mud washed in by the yearly flooding of the Nile. Buried remains of ancient buildings and walls were made of mud brick, which could be distinguished from the encompassing mud only by feel. Mud bricks were slightly more compact and sometimes had a slightly different color than the surrounding soil. Nonetheless, in the early 1970s, archaeologist Manfred Bitak of the University of Vienna, using modern excavation techniques, began digging in the northeastern part of the Nile Delta at the site of Tel el-Daba. Bitak's team found excavation very difficult for walls and buildings from higher levels in the soil cut into foundations from lower levels, and pits from more recent levels cut into older ones. The site was so large that the various excavated areas could not be correlated directly with one another, but only indirectly by comparing pottery types and subtle changes in building materials. The Austrian team persevered, however, 
and what they found was worth the effort. Avaris, the ancient capital of the Hyksos. The 3rd century BCE Egyptian historian Manetho described the Hyksos in the following way. Unexpectedly, from the regions of the east, invaders of obscure race marched in confidence of victory against our land. By main force they easily seized it without striking a blow, and having overpowered the rulers of the land, they then burned our cities ruthlessly, razed to the ground the temples of the gods, and treated all the natives with a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others. The first Hyksos king, Manetho reported, was named Salatus, who established his capital in Memphis. He also fortified a city in the delta on the Pelusiac branch of the Nile to secure his territory against any invasion from the east. This fortified city, named Avaris, became the capital of later Hyksos kings. These Hyksos, as noted in the previous chapter, have sometimes been thought to have been, or at least included, the biblical Israelites living in Egypt just before the Exodus. The Delta Site of the Tel Eldaba Tel Eldaba consists of a mound or tell approximately 500 meters in diameter, the remains of a town that once extended from the tell westward at least one kilometer to what was then the eastern bank of the Pelusiac branch of the Nile, a freshwater lake that once formed the town's northern limit connected to the river by a feeder channel. Because the Pelusiac branch of the Nile flowed northeastward to the sea, this feeder channel transformed the lake into an ideal inland harbor. The finds from Tel Eldaba have enormously expanded our knowledge of the era in Egyptian history known as the Second Intermediate Period. They have revealed that peoples from southwestern Asia, including the area that later became Biblical Israel, settled in Avaris over 150 years before the advent of the Hyksos. Late in Egypt's 12th dynasty, sometime in the 19th century BCE, newcomers arrived at Tel Eldaba from Syria Canaan, bringing with them a distinctive house form, Canaanite pottery of the Middle Bronze Age, 2A type, and a large number of bronze weapons, notably the duck-billed axe, seen in several Egyptian wall paintings. While most of the newcomers were evidently urbanites, most likely from Byblos, along a part of the eastern Mediterranean known as the Levant, those living at Tela, the eastern suburb of Avaris, were probably nomads or pastoralists, Brick enclosures there may have housed animals. The large number of weapons found in the male graves suggested that these newcomers were soldiers recruited with their families by Egyptian rulers to guard the frontier. These pastoralists may have also come to the delta because they were having trouble feeding their animals. Analysis of sediments at the Nahal Lakish indicates that central Canaan was experiencing erosion at this time, probably an indicator of dry climatic conditions. In Egypt, the latter part of the 12th dynasty was marked by extremely high Nile flood levels due to the northward migration of the Intertropical Convergence Zone, ITCZ, which pushed the heavy monsoon rains north into the catchment areas of the Blue Nile and its tributary, the Atbara River, principal sources of the Nile. The northward migration of the monsoon regime in turn weakened the Mediterranean westerly winds, which carry most of the rainfall to Canaan. Such conditions, drought in Canaan and high Niles in Egypt, could easily have compelled one or more of the groups of nomads in Canaan 
to seek more reliable pasturage in the Egyptian delta. The 12th dynasty occupation at Tel el-Daba slash Avaris was followed by a 13th dynasty palace in the central area. Nearby were tombs of high-ranking officials, treasurers, or chief stewards. These officials were probably Asians, since the burials were accompanied by donkey sacrifices or the bones of sheep or goats, a characteristically Asian mode of burial. Such officials may have directed the trading caravan sent by land eastward to Asia and the seaborne trade between Egypt and the ports of northern Syria. Avaris was in fact a port. An Egyptian-made cylinder seal found in one of these tombs was inscribed with the image of the Syrian weather god Hadad Baal Zephon, who would have been an important deity to sailors crossing the Mediterranean between Egypt and the Levantine ports. After this level, the palace was abandoned, and the area was built over with small houses, most likely those of the craftsmen. Craftsmen also lived in the eastern suburb area at Tel Ah, where small huts were built and round storage silos were erected in the enclosures. These levels were terminated abruptly by what appears to have been a plague, since there are mass graves at this level that apparently indicate a number of sudden deaths. As a trading center, Avaris would have been exposed to peoples from many places, and diseases, such as bubonic plague and typhus, could have been brought in by ships or by donkey caravanners. After the plague had passed through Avaris, larger houses with attached servants' quarters appeared in the central section of the city, a clear sign of social stratification. The population at this time, Stratum F, seems purely Canaanite. Tela was deserted for a brief time for unknown reasons, then the old huts were leveled and a sacred precinct built over them. Within this precinct, a near eastern temple was erected. It continued to be in use with some modifications through succeeding strata. Two limestone doorposts, possibly from this temple, contain the name of King Nehesi. The name means the Southerner or the Nubian, who is listed on an ancient Egyptian king list, known as the Turin Papyrus, as the first or second 14th dynasty king. Other inscriptions suggest that Nehesi was devoted to the worship of the Egyptian god Seth, who, like Baal Zephon, had jurisdiction over storms. Some of the graves from this period contain the bodies of young girls buried at the feet of prominent men, a practice also found in Nubia's Kerma culture. Nehesi may have been the son of a Nubian princess, Tati, married to the first 14th dynasty king. In the succeeding stratum, E3, a scarab of the 13th dynasty king, Kanefere Sobekhaptep IV, CA 1732 to 1720 BCE, was found in a grave. Scarabs, amulets shaped in the form of the dung beetle, are often inscribed with names and hieroglyphics on the bottom, because they are quite common in ancient Egyptian sites and sometimes carry the name of a king, archaeologists have found them quite useful for dating. This conifere Sabekhaptup IV scarab is the last direct evidence of the Egyptian 13th dynasty at Tel el-Daba slash Avaris, and suggests, along with the Nehesi inscriptions, that the Asiatic 14th dynasty began about this time. Horses make their appearance in stratum E2. The more recent part of stratum E2 and all of the succeeding stratum E1 show evidence of a much larger population than before. According to Manfred Bitak, this reflects the creation of the Hyksos kingdom. 
American archaeologist William Deaver, however, would place the advent of the 15th Hyksos dynasty in the succeeding stratum, E1, while archaeologist Sturt Manning would place it even later, beginning in the subsequent stratum, D3. The Hyksos proper comprised the 15th dynasty, six rulers said in the Turin papyrus to have ruled for 108 years. The last two Hyksos kings, Apophis and Kamudi, are generally agreed upon, as is another ruler in the middle of the dynasty, Kayan. Several Asian rulers from the Second Intermediate Period are known only by their scarabs or seals, Yakbim, Ya'amu, Kare, Amu, Maebre Sheshi, and Marwasera Yakup Her. These seals have been found in southern Canaan, in the Delta, along the Nile, and in Nubia. Sheshi is the best candidate for Manitho's Salatus, and Yakup Her has been suggested as the second 15th dynasty king. In fact, Yakup, or Jacob, was a common Western Semitic name in the Middle Bronze Age. The others are probably lesser kings under the early Hyksos rulers. A scarab of Yakup Her found in a tomb in northern Canaan was originally dated to the mid or late 18th century BCE, but has been redated and may coincide with the early 15th dynasty. The Hyksos 15th dynasty gained control over all of Egypt, if only for a short time, and seems to have installed a line of vassal rulers in Thebes, known as the 17th dynasty. Hyksos rule in Egypt was ended when 17th dynasty rulers mounted a series of military campaigns that resulted in the capture of Avaris and expulsion of the remaining Hyksos across the Sinai Peninsula back to Canaan. It is this expulsion that has been claimed to echo through the folk memory of the ancient Canaanites and to have found its way into early Israelite myth as the Exodus. Asiatic Sites Outside Avaris Although it was by far the largest, Avaris was not the only settlement of Asiatics in the Nile Delta during the Second Intermediate Period. About 80 kilometers southwest of Tel el-Daba, and 20 miles north of Cairo, Tel el-Yehudia was excavated a century ago by British archaeologist Sir Flinders Petrie. Finds included burials, pottery, and scarabs, all from an obviously southwestern Asian population that lived there during the Second Intermediate Period. Petrie also excavated at the site of the Tel Ur-Rataba in the Wadi Tumilat, south of the Pelusiac branch of the Nile. The Wadi Tumilat the Wadi Tumilat is the remnant of an extinct channel that the Nile cut through the desert plateau and filled with sands and gravels in the last ice age. Today the Wadi extends from the present river course eastward to Lake Timsa and the Bitter Lakes. Until recent times, the Wadi, especially the low-lying ground in the western part, functioned as an overflow basin for the annual Nile floods. When the Nile floods were high in ancient times, the Wadi would have been lush and fertile, with a rich aquatic and faunal population. Seasonal and permanent waterholes would have dotted the Wadi's western and central parts, where limited cultivation was possible, although as a whole, the Wadi was suited more to the pasturing of flocks than to extensive agriculture. In its central part, the Wadi Tumilat narrows at two points. At each of these points, along the northern flank of the Wadi, is a tell, the western one, known as Tel Urataba, and the eastern one as Tel El Maskuta. 
The Wadi as a whole has been extensively surveyed by a team headed by John S. Holliday, Jr. of the University of Toronto, and the largest site, Tel El-Maskuta, has been excavated by them. Tel Urataba has also been the object of recent archaeological excavation, but none of the results have been published. Since the 19th century at least, the Wadi Tumalat has been equated with the biblical land of Goshen, the area occupied by the tribes of Israel during their sojourn in Egypt. Its two principal sites, Tel Urataba and Tel El Maskuta, have been variously labeled as the biblical Python, Ramses, and or Sukkoth. Python is from the Egyptian form Per Itham, the house of Atom while Sukkoth is derived from the Egyptian T-K-W. But per item is a late Egyptian term. In its earlier usage, it seems to have denoted not a town, but open country, probably the open country in the vicinity of Tel El-Maskuta. The term T-K-W also denotes a district rather than a town. Like the estate of Atum, it seems to have been centered on Tel El-Maskuta. In fact, the names Python and Sukkoth may both apply to the same area around and including Tel El Maskuta. One, an older name, Sukkoth, and the other, Python, a more recent one. Tel El Maskuta Tel El Maskuta is the largest archaeological site in the Wadi Tumilat, covering an area of 960,000 square meters, of which about two hectares produced traces of human occupation. Tel Eretaba is less than half that size, 405,000 square meters. Of the 70 other sites the University of Toronto team surveyed under the direction of Carol A. Redmount, 21 yielded remains from the Middle Bronze Age slash Second Intermediate Period. Fifteen of these were no more than scatters of broken pottery sherds, and nearly all were found at the edges of ancient lakes or waterholes, where nomads and their herds would have camped for a short time. Five other sites in the Wadi were tells. One was a burial ground. Two-thirds of these sites were in the central section of the Wadi. Excavations at Tel El Maskuta revealed six phases of building and twenty-one burials. The settlement began as a scattered, sparse, and mostly insubstantial occupation, founded on virgin fluvial deposits. Even in the earliest phases there were tombs, meandering perimeter walls and circular structures, commonly thought to be silos, although no traces of grain were ever found in them. Throughout the site's occupation, the buildings and perimeter walls were made of sun-baked mud brick, manufactured without chaff, straw. The first substantial structures were found in the third phase. The site became more densely populated as time passed and courtyards filled up with houses, but there were few luxury goods in any of the living levels, the inhabitants appear to have been quite poor. Activities at the site included spinning and weaving, pottery making, and some bronze working. Animal remains from the site included the bones of most domestic animals, principally sheep and goats. At least 70% of the animal remains recovered from all levels. Cattle, donkeys, and pigs. The percentage of pigs increased through time, a clear sign that the people at Tel El Maskuta were staying longer in one place, since pigs don't travel well. The plant remains, however, clearly showed that farming was done only in the winter months, when cereal crops, emmer wheat and barley, were grown. In the summer months, there was no cultivation whatsoever. 
In these months, most of the occupants of the site must have moved into the open areas of the wadi, grazing their flocks by the lakes, wells, and water holes. Most of the burials at Tel El Mascuda were in vaulted mudbrick tombs, although a few were in mudbrick-lined pits and a few more in simple holes in the virgin soil. Two young children were buried in imported Syrian jars, much like the child jar burials common at Tel El Daba. Grave goods from the Mascuda mudbrick tombs included some gold and silver jewelry, beads, amulets and scarabs, a few weapons, and pottery mostly food bowls and beakers, suggesting food offerings to the dead. Later, graves at the site were exclusively infants or sub-adults. Apparently, the adults were being buried away from the town. The assortment of pottery from the site, as well as from the other Middle Bronze Age sites in the central section of the Wadi Tumilat, is particularly interesting. One of the most popular ceramic forms in the early levels at Tel El Mascuta was the same sort of crude handmade cooking pot found in the earliest level, stratum H, at Tel El Daba. Those in the Wadi Tumilat, however, were much later in time. As time went on at Tel El Mascuta, these handmade pots were replaced by wheel-made, whole-mouth cooking pots. Another common form was a wide, shallow platter bowl, usually 30 to 50 centimeters in diameter, that looks much like a modern wok. Fine and decorated pottery was rare to non-existent. Cups usually had flat bases, quite different from the round-based drinking cups so common at Tel El Daba. While most of the ceramics at the site reflect a generalized Syro-Canaanite heritage, many of the common Middle Bronze Age forms found in Syrian sites were not found at Tel El Mascuta and the Wadi Tumilat's wide-mouth water jars were of Egyptian, not Syrian, origin. Carol Redmount, who studied the pottery extensively, concluded that the ceramic assemblage at Tel El Mascuta reflected an at least second-generation population of immigrant Asiatics whose Syro-Canaanite heritage had evolved through time and mixed with Egyptian traditions. She estimated that the Middle Bronze Age occupation at Tel El Mascuta lasted about 50 to 100 years, probably closer to the latter figure. She also suggested that the Middle Bronze Age sites in the Wadi Tumilat should be seen as part of a political grouping, and that the people of Tel El Mascuta and the Wadi Tumilat were an ethnic subgroup within the greater Hyksos population. John Holliday has come up with a scenario to explain the occupation of the Wadi Tumilat within the framework of the Greater Hyksos Empire in Egypt. The occupants of the Wadi Tumilat, he suggests, were settled there by a Greater Hyksos authority to receive the winter-spring donkey caravans bringing incense and spices from South Arabia and the Far East, and gold and ivory from equatorial Africa. The water resources of the wadi would have been vital for these caravanners arriving from the desert, and Tel El Mascuta is strategically located to control access to the wadi from the east, from the Sinai and any trade routes headed south down both sides of the Red Sea. Mascuta is about a day's journey from Tel Urataba. Caravans coming in from the Sinai Peninsula would stop at Mascuta on one day and at Rataba the next, then proceed westward out of the wadi and turn north to Tel El Daba slash Avaris. From Avaris, goods would be shipped by boats to ports throughout the eastern Mediterranean. This Wadi Tumilat trade route would be particularly important at times when the rulers of upper southern Egypt 
shut off communication via the Nile River so that travel overland from Arabia, the Horn of Africa, or via the oases of the Western Desert would have been the only way for goods from the south and southeast to reach the Delta. Holiday cites specific features found at Tel Al-Maskuta to support his scenario. One, the relatively rich grave goods, brought in by the caravanners and traded, perhaps for meat and milk, in the burials, so different from the humble items found in the living areas of the site, and two, the oversized cooking facilities in the site's occupation areas and the multiple jar emplacements stretching across compounds. Think of cafeterias set up to feed the caravanners. He also notes the real degree of military preparedness evident in the weapons found at the site and the importance of donkeys, which often were sacrificed at the tombs of important males, both here and at Tel Eldaba. This scenario sees the people of Tel El Maskuta and the adjacent sites in the central section of the wadi as a small community of pastoralists, about 3,000 people, if 19th-century Bedouin populations in the wadi are any guide. Settled in the wadi Tumilat by the Hyksos rulers, living in small towns and hamlets in the winter and early spring to grow wheat and barley and make the cloth, pottery, weapons, and other items they would need for the rest of the year, all the while guarding the frontier and servicing the donkey caravans coming in from the east. In the summer, they would leave the towns and hamlets to pasture their flocks beside the wadi's waterholes, occasionally hunting wild game and waterfowl. This picture fits well with Redmount's idea of the wadi's people as a distinct subgroup within the greater Hyksos population. Archaeologically, it would be most appropriate to the later levels at the site. Dating of Tel El Mascuta and the Wadi Tumilat Sites Tel Amaskuta scarabs date from the later part of the 13th dynasty through the first part of the Hyksos 15th dynasty, equivalent to the period known as Middle Bronze. James Weinstein, who studied the scarabs, says that they are similar time-wise to those found in tomb groups 3 through 4 and 4 through 5 at the site of Jericho in southern Canaan, and that their equivalent levels at Tel Aldaba are E1 and its succeeding level D3. He first estimated that the scarabs from Tel El Mascuta dated from 1750 to 1625 BCE. More recently, based on both the pottery and the scarabs, he wrote that occupation at Tel El Mascuta ended slightly earlier than occupation at Tel El Yehudia, which he thinks ended around 1575 BCE, while Carol Redmount estimated the occupation of Tel El Mascuta from about 1700 to 1600 BCE. In terms of the pottery, John Holliday limits occupation at Tel Amascuda to an even narrower range. All of our pottery would fit comfortably within the limits of, at the earliest, late stratum E1, and probably at the latest, stratum D3 at Tel Eldaba. Probably we lack the earliest E1 material and the latest D3. Manfred Bitak assigns dates of 1620 to 1560 BCE, to the E1 to D3 strata at Tel Eldaba. Bitak's estimates would mean that occupation at Tel El Mascuda lasted no longer than 30 to 40 years, a time span that makes no sense in terms of Weinstein's and Redmount's estimates. The scarabs from Tel El Mascuda include 13th dynasty types that extend back to Tel Eldaba level E3, 
Moreover, William Deaver has identified some late MB2A and transitional MB2A-2B pottery forms from Tel El Mascuta. Therefore, the occupation at Tel El Mascuta arguably began as early as the E3 stratum and lasted into stratum D3, a time span more in keeping with the dates and length of the occupation estimated both by Redmount and Weinstein. This discordance highlights a raging debate between two opposing camps of archaeologists. Many archaeologists studying the Middle Bronze Age in Canaan have a whole series of dates that are far older than the dates Manfred Bitak assigns to the equivalent strata at Tel el-Daba. William Deaver, for example, dates the E1 to D3 layers at Tel el-Daba to 1675 through 1575 BCE. All of these estimates are based on approximations of the length of each pottery or occupation phase. Unfortunately, the only radiocarbon dates published for any level at Avaris-slash-Tel-El-Daba have too wide a range, 150 calendar years for one from late in level G, 113 radiocarbon years, the equivalent to 194 calendar years for the average of two other dates, to resolve the dating controversy. In contrast, Stuart Manning, an archaeologist whose specialty is Bronze Age pottery from Cyprus, has closely studied correlations between wares imported from that island to Avaris, Tel El Agil in southern Canaan, and Tel El Mascuta. From his work, he has concluded that the 15th dynasty is represented by strata D3 and D2 at Avaris, and that the earlier part of the Hyksos rule is contemporaneous with the late Minoan 1A, which radiocarbon dates revealed ended between 1620 and 1603 BCE. Consequently, Manning has stratum D3 extending back from about 1600 BCE to the mid-17th century BCE. This date range would be more in keeping with Redmount's and Weinstein's first dates for the occupation of Tel el Mascuda. Abandonment of the Wadi Tumilat Sites There is a far greater problem with Tel el Mascuda than its date range, and that is explaining why the site, and nearly all of the other Middle Bronze Age sites in the Wadi Tumilat, were abandoned before the end of the Hyksos rule in Egypt. Except for a few occasional squatters, occupation at Tel el-Mascuda ceased before the end of what is equivalent to the D3 layer at Tel el-Daba. Hyksos rule in Egypt lasted through the end of the ensuing D2 stratum there. People did not resume living at Tel el-Mascuda until the Sayite period, 7th century BCE, a gap of about a thousand years. Only at Tel el-Rataba, closer to the western end of the Wadi Tumilat, did occupation occur in the New Kingdom's 19th dynasty. Holiday suggests that, as the Hyksos came to dominate all of Egypt, transport of luxury goods by boat up the Nile to Avaris supplanted the land route across the Wadi Tumilat. Certainly, carvings with the names of the Hyksos rulers Kayan and Apophis were found in Upper Egypt not far from Thebes, indicating Hyksos' power in the south. But this explanation does not agree with the finding of numbers of seals of earlier Hyksos rules along the Nile and in Nubia, an indication of trans-Nile trade. With or without the overland trade, the Wadi should have remained a place for winter cereal farming and a prime pasturage for the flocks of sheep and goats that represented 
nomadic people's real wealth, since Nile flood levels were normal throughout this period. Besides the possible cessation of overland trade, Holiday concedes that there is no ready explanation for the discontinuance of Hyksos' occupation in the Wadi Tumilat. The question then needs to be asked, what happened in Stratum D3 that could have resulted in the abandonment of virtually all of the Wadi Tumilat sites? To put it another way, why did all the people living in the Wadi Tumilat leave it sometime in Stratum D3 and never return? Interestingly enough, by accepting the dates of Redmount and Weinstein's original dates for Tel El Mascuda and Manning's dates for the D3 stratum at Avaris slash Tel El Daba from the mid-17th century to about or slightly before 1600 BCE, which are correlated with radiocarbon-derived dates in the Aegean, the D3 stratum is also the level in which the Minoan eruption of the Santorini volcano occurred. Chapter 3. The Minoan Eruption Over the last two decades or so, a wealth of new scientific information has become available about the Minoan eruption of the Santorini Thera volcano. Other scientific research sheds new light on the nature of large-scale eruptions in general and the effects these eruptions have on people, plants, and animals, and the environment. With this information in hand, this chapter will describe the Minoan eruption and its probable effects, particularly the effects of its tsunami and airborne ash clouds. Then the next chapter will go on to compare the eruption and its effects to the plagues described in the book of Exodus. Let us start by looking at when the eruption actually took place. The Controversy Over the Dating of the Minoan Eruption the Minoan eruption of Santorini slash Thera is a key marker for the Bronze Age archaeology of the eastern Mediterranean world. For most of the 20th century, archaeologists placed it at about 1500 BCE, as radiocarbon dating techniques were applied to Bronze Age archaeological material. However, this date appeared to be over 100 years too young. When tree ring chronologies and evidence from the Greenlandic ice cores appeared to support the radiocarbon dates, the dispute over the true date for the eruption grew heated and intense. Recent analysis of volcanic glass from a layer in the Greenland ice cores previously thought to mark the Santorini eruption showed that this layer actually marks an eruption of Aniakchak, an Alaskan volcano. The 17th century BCE growth spurt evidenced in the Anatolian tree ring chronology can also be linked to this Aniakchak eruption. There thus remains two camps. Many earth scientists, tree ring experts, and some archaeologists who support the earlier 17th century BCE date for the eruption, and those who support on historical grounds a date of 1500 BCE or even slightly later. The dates of Egypt's second intermediate period and the beginning of the 18th dynasty are at the very heart of this debate, since the Egyptian chronology is the basis for many other archaeological chronologies in the eastern Mediterranean. Archaeologist Stuart Manning, mentioned in the previous chapter, argues that the 17th century BCE eruption date for Santorini Thera can fit with a higher Egyptian chronology and the early Aegean chronology. It cannot fit with the low chronology proposed by Manfred Bitak. The most direct geochronological evidence for the 17th century BCE date for the Minoan eruption 
comes from radiocarbon dates on samples taken from the destruction layer on the island of Thera itself. The best of these, on fully carbonized seeds found in sealed jars buried by the eruption, have been radiocarbon dated at 3,344.9 plus or minus 7.5 C14 years BP. Calibrated to the most recent tree ring curve, these results produce a range of 1600 to 1613 BCE at a 95.4% confidence level, with the most likely subrange being 1639 to 1616 BCE. A second report dates an olive branch found in the volcanic deposits of Thera. Radiocarbon dating and wiggle matching the rings on this branch, which was by all accounts alive up to the time of the eruption, produce a calendar date range of 1627 to 1600 BCE at the 95.4% confidence level. However, if there is only a 25% error in the counting of the rings on this branch, the radiocarbon date range is 1635 to 1591 at the 95.4% confidence level, and the overlap with the dates from the carbonized Theron seeds is 1635 to 1616 BCE. Three of the Greenlandic ice cores record acid spikes at 1622 and 1618 BCE. Given that these dates are plus or minus several years, they are functionally identical and probably signal the Minoan eruption. The eruption date indicated by these ice core acid spikes may be six to eight years too low, however, since the radiocarbon date on the Anatolian tree ring growth spurt linked to the Aniakchak eruption is six to eight years higher than its acid spike date of 1645 BCE. If this is the case, then the date of the Minoan eruption would fall squarely at the time when absolute tree ring chronologies from North America and Europe record a growth anomaly thought to be the product of a volcanic eruption, 1628 BCE. As noted in Chapter 1, this date is closely related to the date Jewish historian Josephus gives for the Exodus. Santorini and the Phases of the Minoan Eruption Santorini is a subduction zone volcano. It owes its existence to the subduction of the African tectonic plate beneath the Eurasian plate. As the subducted slab goes deeper and deeper into the earth, it releases water, which, by lowering the melting point of part of the earth's mantle, known as the asthenosphere, causes it to partly melt. Because this melted material is less dense than the rest of the asthenosphere, the melt, or magma, rises to relatively shallow levels inside the Earth's crust, where it may stay for years or even centuries in one or more magma chambers. If something happens to increase the pressure inside the magma chamber so that it becomes greater than the pressure of the overlying rocks, a volcanic eruption, like the Minoan eruption, occurs. The Minoan eruption of Thera is the second-largest explosive eruption in the past four millennia. A volcanic explosivity index, VEI, seven or more cataclysm that ejected the equivalent of 60 cubic kilometers of dense rock into the ocean and the atmosphere to heights of 36 to 38 kilometers well into the stratosphere. In modern times, only the 1815 eruption of Tambora in Indonesia was larger, and that eruption was so immense it produced the year without a summer throughout the Northern Hemisphere.
Several months before the Minoan eruption, Santorini experienced an earthquake strong enough to damage buildings. It was followed by a precursor ashfall a few weeks or months before the eruption itself. This preliminary volcanic activity apparently caused the island's inhabitants to flee, since no evidence exists that people were killed on Thera as they were at Pompeii. The first phase of the eruption itself is termed a Plinian phase or eruption named after Pliny the Younger, who as a young man witnessed and described the eruption of Vesuvius in Italy in 79 CE. In this phase, volcanic tephra and ash shot up into the air with increasing violence and intensity. Up to seven meters of rose-colored, iron-rich pumice and ash were deposited on the islands of the Santorini Archipelago, in patterns that indicate a strong wind blowing toward the southeast at the time. Tephra from this phase was also found in sea cores southeast of Santorini. There was no interaction between the erupting magma and seawater. The magma was fragmented and discharged by its own exploding gases. Pumice falling into the sea would have formed enormous rafts that floated around the eastern Mediterranean. When Krakatoa erupted in 1883, pumice rafts transported skeletons and trees around the Indian and Pacific Oceans. At Santorini, this Plinian phase lasted about eight hours, but did not generate any tsunamis. In the second phase, erupting vents opened in the sea south of the first vent and seawater interacted with the magma. This caused violent explosions that pulverized the magma, and exploded large blocks of it onto Thera, along with about 12 more meters of ash and pumice. Pyroclastic flows and surges occurred during this stage, which lasted at least an hour and perhaps as long as a day. Similar surges killed thousands of people in Pompeii and Herculaneum when Vesuvius erupted in 79 CE. Tsunamis were likely generated as these massive surges entered the sea, but particularly toward the north, south, and southeast. Evidence from Palicastro in northeast Crete shows that a massive tsunami or tsunamis from the Minoan eruption was directed to the southeast, directly toward Egypt. Similar pyroclastic flows entering the sea during the eruption of Krakatoa produced tsunamis that killed thousands of people. In the third phase, there is again clear evidence of seawater mixing with the magma. About 55 meters of white pumice and ash, interbedded with larger rocky material, were deposited on Thera, possibly from a new vent to the west of the original one as hot pyroclastic flows welled out of the caldera and down into the valleys. This phase lasted about a day, and huge tsunamis would have generated whenever pyroclastic flows entered the sea. These tsunamis would have been channeled to the west and southwest by now-opened fault blocks— as the pyroclastic flows spread out, they combined with and heated the air above them, forming a buoyant column containing vast quantities of eruptive material. This is what is called a co-ignimbrite eruption column. And it was this column, and not the Plinian eruption plume, that produced most of the Theron tephra that has been recovered in eastern Mediterranean sea cores and from deposits to the northeast of Santorini as far as the Black Sea. Toward the end of this third phase, the caldera, already subsiding, began its final collapse. Most scientists believe that the Minoan eruption had a fourth and final phase. 
in which ignimbrites and other sediments were deposited on the broad coastal plains of Thera and Thuresia. The final stages of caldera collapse created more tsunamis toward the west-southwest, forming massive deposits called homogenites on the seafloor of basins to the west and south. Tsunamis Tsunamis are enormous waves that reach from the surface of the ocean to the deep sea floor and travel at speeds of up to 800 kilometers per hour in the open ocean. Once a tsunami reaches shallow waters offshore, the bottom of the wave slows down and drags at the upper part, causing the wave to bunch up to a great height just before it crashes onto the land with an awesome destructive power bringing debris from the ocean and the ocean floor with it. Tsunami deposits from the Minoan eruption have been found on Thera itself, in northeastern Crete, and in two locations along the coast of western Turkey. In Israel, a Minoan tsunami may have caused the cliff collapse at Tel Mekau, in its middle bronze 2B layer. Eruption Clouds and Tephra Dispersal Clouds from a volcanic eruption may be carried horizontally for thousands of kilometers, but satellite studies of modern eruptions show that 75 to 90 percent of erupted tephra falls to ground in the first 36 hours, mostly as fine ash. The distance the cloud travels is dependent on both the amount of pyroclastic material ejected into the atmosphere and the wind velocity. Tephra clouds travel at markedly different speeds, from 25 to 100 kilometers per hour, with higher altitude clouds traveling faster. These clouds may follow straight trajectories or curve around storm systems, and their direction or rate of drift may vary with position or altitude. Varying wind direction may produce a broad, perhaps lobate, mantle, and the more prolonged the eruption, the greater the possible variation. Minoan tephra deposits covered an immense area, estimated at 2 to 2.2 million square kilometers. Distribution of these deposits indicates a broad rather than a concentrated pattern. In seafloor sediments from the eastern Mediterranean, on the Greek islands, in Anatolia, and even in deposits from the Black Sea. Thirin glass shards have been found in sediments cored from the Nile Delta and recent excavations in the area of Tel Habua 1, near the Mediterranean coast, has uncovered houses, military structures, and tombs encased in ash, along with fragments of pumice. In the first intense Plinian phase, deposits on the Santorini archipelago show that the wind, at least at lower altitudes, was strongly from the northwest, and would have blown the tephra clouds southeast. The predominant summer winds do blow in the direction of the Aegean, these winds alone would not explain the broad distribution of the Theron Tephra, however, which includes deposits in Anatolia and the Black Sea, well to the northeast of Santorini. The Anatolian Tephra deposits are better explained by west and southwest winds that are most common in the winter and spring months, not in the summer. One suggested solution to this timing problem is that lower-altitude summer winds were responsible for the south and southeast-directed deposits, and that the northern and eastern tephra deposits were produced by fallout from the upper troposphere, where the jet stream runs in a generally easterly direction over the Aegean and north to northeast over Anatolia. Another possible solution involves the complex weather systems that move through the eastern Mediterranean in the winter months. From December through April, dry, cold air at high altitudes, originating in the Arctic, 
move south over Europe. Reaching the Mediterranean, these high-altitude air pockets come in contact with the warmer, wetter air over the sea and form depressions over the Gulf of Genoa, the North Adriatic, and the Western Aegean north of Crete. The Aegean depressions cause cyclonic storms that last four to seven days and move generally southeastward to Egypt or curve northeastward over Anatolia and into the Black Sea. Some 10 to 12 storms strike the coast of northeast Egypt each winter. If Santorini had erupted in the mid or late winter months, one such storm could have carried the airborne material from the earlier eruption stages southeast, while another, following closely behind, curved northeast across Anatolia in the final stages of the eruption, carrying material from the co-ignimbrite eruption column with it. The latter storm could also have produced the torrential rain thought by some scientists to have helped form the deposits of the fourth phase, the summer winds are dry. These weather conditions would have assured the dispersal of the Santorini Tephra as far south as the Egyptian Delta and as far north as the Black Sea. How much ashfall remains in place centuries after an eruption, even a very big one, is quite problematical. One of the best examples, because it combines contemporary accounts with modern measurements, is the February 19th to March 5th, 1600 CE eruption of the volcano Huaynaputina in what is today southern Peru. The eruption is recorded in historical sources, the Northern Hemisphere Tree Ring Record, and the Antarctic Ice Cores. The Huaynaputina eruption released an estimated 19.2 cubic kilometers of rock, compared to the 60 cubic kilometers estimated for the Minoan eruption. Eyewitness accounts record that Tephra fell in Lima about 800 kilometers away and on a ship about 1,000 kilometers out to sea. Historical accounts also report that at least one meter fell north and west of the city of Arequipa. Today, one centimeter thick layers of Huaynaputina's Tephra can be found no farther than 200 kilometers northwest of the eruption, not 800 to 1,000 kilometers, and the deposits in the vicinity of Arequipa are only 10 centimeters thick at best, not one meter thick. These measurements indicate that Tephra in most of the distal ashfall area has now disappeared and that there has been a 90% reduction in the thickness of the original Tephra deposits in only 400 years. In another example, the Krakatoa eruption of 1883, with a VEI of 6.5, produced ash that fell on the island of Timor over 1,300 miles away in the Indian Ocean as far as 2,000 miles away and even on ships off the Horn of Africa, 3,700 miles away. Numerous eyewitness accounts describe the extensive amounts of ash that fell on the nearby islands of Java and Sumatra and in the waters around these islands, especially in the Sunda Straits. Yet ash from this eruption, whose atmospheric extent and effects are so well known, shows up little, if any, in deep-sea cores. In light of such modern analogues, it seems safe to say that the often-quoted figure of 50% reduction in present-day Santorini tephra layers from their original thickness is a minimal estimate, and that quite thin tephra layers, or even restricted finds of Theron glass, are remnants of much thicker deposits. It is now known that ice can play a key role in eruption clouds, particularly in clouds from sea-level volcanoes such as Santorini. 
As water vapor rises in the atmosphere, it freezes, and the resulting ice will surround fine particles of volcanic ash to form icy ash balls. Icy ash balls carried in an eruption cloud will either fall as hail, or if it is warm enough, will melt or evaporate before reaching the ground. These ice-slash-ash particles clump together and fall out at significant distances from the eruption. The 1992 eruptions of Spur Volcano, VEI-3, in Alaska produced secondary maxima ashfall areas 150 to 350 kilometers downwind of the volcano, while ancient ash deposits in the Great Plains of North America record secondary maxima an order of magnitude thicker than would be expected from modern ashfall studies, and in at least one case, occur 1,400 kilometers away from the original eruption. Along with ice, sulfur dioxide is also a major component of many eruption clouds. The sulfur dioxide may be released selectively before much of the ash, and once in the air it forms sulfuric acid, while fluorine and chlorine, also commonly present, form hydrofluoric and hydrochloric acids, respectively. These acid aerosols are adsorbed onto the surfaces of the erupted fine ash particles or scavenged by ice. Given the high amounts of chlorine and especially sulfur in known deposits of Santorini Tephra and the estimated amount of sulfur released in the Minoan eruption, the eruption clouds, particularly those formed in the first stage of the eruption, when much of the sulfur was probably released, would have carried highly toxic concentrations of these acid aerosols. Adsorbed onto ice and ash surfaces, these aerosols would have fallen to earth with the ash and the ice-slash-hail-slash-rain. Since the smaller particles have more surface area in proportion to their volume, they will carry higher concentrations of these acids and also be carried farthest. As volcanic hazards expert Richard Blong states, Scavenging of eruption clouds by rainfall may occur at a variety of times and distances from the vent at distances of hundreds of kilometers. Similarly, the concentration of fluorine and other potentially toxic substances on smaller tephra grains raises the possibility of adverse hazards at distances quite remote from the erupting volcano. Effects of Eruption Clouds and Tephra Fall most of these ashborne acids will cause blisters and burns if they come into contact with the skin and lips, particularly if the skin is wet, as in a rainstorm. They will also cause severe eye irritations. Fluorine poisoning will cause lesions in the nose and mouth and on the legs and cause hair to fall out. Breathing hydrofluoric acid will corrode mucous membranes in the lungs, and the tephra itself will coat these same mucous membranes when people or animals breathe it. The eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980 caused a two- to three-fold increase in acute asthma and bronchitis cases in Eastern Washington Hospital emergency rooms in the days after the eruption and for the following month. Cattle, horses, sheep, and goats that breathed in volcanic ash during the eruption of Paracutin in Mexico in 1945 died months later from the effects of ash mucus coatings in their lungs. Animals such as sheep that eat vegetation close to the ground are more affected than those that graze at higher levels. Reindeer, another close grazing animal, have been affected by as little as 25 millimeters of tephrafall. 
Fish, too, will be affected by tephra fall, particularly if it is accompanied by acid rain. Freshwater fish are killed by as little as 30 millimeters of tephra fall if it is highly acid, a pH of less than 5. In the eruption of Mount Spur in Alaska in 1953, 3 to 6 millimeters of tephra dropped the pH of the public water supply of Anchorage to 4.5 for a few hours and caused a great deal of turbidity. Hundreds of dead fish were found in areas that received only 10 millimeters of tephra from the 1979 eruption of Karkar Volcano in Papua New Guinea. Plants will be affected by the weight of the tephra and even more by acid burns, particularly if the acid comes with rainwater. Leaves will turn brown, wilt, and fall off. Volcanic dust coated with a film of hydrochloric acid burned plants around Mayan Volcano in the Philippines in 1928. Of the cereal grains, wheat and barley are the most sensitive to this kind of damage. Acid rains and gases killed vegetation 480 kilometers from Katmai Navarokta Volcano in Alaska when it erupted in 1912, and areas with less tephra fall were affected more severely than those with a larger ash fall. The effects of eruptions and tephra fall on people are no less profound. Many historical accounts testify to the enormous effect of eruptions and ash falls, and modern psychological studies show widespread mental health problems after eruptions, little different from those that follow other natural disasters. The first reaction to imminent disaster is usually denial, not believing that the disaster will happen. Before the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980, the news media gave much space to an 83-year-old man named Harry Truman, who refused to leave the danger zone and was killed in the eruption. Other people may experience anxiety that turns to terror when disaster strikes. At this point, action is usually taken to reduce losses. Often, this action is religious. The Vale of St. Agatha was used by the people of Cantania to protect their city from eruptions of Mount Etna in 252, 1408, 1444, and 1669. When the Paracutin volcano in Mexico formed in 1943, the local villagers believed that a sacred image in the church of San Juan Panangaracotiro would save their village to no avail. In groups with a tradition of human sacrifice, such as some in Meso and South America, infants, children, or young girls were sacrificed to volcanoes. At Huaynaputina, the nicest young girls, the best animals, and the prettiest flowers were sacrificed to the volcano. Other groups practiced animal sacrifice. During the time of darkness caused by the mid-17th century Long Island eruption, the tribes of Highland New Guinea sacrificed pigs. The third day of darkness was like the first two, and now the people decided they must do something to make it light again. They killed a white-skinned pig. Another group killed a black dog and a black pig to make it light again. One common urge during a natural disaster is to flee. More sedentary people would be less inclined to flee than those such as hunters and gatherers or the nomadic pastoralists in the Wadi Tumilat, who are less sedentary. Northern Athapaskan hunters, living in a marginal existence hunting and fishing in the cold northern forests of British Columbia and the Yukon Territory in Canada, had little choice but to flee the onset of the White River volcanic eruption 1,300 years ago, 
an action that led to their permanent migration to the American Southwest, where their descendants became the Navajo and Apache. Natives of central and western El Salvador 2,000 years ago were also forced to migrate after the eruption of Ilopongo. Studies of natural disasters since the 1950s have shown that after a disaster, people may experience disaster syndrome and be completely docile, while some may experience counter-disaster syndrome, exhibiting a euphoric identification with the community, physical overexertion and low efficiency, with an uncritical acceptance of leaders who emerge during the rescue. The effects may last from a few hours to many days. Effects of the Minoan Eruption The physical and psychological suffering of the peoples of the Aegean who experienced the Minoan Eruption must have been considerable. Various gods were undoubtedly invoked to rescue people from this bizarre series of catastrophes. In part of the Greek poet Hesiod's circa 700 BCE poem, The Theogony, The Birth of the Gods, there is a battle between the gods of Olympus and their enemies, the Titans, that is clearly a recounting of the Santorini eruption, though no specific human suffering is recounted. In the Hittite myth of Ulikumi, the gods sever what is arguably the ash pillar produced by the Minoan eruption from the shoulder of the being who supports the world, thus saving it. In mainland Greece, the goddess Athena is credited with saving the Acropolis of Athens from the effects of a tsunami that may have been generated by the eruption. In the Egyptian delta, Seth, god of thunder and storms, would have been called upon by the Hyksos in the face of such a disaster. An incantation found in an Egyptian medical papyrus dated to the reign of Amenophis I at about 1550 BCE refers to Seth having banned the Mediterranean Sea. Avaris was about 28 kilometers from the sea at the time, and a tsunami could not have reached that far. However, tsunami waves could have briefly caused some higher water levels in canals and river branches that fed in from the sea. Archaeological finds at Avaris include inscriptions dedicated to Seth by a later Hyksos ruler, Apophis, while a later Egyptian text states that Apophis made Seth his lord and did not serve any other god in the entire land except Seth, that he built a temple to Seth and made daily sacrifice to him. The Hyksos must have credited the god Seth with something extraordinary to have given him such devotion. Perhaps another group of western Semites living in the northeastern Delta region, say in the Wadi Tumilat, likewise credited their god with some extraordinary acts at the time of the Santorini eruption. Chapter 4 The Plagues, the Exodus, and Historical Reality the account of the Ten Plagues and the Exodus from Egypt has fascinated both scholars and ordinary people for centuries. In fact, plague is a bit of a misnomer, since most of these events can be better described as signs and wonders. Were they real, or were they the products of literary composition centuries after the date of the Exodus? Let us look first at the scholarly opinion on the plagues, then at the way oral historians would interpret them, and then with the geological information on the Minoan eruption and its effects, and the historical-slash-archaeological material from the previous two chapters, go on to see how well the stories of the plagues in Exodus chapters 7 through 10 
fit what we think happened in the northeastern Egyptian delta following the eruption of the Santorini volcano. Scholarly opinion, orally transmitted traditions, and the plagues. Most modern scholars adhere to some variety of the documentary or J, E, D, and P hypothesis, which holds that the books of Genesis through Numbers contain three source documents, J, or the Yahwist, reflecting the monarchy of the kingdom of Judah in the 9th century BCE, E, the Eloist, stemming from a northern Israelite kingdom source in the 8th century BCE, and P, a post-exilic, 6th or 5th century BCE or later, priestly source, which added to these first two. The last source document was D, or Deuteronomy through 2nd Kings, which came from the 7th century BCE court of the Judean king Josiah. A later editor or redactor, R, or several of them, joined all these sources together into their present form. Scholars differ, however, on which plagues go with which documentary hypothesis source. One, John Van Cedars, assigns all the plagues either to the Yahwist, J, or to the priestly, P, source. He identifies as belonging to the Yahwist, one, the Nile turned to blood, two, frogs, three, flies. This word is translated as insects or gadflies by other authors. Four, the pestilence of the livestock, five, hail, six, locusts, seven, the death of the firstborn. The other plagues he ascribes to the P-source. Van Cedars considers that the whole J-plague narrative is so consistent in its pattern and so uniform in its outlook that it must be the literary artistry of a single author, the Yaoist. An earlier 20th century scholar, Martin Noth, similarly assigned the plagues and the J and P-sources, but came to a vastly different conclusion. The set of plague stories is not a well-considered literary product, but is derived from living oral tradition. Other scholars, such as George Forer and Brevard Childs, attributed the plagues to J, E, the Eloist, and P. In a different vein, Moshe Greenberg looked at the symmetry in the narrative unit and saw three sets of three plague episodes each, ending with the plague of darkness but not including the deaths of the firstborn. Dennis McCarthy found a chiastic, one of the plot types that signals orality, structure to the plagues, with what he called the last plague, the darkness, corresponding to what he designated as the first, the rod of Moses changing into a serpent. George Coates discovered the chiastic structure only in his recreation of the series of J plagues. With all these differences of opinion, it is no wonder Roland DeVoe wrote that an examination of the first nine plagues without taking the tenth into account reveals a very careful literary composition, which, in fact, defies analysis by the methods of literary criticism. However you count them, or whichever ones you include, the first nine plagues, while having a definite pattern and repeated motifs, especially Pharaoh's hardened heart, also contain logical inconsistencies and repetitions. If all the water was changed to blood by Aaron's rod, how could there be water left for the Egyptian magicians to do the same thing? Did the blood or the dead fish poison the water? The cattle that died by pestilence in the fifth plague were resurrected to die of boils in the sixth plague, 
and re-resurrected to die once more by hail in the seventh plague? Are the biting mosquitoes, or gnats or lice, in the third plague the same as the flies or gadflies in the fourth plague? Certainly the moraine of the cattle in the fifth plague is nearly duplicated by the afflictions of cattle and people in the sixth. But logical inconsistencies and duplications are exactly what oral historians would expect to find within stories that have been transmitted orally for great lengths of time, particularly when they have been passed down through different groups and then combined. The common oral characteristic of exaggeration, sharpening, accounts for many of the most obvious inconsistencies. All the cattle, all the crops, all of Egypt. The various anachronisms in the stories are also to be expected in orally transmitted tradition. The plagues compared to the Minoan eruption of Santorini. Now, to set the scene for our comparison. It is 1628 BCE. The Hyksos, Canaanites from southwestern Asia, rule the Delta region and other parts of the Nile Valley. Their ruler calls himself a ruler of foreign lands. He does not use the name Pharaoh. Avaris, in its D3 stratum, is a populous city, the Hyksos capital. Other settlements of western Semites are found farther south and southeast, at Tel el-Yehudia and at the Wadi Tumilat. In the Wadi Tumilat, the main settlements are at Tel el-Ratabah and Tel el-Maskuda. There are smaller hamlets in the Wadi as well. Although also Western Semites, the people of the Wadi Tumilat, may be a distinct social or political subgroup. They have been living in the Wadi for several generations, long enough to absorb some of the Egyptian pottery styles and to develop their own styles from what were originally Syro-Canaanite pottery types. They are pastoralists who spend the hot summer months with their flocks around the Wadi's ponds and wells. The Wadi's towns and hamlets are their winter homes. They plant cereal crops in November, six weeks after planting starts in the south of Egypt, and tend to the donkey caravanners who come through the Wadi in the winter months. It is now the very end of January, or the beginning of February, and the people are still in their winter homes. Soon they will start their barley harvest. Their emmer wheat is still growing and will be harvested at the end of March or in early April. About this time, the people of the Delta may have heard a rumbling noise, much like thunder. They were too far from Santorini to see the Plinian eruption column, which reached an estimated 36 to 38 kilometers in height. Because of the Earth's curvature, the column would have had to have been nearly 50 kilometers high to have been seen in the Egyptian delta. Perhaps some of the people in the delta noticed a clattering or shattering of some of their pottery as a wave of air seemed to rush past. They probably thought it must be Seth slash Baal, their storm god, and that a winter storm was approaching from the northwest, as such storms have always regularly done. According to the Exodus account, the first plague, or sign, occurred when all the water of the Nile, its tributaries, its canals, and the water in all the ponds, was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the Nile reeked. Tsunamis from the second phase of the eruption would have reached the Egyptian delta in less than an hour, with wave heights of 7 to 12 meters. 
Normal waves striking northeastern Egypt range in height from 0.40 to 0.75 meters in summer to 1.5 to 3 meters during the winter storms. The Santorini tsunamis then would have been three to four times higher than the highest waves usually experienced on the Egyptian coast, and considering the delta's flat topography, probably caused extensive flooding of the coastal plain as the waves were channeled up near shore channels and canals, possibly affecting some of the freshwater lakes and ponds as well. Many of the normal drinking water sources would have become contaminated, and the oxygen content of the water would be disturbed by the increased turbidity. This would have been enough to kill a good many of the freshwater fish. Was the water turned to a blood-red color? Or is this merely a common folktale motif? The Sumerian goddess Inanna, for example, sent a series of plagues on people to punish a human who raped her. The first of her plagues was the turning of all water to blood, so that people could not drink. But an Egyptian text, possibly dated to the Hyksos time period, the Admonitions of Ippur, contains the lines, Lo, the river is blood. As one drinks of it, one shrinks from people and thirsts for water. Toxic dinoflagellates are the little one-celled organisms that cause the deadly algal blooms or red tides along coasts around the world. In the Mediterranean, these dinoflagellates are found in the sea off the deltas of the major rivers, such as the Nile, carried in the tidal current that flows from west to east just offshore. They grow best in tropical and subtropical seas and in the rainy season, which, in the Mediterranean, is winter. Recent research has also shown that iron from wind-borne iron oxide-bearing dust that falls into an ocean or sea can be taken up eaten by a tiny organism called trichodesmium, which then excretes great amounts of dissolved organic nitrogen into the ocean water. This nitrogen in turn spurs massive growth of toxic dinoflagellates and results in a red tide two to three months after the original dustfall. The precursor ashfall occurring a few months before the main Minoan eruption did have a significant iron oxide content, and sulfuric acid from sulfate on the surfaces of the ash particles would have caused the iron to become soluble enough in the seawater for the trachodesmium to use. Carried by winds to the salt waters off the delta, the Santorini dust would have caused a red algal bloom there by the time of the main eruption. Because tsunamis extend through the entire water column to the sea floor, when they reached the seawaters off the delta, they would have carried any toxic bloom or red tide ashore. The toxins would have killed a good many fish, and any that survived would be subject to the acid rains and tephra fall that came later. The tephra itself, iron-rich and rose-colored, would also have caused the waters to redden when it was washed into the river by those same rains. According to Exodus chapter 7, verse 25, seven days passed before the onset of the next plague the swarming of the frogs onto the land. Time in oral traditions is often exaggerated, as it was here. This week may signal the interval between the arrival of the tsunami and the onset of the next series of disasters. The amphibian invasion would in fact have happened rather soon after the contamination of freshwater habitats from the debris and flooding caused by the tsunamis, 
followed by a massive die-off when the frogs stayed away from the water for too long. Given the estimated range of wind speeds mentioned in the previous chapter, the first ash from the Plinian eruption would have reached the delta in 8 to 32 hours, well after the noise of the eruption, the atmospheric shockwave, and the tsunami had come ashore. Only the finest ash particles would have been carried this far. In Exodus, the die-off of the frogs was followed by the plague of the gnats, or some other small biting insect. The gnats were produced when Aaron, Moses' brother, struck the dust of the ground with his staff or rod, and the dust became gnats that landed on man and beast. One common type of error, especially in group remembrance, is implicational, when people try to make sense of the story. Dust usually comes from the ground, and so it does in the present version of the story, when becoming transformed into gnats, it was the only way to make sense of biting dust. Originally, though, the biting dust came from the air in the first winds that carried fine ash from the initial stages of the Plinian eruption cloud to the delta. That it was not accompanied by water in some form suggests that at this stage, the water in the eruption cloud was evaporating before it reached the ground. This first light ash ball was not dense enough to produce darkness. It was only dense enough to be perceived as dust, an acid-bearing dust, irritating the skin of man and beast, like gnats or lice or mosquitoes biting. In time, the modifier like would be dropped from the oral tradition, as modifiers are in the leveling process, and the dust was transformed into small biting insects. This acid dust was followed by swarms of insects coming into the houses of the people, except in the land of Goshen. Insects are particularly vulnerable to tephra fall, losing their surface wax layer and becoming dehydrated. Houseflies, yellow jacket wasps, and various sorts of bees lost much of their body moisture and died in the hours following the Mount St. Helens Tephra Fall in May 1980. Ash also blocked their tracheal tubes and hindered their ability to fly. Insects in the Nile Delta would have made some attempt to seek shelter when the Tephra Fall began, much as birds sought shelter in the houses of New Guineans during the mid-17th century Long Island Tephra Fall. An alternative possibility is that the flies were simply an embellished version of the gnats, which grew bigger through retelling and eventually, when incorporated into a general version of the narrative, were included as a separate plague. That the land of Goshen, that is, the Wadi Tumilat, was said to have been free of insect swarms, may have been a later theological and nationalistic insertion. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people live, that you may know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. As later generations tried to make sense of these stories, it would only have seemed right that the Egyptians, but not the Israelites, were affected by these and subsequent plagues. According to Exodus chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, God then sent a pestilence onto the livestock in the field. The asses, the camels, an anachronism, Camels came centuries later, the oxen and the sheep, but not those of the Israelites. This pestilence would have been caused by the animals breathing the acidic dust as they stood in the fields. The people, presumably, would have fled inside. Or by ingesting the fallen ash while browsing on near-ground vegetation, 
just as the reindeer were affected by the eruptions of Unimac, 1825, and Katmai, 1912, volcanoes in Alaska. The next wonder involved the tossing of furnace soot by Moses and Aaron into the air. As soon as the soot was tossed heavenward, it became boil blisters on the skins of humans and animals. The Hebrew word used is related to the Ugarit word burn. This again describes the association of airborne dust with irritations of the skin and suggests, starting with the plague of gnats and going on to the pestilence of the animals and that of blisters and skin irritations, a continuous, ever-worsening fall of ash on the northeastern delta. As the various manifestations and worsening effects of the ash fall became drawn out and stylized in later retelling, these manifestations became discrete events or plagues. This is also true of the next three plagues. After the skin irritations came the seventh plague, a violent hailstorm with thunder and fire. The Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire came down on the earth. There was hail with fire flashing continually in the midst of it, such heavy hail as had never fallen on the land of Egypt. The hail ruined many of the crops and was also associated with a heavy rainstorm. Meteorological turbulence or thunderstorms will enhance aggregation of particles in an eruption cloud and so precipitate a secondary maxima ashfall at great distances from an eruption. Turbulence from a cyclonic storm could easily have caused the icy ashfalls from the electrically charged Santorini eruption cloud to aggregate and fall to earth over the delta, to be perceived as hail shot through with lightning, followed by rain from the storm itself. After the hail, fire, and rain came what would normally be an ordinary occurrence, a locust plague. Locusts are expected in the delta in the late winter or early spring. In any case, the Exodus account says that God reversed an exceedingly strong sea wind, which blew the locusts into the Sea of Reeds. This accurately describes the counterclockwise rotation of winds on the southern edge of a cyclonic winter storm system coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. Next came the ninth plague of darkness which lasted for three days in Egypt, except in the land of Goshen. The ash cloud appears to have reached its greatest density and extent at this point, covering the Wadi Tumilat along with the rest of the northeastern delta. The darkness would have occurred with or immediately after the hail, but the recounting of it, plus the story of the locusts, would have been drawn out in oral recitation. How long the darkness lasted is an open question. Three days was the length most often attributed to the New Guinea time of darkness, but in both instances it seems to have been an exaggeration caused by fear and disorientation. Richard Blong has calculated that each centimeter of uncompacted tephra on the ground will produce an average of 4.8 hours of darkness, but recorded values vary considerably. By now, all the people of the northeastern Nile Delta would have been extremely frightened. They were in the middle of a natural disaster, the like of which they had never seen before. Applying the general theory of human behavioral adjustments to natural disasters developed by Ian Burton and his co-workers, the people would have already passed the first threshold, that of conscious awareness of the disaster, and also the second, in which active loss reduction measures are undertaken such as staying indoors and sheltering their livestock. 
This is when religious measures are usually undertaken. According to the Exodus account, the Egyptian magicians were called on to duplicate the water-turned blood, the dead fish, and the frogs. But they failed to duplicate the plague of gnats and leave the story when they become covered with boils in the sixth plague. In reality, the Hyksos king would have attempted loss reduction by demanding that his magicians, or his priests, call upon some divinity to end the calamities, not duplicate them. Moses and Aaron had nothing to do with these measures, but were inserted into the story at a later date. The ruler, who was ultimately responsible for the well-being of his people and harmony with the gods, had to do something, or he would probably be supplanted. A later Hyksos ruler, Apophis, may have been a usurper. The Hyksos veneration of the god Seth suggests that they directed their sacrifices to him, probably by sacrificing donkeys, Seth's animal, much as the New Guineans sacrificed their pigs, the incantation found in the Egyptian medical papyrus mentioned in the previous chapter suggests that the people believed Seth came to their aid. While the Hyksos ruler and his priests were sacrificing to Seth, some of the ordinary people of Avaris would have passed the third disaster threshold, that of intolerance. Radical action needed to be taken. Such radical action involves in situ fundamental adaptive changes or, in extreme cases, where the environmental changes are beyond the human technological capacity to cope, migration occurs. In short, people flee, either temporarily or permanently. No doubt a good many of the people of Avaris feared death if they stayed in their city where the burning rain, the hail, the tephra cloud, and its darkness hung over them. Some would have fled south to the Wadi Tumilat. The Two Exoduses, Flight and Expulsion At this point we encounter a set of inconsistencies in the Exodus story that goes to the very heart of the narrative. This problem is most clearly set out by Roland DeVoe. There are in fact two distinct presentations of the Exodus story, the Exodus Flight and the Exodus Expulsion. These two stories were joined together orally centuries before the tradition came to be written down, merged together at a very early stage, and had a deep influence on each other. Scarcely anything remains of the older version of the story, the one that includes Moses. Although Moses is present in the younger story, he is a later insertion. Instead, Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, and verses 5 through 19 clearly indicates that in the younger story the representatives or elders of the Israelites, not Moses and Aaron, do the negotiating with Pharaoh, a term that did not come into use until Egypt's 18th dynasty. Here the elders ask permission to go on a three days' journey into the wilderness to make slaughter offering to the God of the Hebrews. Exodus chapter 7 verse 16 and chapter 8 verse 8 and 25 through 28 also mention this offering while Exodus chapter 10 verse 9 mentions having a feast for the Lord. These passages make it clear that this sacrifice is already an established custom among the Israelites. In the younger story, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go and breaks off negotiations in Exodus chapter 10 verse 28. Closely linked to these negotiations is Exodus chapter 8 verse 26, which contains a time marker. 
Moses, actually the elders or representatives of Israel, tells Pharaoh that the sacrifices they offer to God would be offensive, an abomination to the Egyptians, and that the Egyptians might stone them for it. This passage indicates a post-Hyksos date when the native Egyptians were once again rulers of all Egypt, for only native Egyptians would be offended by mass slaughter sacrifices of sheep or rams sacred to the Egyptian god Amun-Re. Other Semites, like the Israelites themselves, had a long religious tradition of sheep and goat sacrifice, as the archaeological remains from Avaris and many other sites confirm. This post-Hyksos version is linked with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, and to the Exodus expulsion, Pharaoh drives the Israelites out. It will be discussed in a later chapter of this book. The older story, the Exodus flight, is the one linked to the first nine plagues. One fragment referring to this Exodus is preserved in Exodus chapter 14, verse 5a. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, a larger fragment is found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people of Israel to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, We shall all be dead. This verse makes a great deal of sense if the Egyptians were in fact panicked Avarans fleeing south to the Wadi Tumilat. The people of the Wadi probably did not need much urging to flee for their own lives, as recounted in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, for they were frightened by the unknown darkness and the other catastrophes they were experiencing. The Exodus and the Unleavened Bread This crucial narrative information in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, is followed by the story of the matzo in Exodus chapter 12, verse 34. Dough has been put in kneading bowls to ferment naturally. When the Israelites flee, they wrap up their kneading bowls and carry them on their shoulders. But the dough has not had time to acquire wild yeast from the air and is baked into unleavened bread, matzo. As Greta Hort observed, it is the making and eating of the matzo that actually commemorates the exodus from Egypt. It has long been suggested that the eating of the matzo had its origin in the ancient Canaanite feast of the unleavened bread, a harvest festival. However, the month of Aviv, March, April, is not a time of harvest in Canaan, nor does the Hebrew feast of unleavened bread reflect agricultural activity. The term kneading bowls in Exodus chapter 12 verse 34 is sometimes translated as kneading troughs. But kneading bowls perfectly describes many of the broad, shallow, walk-like platter bowls found at Tel El Mascuta. Although kneading dough in such a vessel would not work very well on a flat surface, putting the platter bowl in a scooped-out depression in the sand or earth to anchor it and kneading on one's knees works quite well. I experimented with a similar-shaped platter. The bowl shape has one great advantage over a flat trough. The precious flour, ground so laboriously by hand, doesn't escape and thus isn't wasted. Carried in a platter bowl within a cloak hitched across the shoulder, on the back really, the dough would stay put. In a trough, it would fall out. The method of bread-making suggested by Exodus chapter 12, verse 34, is quite unlike that used by the ancient Egyptians. As early as 2400 BCE, Egyptians were producing cone-shaped leavened bread from barley and emmer wheat, 
allowing the dough to ferment in large vats and kneading it with their feet in vats or large wooden troughs. Later, bread was produced in a variety of shapes, from flat pita-like to rolled loaves of barley to high cone forms. The Egyptians did not have high-gluten bread wheat until the second half of the first millennium BCE, but had developed almost pure domestic bread yeast by 1500 to 1450 BCE, not too long before large centralized bakeries appeared. Foreign workers or slaves living in Egyptian towns, especially in the New Kingdom, would not have made their own bread, but rather would have had their bread issued to them as rations. But autonomous groups of Semites living in the Delta during the Hyksos era would probably have made their bread as described in Exodus 12. Flight from the Wadi A panicked horde, the people of the Wadi and the Avaran refugees fled eastward past Sukkoth, Tel el Maskuta and its environs, and then out the eastern end of the Wadi. The Avarans who accompanied the Israelites were the mixed multitude of Exodus chapter 12 verse 38. The term is better translated as riffraff. I wonder if it originally conveyed the idea of refugees. It was these people who carried the vivid testimony of what had happened in Avaris, a set of memories that became fused with those of the people in the Wadi Tumilat into the standard version of the signs and wonders that made its way into Israelite tradition as the first nine Exodus plagues. The route of travel mentioned in Exodus chapter 13 verse 20 and Numbers chapter 33 verse 6, Sukkoth to Etham, belongs to this original Exodus. The sequence that includes turning back to Pi-Hahirath and camping by Baal-Zephon and before Migdal, Numbers chapter 33 verses 7b through 8a, refers to the later Exodus expulsion. In this first Exodus, after leaving Sukkoth, the people journeyed to Etham. They set out from Etham, passed through the sea into the wilderness, went a three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, and camped at Marah. Once outside of the Wadi, the people fled south around the western edge of what is now Lake Timsa toward the Bitter Lakes. Both Lake Timsa and the Bitter Lakes were probably included in the Egyptian term Kumwir, and it is possible that an ancient frontier canal, at least partially, connected them. South of Lake Timsa, there are two ridges that could have allowed the people of the Wadi to have crossed over to the Sinai Peninsula. One connects the Great and Little Bitter Lakes, while the second occurs about 12 kilometers south of the present town of Suez, in what is now the northernmost extension of the Gulf of Suez. Under the right conditions, notably after the steady blowing of a strong wind for several hours, either of these ridges would have been exposed to the air. Dryshod, the people of the Wadi and the Avaran refugees and their animals, would have crossed into the Sinai Peninsula. Now that the disaster was past, they were ripe for the counter-disaster syndrome mentioned in the previous chapter. For a short time at least, they gave their uncritical acceptance to the leader who had emerged during the crisis, a leader who was now demanding that they journey through the wilderness to a mountain where he had spoken to God. His name was Moses. Chapter 5 Moses and the Mountain of God 
Who was Moses? Without any doubt, he is the key human figure in the Exodus story. Without him, there would be no Exodus, no journey to the Holy Mountain, no sojourn in the wilderness, and no return of the people of Israel to Canaan. The first five books of the Bible are traditionally attributed to him, and the Ten Commandments given to him on the mountain of God are arguably the fundamental religious, legal, and ethical guidelines for Western civilization. One would think that there is nothing new to be said about him, but by putting Moses into the historical context of the Hyksos occupation of Egypt, new insights about this seminal individual appear. Moses and the Family of Levi in Egypt Moses is an Egyptian name, or at least the second half of one. It means, the god, blank, is born, and was usually given to a child who was born on the birthday of a particular god. The account in Exodus, chapter 2, verse 10, gives a Hebrew meaning to the name, claiming it means, to draw out. The term Hebrew, in Exodus, chapter 1, verses 15 to 22, is related to the term Hebiru, or Apiru, which is found in hundreds of Near Eastern texts in the second millennium BCE. From these texts, we know that Hebiru were bands of uprooted people, migrants, usually followers of a prominent leader who moved into a new area and lived as foreigners or aliens under the local ruler. These people often had a military role. For example, the 18th century BCE Mari texts Mari is in northern Mesopotamia, describe a Habiru leader and his troops. The term Habiru aptly describes Jacob and his familial band migrating to Egypt from north-central Canaan during a time of famine, as Abraham had in an earlier time. One famine during the reign of 13th dynasty king Sobekhaptep III, 1749-1742 BCE, may have brought numbers of Asiatics to Egypt, with Memphis serving as a clearinghouse for them. A list of domestic servants or slaves from the reign of Sobekhaptep III includes at least 48 names, out of an original 95, of northwestern Semitic origin. One is a close approximation of the name of the midwife in Exodus, chapter 1, verse 15, Shipra. A fragment from the late 3rd or early 2nd century BCE Hellenistic writer Arapanus, who wrote a work called On the Jews, says that Canephorus, who was king over the regions beyond, south of, Memphis, married Meris, a daughter of a northern Egyptian king named Palmenothes, there being many kings of Egypt at that time. Because she was barren, Meris adopted a child of the Jews and named it Moses. Artipanus includes a number of folk traditions that clearly have been passed down orally for some time, but this particular story is interesting because it does not agree with the biblical account of Moses' adoption in Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, where the Egyptian princess is referred to as Pharaoh's daughter. In contrast to the biblical tradition, Arapanus' tradition remembered Maris's Egyptian connection, wife of the Pharaoh Caneferus, and the Egyptian names. There's also no mention of a baby in a basket retrieved from the reeds. These are indications that Arapanus is recounting an Egyptian tradition independent of the biblical account. The name of the Egyptian ruler in Arapanus's story, Caneferis, is Caneferi Sobekhoptep IV, circa 1732 1720 BCE. Egyptians generally knew their rulers by their prenomens, such as Caneferi, 
not Sobekhoptep. Kanaferi Sobekhoptep IV's capital was just north of Memphis, and at this time independent rulers were establishing, or had established themselves, both to the north, in the Delta, and to the south, in Thebes and in Nubia. He also had more than one wife. Kanaferi Sobekhoptep IV was a contemporary of the beginning rulers of the Asiatic 14th dynasty in Avaris, Nehesi and his father, see Chapter 2. A dynastic match with Nehesi's sister or daughter would have been a sound political move by an Egyptian ruler in Memphis. I think the name Palmanothis might be a garbled form of Ta-Moses, P-T-A-H, Moses. The god Ta is born. Ta was the patron god of Memphis, and in Middle Kingdom times many Egyptian names for Asiatics were compounded with Ta. Rather than being the name of Maris's father, Palmanotis, or Ta-Moses, was more likely the name of the son Maris adopted, since there is only enough space on the Turin king list for a very short name for Nancy's father, not a long one, such as Palmanothus or Ta-Moses. A biblical story that probably relates to this dynastic alliance is found in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, through chapter 13, verse 1 tells how Abraham and his wife Sarah go to Egypt in a time of famine. In verses 14 through 16, Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's house. Variants of this story appear in Genesis 20, where the king who takes in Sarah is Abimelech, king of Gerar. And Genesis 26, where instead of Abraham, it is Isaac going to Gerar in another time of famine. The woman is Rebekah, his wife and ostensible sister, and the king is Abimelech, king of the Philistines. This story has obviously become duplicated and altered through time, but at its core is an account of nomads who have gone somewhere to seek relief from famine, and of a sister or wife being taken into the harem of a king when they arrive. Rather than being from the time of Abraham or Isaac, I think this story relates to the time of Jacob and his son Levi and their family migrating to Egypt because of a famine in Canaan, as recounted in Genesis 45. Egyptian names appear in the family of Levi, Asir, son of Korah, Levi's grandson, Moses, son of Amram, another of Levi's grandsons, Merari, Levi's youngest son, who in turn also had a son Moses, and Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. Merari, like Meris, is a common Middle Kingdom name meaning beloved. The name of Aaron's sister Miriam also features beloved in this case, beloved of Yahweh. Asir is Osiris in Egyptian. Phineas is P-NHSY or Hai Nehesi, a late Egyptian form of Nehesi, the Nubian. This name is also found as a place name in the delta near Daphne, Tel Defena, the place of those of the Asiatic Pi Nehesi. Several scholars believe this late Egyptian place name refers back to the Asiatic 14th dynasty king, Nehesi. Nehesi is the only individual known as both an Asiatic and a Nubian. Genealogies in the Hebrew Bible are important because they express all sorts of social, political, and religious relationships, and often change in various versions. The genealogy of Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 16, 18, and 20 and Numbers, chapter 26, verse 59, 
states that Amram, son of Kohath, married his aunt, Jochebed, the daughter of Levi. This most likely represents the fusion of two genealogies. If we assume that Jochebed was one of the very first of Levi's children, born, say, about 1740 BCE, she could have gone with the 14th dynasty princess Maris to the harem of Kanafere Sobekhoptep IV, and therein, about 1725 to 1720 BCE, had a son named Tahmoses, who was adopted by Maris. Maris would not have been permitted to adopt just any child, so this infant was almost certainly Kanafere Sobekhoptep's son, in the same way that Hagar had a son, Ishmael, for Abraham. Such an adoption would have cemented the alliance between the 13th and 14th dynasties, and brought honor to both the family of Nehesi and that of Levi. Genesis chapter 12, verse 16 says, And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. The original story probably had the name Levi rather than Abram. The biblical Levites gave their children names to commemorate this honor, names that parallel some of those in the story of Artapanus. In later centuries, when Jacobed's original role became incompatible with Israelite tribal or nationalistic feelings, the story of the baby in the basket was adapted from the birth tale of Sargon the Great of Akkad in Mesopotamia. In this tale, Sargon, king of Akkad in the second half of the third millennium BCE, was the son of a high priestess. Since priestesses were not supposed to have children— his mother put her infant son in a woven basket, caulked with pitch, and cast it onto the river. The basket and baby were found by Aki, a water drawer. Aki means, I drew out, an identical meaning to that for the name Moses given in Exodus chapter 2 verse 10. The accretion of the Sargon birth story onto the story of Jochebed's son Moses deprived the original story i.e. that of a Levite woman in an Egyptian royal harem having a son, of its true meaning and context, and consequently only a displaced fragment survived in the Genesis stories of Sarah and Rebecca. Here is a good example of how oral traditions are reinterpreted and modified as the needs and aspirations of a people change through time. The Moses adoption story is clearly too early for the biblical Moses son of Amram, the leader of the people from the Wadi Tumilat, in the later 17th century BCE. This is what oral historians call a descending anachronism, when an event is moved from an earlier to a later epoch. Such anachronisms occur when founders or culture heroes, such as the biblical Moses, are credited in oral tradition for events or accomplishments of earlier figures. The Moses of the Exodus would then have been a relative, as well as namesake, of the adopted royal Moses. Good reasons for him to be associated with the latter in later oral tradition. An archaeological indication of the Moses adoption story? In one of the unfazed tombs at Tel El Mascuda, a young woman, 17 to 30 years of age, and a child, about 6.5 to 8 years of age, were buried with grave goods that included a Kanafere Sobekhoptep IV scarab. This tomb had a number of relatively rich grave offerings, a silver choker necklace, a number of silver and bronze earrings and toggle pins, amulets of faience and steatite with the child. Faience is a ceramic made of ground quartz. 
faience, carnelian, and amethyst beads, a necklace of amethyst, gold, and faience beads, three design scarabs, a steatite cylinder seal, and three cups, six juglets, and a ring stand, along with an offering of sheep or goat remains. There may originally have been many more valuables, for the tomb had been broken into in antiquity. Vaulted tombs were most common in the earlier occupation layers of Tel El Mascuda, and adults were not buried at the site in the later phases, two good reasons for placing this particular tomb early in the occupation sequence. It seems likely that Jacobed was returned to her people after her son Moses was weaned, and that she would have been given gifts such as these, including the king's scarab, as a reward for her contribution to the alliance between the 13th and 14th dynasties. These gifts would have signaled her own family's honor as well. Jacobed may well be the young woman in this tomb, perhaps dying in a later childbirth after marriage to one of her own people. The child buried with her may have been another offspring of hers. Advent of the Hyksos and Moses' Flight to Midian Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says, Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Leaving aside and escape from the land, and replacing Joseph with Jacob, this is an accurate description of the political picture in the Delta at the onset of Hyksos' rule. When the Hyksos, under Salatus, and his underkings took possession of the Delta, they gained control of large numbers of other Semites already living there, as evidence from the earlier strata at Tel el-Daba and the other Delta sites clearly shows. The early Hyksos may have viewed these other Semitic peoples as potential threats who could join together and take control of the area for themselves or form an alliance with the native Egyptian ruler and likewise displace the Hyksos. With the coming of the 15th Hyksos dynasty to the Delta, the people of the Wadi Tumilat would have been made to acknowledge Salatis slash Sheshi as their ruler and co-opted into taking care of the incoming trade caravans at the cafeteria-style facilities found in the later levels of Tel El Mascuda. See Chapter 2. These facilities were probably the flesh pots in the land of Egypt, referred to in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. Also, a Sheshi scarab was found in one of the Wadi's later tombs. But there was tension between the people of the Wadi and their Hyksos overlords. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, contains the story that Moses, while visiting the enslaved Hebrews, killed an Egyptian who was beating one of his kinfolk. Other Hebrews soon knew of this act, and Pharaoh, when he heard of it, sought to have Moses killed. This story makes little sense if Moses were truly the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Surely he could have ordered the Egyptian to stop beating the man, but is quite understandable in the context of a Hyksos, Egyptian, official beating a man of the Wadi Tumilat and having one of this man's kinfolk, that is, Moses, defend his relative by killing the official. The Hyksos king would plausibly then attempt to have Moses killed. 
Because of this homicide, Moses had to flee into the desert, crossing the Sinai Peninsula and passing into the country of Midian. There he met a priest of Midian, married the priest's daughter, and remained for many years. One day Moses took his father-in-law's flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and then the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Moses had what scholars call a theophany, a meeting with God. Midian, Biblical and Modern The Biblical Midian is rather poorly defined, but it appears to be south and east of Canaan and east of the Sinai Peninsula. In the book of Genesis, Midian is said to be the son of Abraham by his concubine Keturah. Keturah means frankincense, a valuable aromatic which comes from the bark of trees that grow principally in southern Arabia. Midian's five sons, Ephah, Ephah, Hanuk, Abida, and Aldea, were actually desert oases in northwestern Arabia inhabited by individual tribal groups. Abida corresponds to Albad an oasis that became the second station on the Muslim pilgrim road from the Gulf of Aqaba to the Islamic holy cities. Ifa is probably Ruafa, near the north end of Harat al-Raha, in northwest Arabia. Since the Midnights were northern Arabian tribes but connected with the South Arabian frankincense, they were probably the donkey caravanners who brought the frankincense north. Later, in the Book of Judges, the Midianites had camels, Domestic camels appear at the end of the second millennium BCE and were described as coming from east of the Jordan River. What is known as Midian, or Midian, in modern times is an area of northwestern Arabia beginning east of the Gulf of Aqaba, the Midian Peninsula, and extending along the Red Sea to Al-Waj. The oasis of Al-Bad on the Midian Peninsula is usually thought to be the town of Midian, Greta Hort, however, meticulously traced the history of the name Midian and discovered several Midians. The most prominent of them was a well-known town near the Arabian coast, slightly north of about 26 degrees 45 minutes north latitude. As early as the first century of the Common Era, this more southerly Midian had a traditional connection with Moses. The modern town of Albad only acquired the Moses tradition after the 10th century, when the resident tribe lost the sight of the southerly Midian to another tribe. Midian, Plate Tectonics, and the Arabian Volcanoes Geologically, Midian is on the border of two tectonic plates, the African and the Arabian, and a subplate that constitutes the Sinai Peninsula. The Arabian plate has been rotating away from its African neighbor, for millions of years, with the area to the north of the Gulf of Aqaba as its hinge, this rotation has opened up the Red Sea, the Gulf of Suez, and most recently, the Gulf of Aqaba. It has also stretched the Earth's crust and thinned it, while hot material from the asthenosphere deep under the crust has pushed upward, creating a subterranean dome, the Afro-Arabian Dome, extending from Ethiopia in the south to the Dead Sea Rift in the north. The broad northern crest of this dome, the West Arabian Swell, runs north-south through northwestern Arabia. Along it are a series of cinder cones and fissures that have produced about 180,000 square kilometers of alkaline basalts 
the Arabian Harat volcanoes. These Arabian volcanoes are different from the Santorini volcano. Unlike the magma typically erupted in subduction zone volcanoes such as Santorini, the basaltic magma of the Arabian Harats is chemically less explosive than the Santorini Thera magma, so it often flows effusively out onto the Earth's surface as waves of hot black lava, transforming large stretches of northwestern Arabia into a vast black wasteland. Chemically, the lava is not unlike some of the lava that comes out of the volcanoes in Hawaii. Sometimes the lava forms cinder cones and craters from which come columns of smoke and fire. Other times, outpourings of lava are hurled into the air by their own expanding gases and form fire fountains. Visitors to Kilauea Volcano in Hawaii are familiar with the black lava-covered landscape of a basaltic volcano. They may even have seen a fire fountain or a picture of one. Fire fountains occur when the gas trapped in basaltic lava escapes into the air, taking droplets of the lava with it, just like liquid shot from a spray bottle. These jets of incandescent liquid rock can shoot hundreds of meters into the air, or they may reach only a meter or so in height. They often spray for hours, swelling, dying away, or surging up irregularly. This sort of fire show could certainly resemble a burning bush, especially from a distance, with real bushes silhouetted against the red glow of the molten lava shooting up into the air. Moses' Return to Egypt Sometime after his encounter with God at the burning bush, Moses learned that those who sought to have him killed had died, and he returned to Egypt. Once back, Moses wanted his people to depart from Egypt and worship at the mountain where he had encountered the God of their ancestor Abraham and then return to Canaan. Anthropologists would label his efforts a nativistic or revitalization movement. Sociologists commonly refer to it as a crisis cult. These movements have been common throughout human history and arise under conditions of hardship, such as political subordination or economic distress, or both. As one scholar noted, shattering change is often needed to bring them about. Revolution, war, natural catastrophes, economic dislocation, contact with a seemingly invincible and imperialist foreign people, these are common catalysts. The Hyksos overlords would have appeared as an invincible and imperialistic people to the pastoralists of the Wadi Tumilat. What often happens is that someone in the subordinate or distressed group has a personality-transforming dream or vision and becomes a charismatic leader. In many cases, he or she seeks to revitalize the group with particularly important cultural or religious elements from the group's past. Occasionally, this revitalization also involves migration. In the 16th century, Tupi-Guarani tribes of Brazil followed their prophets on journeys in vain attempts to find a land without evil. Earlier, at the end of the 11th century, great numbers of European peasants followed Peter the Hermit, and similar prophets on crusades to the Holy Land, only to be massacred by Turkish bowmen in Anatolia or by angry Hungarians on the Danube. Later, in the 19th century, thousands of devout Mormons followed Brigham Young across the great American desert to settle on the shores of the Great Salt Lake and found the state of Utah.
Few, if any, such charismatic visionaries or prophets are lucky enough to have a volcanic eruption come along to help persuade their group to follow them, but Moses must have been able to convince his people that the disastrous effects of the Santorini eruption were the work of the God he represented, and that this God wanted them to follow Moses to the mountain. Location of the Mountain of God The route of the Israelites to the Mountain of God has been subject to a good deal of controversy, partly because the location of the mountain has been in doubt. In the exodus led by Moses from Sukkoth to Etham, the Israelites probably took the most direct route across the limestone shield of Sinai, the Way of Seir, heading for the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. This route would involve some hardship, since there were few wells and water sources on the way, and indeed, after three days traversing the wilderness, the people complained to Moses that they had no water. At Mara, which means bitter, Moses threw a log into the water, and it became sweet. From there they went to Elam, probably near the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, where there was abundant water. Since the fourth century of the Common Era, Christians have usually believed that the mountain of God lay in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula, being either the mountain of Moses or Mount St. Catherine. Josephus, the first-century Jewish historian and a native of Jerusalem, variously placed Mount Sinai east of the Gulf of Aqaba or between Egypt and Arabia. In an older Jewish tradition, a third-century BCE Egyptian Jew named Demetrius said that Moses went to Arabia when he went to Midian. There's also a specific reference to the mountain of God in a letter written in the first century CE by a Jew of the Diaspora. In this letter, preserved in the Christian New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, St. Paul, wrote, Now this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One woman, in fact, is Hagar, from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Saul of Tarsus was educated in a rabbinical school in Jerusalem where he was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. In his zeal, he persecuted early Christians in Jerusalem, then headed for Damascus to continue his activities there. On the road, however, he received a vision. His account, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, differs somewhat from the version in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 27, composed by another writer about thirty years after Saul, now Paul, penned Galatians. By his own account, after he received his vision, Saul went away at once into Arabia, and afterward returned to Damascus. Now why should he go to Arabia? 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 8 through 18 describes how the 9th century BCE northern Israelite prophet Elijah went to Horeb, the mountain of God, and experienced a theophany there. The only reasonable explanation for Saul's journey to Arabia was that, like Elijah, he went to the mountain of God seeking divine guidance. Saul must have had some idea of where the mountain actually was, and his reference to Mount Sinai in the Hagar allegory implies that he had located it in his travels. Since the 19th century, some scholars have maintained that the mountain of God was in fact a volcano in Arabia. An eminent 20th century scholar, Martin Noth, suggested that the mountain of God would be found south of the oasis of Tibuk. Tibuk lies in a basin just to the north of the two northernmost Arabian Harats. 
Harat al-Raha and Harat al-Uwayrid, and is separated from them by a desolate sandstone plateau, Al-Hisma, that stretches from the granite mountains in northern Arabia and Jordan, south toward the town of Medain Salah. There is an inland route from Aqaba through Tibuk and the holy city of Medina, as well as a coastal route southward along the Red Sea. These two routes are separated by the two Harats, but one trail connects them, just north of Harat al-Raha, and another passes through the broken area where the two Harats join. In 1910, Czech geographer Alois Muzil passed through this area, mapping it and keeping careful records of his travels. On July 2nd, he traversed the Algar, or Al-Jaw, basin, which partially separates Harats Araha and Aluwairid. Here is what he saw. The valley broadens out into a basin enclosed on all sides by low but steep slopes, and known as Algar, the watering place, because it contains many umsasa, or rain water wells. The plain is covered with a fairly deep layer of clay, in which various plants thrive luxuriantly, and it therefore forms the best winter encampment of the Belai, Bedouin. The guide proudly pointed out to us the abundant withered pasturage through which we were passing, and asked whether throughout our journey from Tibuk we had seen so many and such various plants. The annuals were yellowish, while the shrubs were a brilliant green. Upon the eastern slope of the Grey Table Mountain of Tadra is situated the black volcano Hala Ulbeder. On the western slope there used to flow a spring, now said to have been clogged up by the collapse of a rock. To the southeast we perceived the Hill of Sledge, and still farther in the direction the volcano of Al-Asi, in which are the Morajer and Abed Musa, the caves of the servants of Moses. Our guide explained that servants of Moses sojourned in them when their master was abiding with Allah. Another sacred spot is situated by the well of Al-Hezer. It is called Al-Manhal, and upon it are twelve stones known as Al-Madba, where the Belai still offer up sacrifices when they are encamped close by. The volcano Hala al-Badir, a cinder cone atop an expanse of flat sandstone tableland, was the site of the most recent volcanism in the two Harats, having vomited fire and stones that killed many Bedouin and their camels and sheep, possibly in 640 CE. Musil originally believed this was the site of the Mountain of God. Later he changed his mind because he decided that the sacred mountain should be near the town of Midian, which he believed was Al-Bad on the Midian Peninsula. Another traveler to Arabia, Hermann von Wisman, had an alternate candidate for the Mountain of God, a volcanic center along the western border of Harat ar-Raha, near the temple ruins of Ur-Rawafa. This area is not far from one of the cross trails that joins the inland and the coastal routes. It does not seem to have any local traditions connecting it with Moses, however, although it appears to be connected with the Midianite tribe of Ephah. Either of these two proposed locations would fit Martin Noth's suggestion that the mountain was south of Tibuk, but Hala al-Beder probably has more water in its immediate vicinity, and water is the most important determinant in Arabia. A third Arabian traveler, Harry St. John Philby, wrote that the Al-Hisma Plateau had a penetrating cold in the winter and chilling winds. 
In that season, the Bedouin left the Hisma highlands with their herds and moved to lower elevations, either to the Tibuk Basin or south to the Tehana coastal plain. Going toward the coast in the fall and back to the Hisma plateau in the spring, the nomads had to pass north of Harat Araha or cross between the Harats via Algar Basin. They have undoubtedly followed this seasonal migration for thousands of years. In this way, Moses could have passed by with his father-in-law's flocks and seen a fire fountain somewhere in the Harat al-Raha. Journey to the Mountain of God One feature that sustained the Israelites on their initial journey to the Mountain of God was a pillar of cloud and fire that went before them. This pillar appears on numerous occasions in the Exodus story, guiding the Israelites out of Egypt, at the sea between them and Pharaoh's army, in the wilderness, and often when God descends to speak with Moses in his tent. But as one oral historian noted, extraordinary natural events are frequently wrenched from their proper context and connected with local events that seem to make more fitting companions. In this case, the real pillar of cloud and fire was an eruption column from the cinder cone of an Arabian harat. It erupted, not all at once as Santorini Thera had, but over the course of weeks or even months, as often happens, in the spring and summer of 2001, Mount Etna in Sicily erupted in precisely this manner. It did not lead the Israelites out of Egypt, as claimed in the Bible but instead was visible only in the final stages of their journey. It is also possible that the erupting magma rose through layers of oil-rich sediments, igniting the oil and causing enormous clouds and fires. As such, the eruption column would have been a most impressive sight, smoky by day and fiery by night. Such a feature would have guided, inspired, and intimidated the Israelites as they approached the mountain to renew the covenant with the God of their ancestor Abraham. In the course of their journey, the Israelites were attacked by the Amalekites, who cut off the tail end of their column. This encounter became confused with later pitched battles between the two groups. Finally, according to Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, the Israelites arrived at the wilderness of Sinai in the third new moon that is, in the third lunar month, after they left Egypt. In 1628 BCE, a new moon fell on January 12th, the first new moon, a second on February 11th, and a third on March 12th. If the Israelites started their journey in the first few days of February of that year, in the January 12th new moon, their arrival would be after March 12th, in the third new moon. This would be just in time for the first full moon after the spring equinox on March 26th. This arrival near the end of March coincided with the time of the wheat harvest in Egypt. The Israelite exodus at the beginning of the Egyptian barley harvest in early February was the original time of the month of Aviv, month of the freshly ripened barley. Exodus chapter 13 verse 4. Today in the month of Aviv you are going out. In the most ancient Israelite calendar, as reflected in the year count quoted by Josephus, mentioned in chapter 1. Centuries later, when the Israelites had transformed themselves into village farmers, the exodus and the festival of unleavened bread associated with it were shifted to match the barley harvest in Canaan.
Because of this shift, the Exodus became connected with the Israelites' annual covenant renewal sacrifice and accompanying meal held at the first full moon of spring. The end of the original Exodus journey at the time of the Egyptian wheat harvest is reflected in the Festival of Weeks, Shavuot, except that the present festival coincides with the midsummer wheat harvest in Canaan. The tradition that Shavuot marks the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai thus preserves a vestigial memory of the original event at Sinai at the beginning of spring. Encounter at the Mountain of God When they approached the Mountain of God, the Israelites were met by Moses' father-in-law and his family, probably heading from the coastal plain back to the Hizma, and Moses' father-in-law offered up a sacrifice to Yahweh. When the Israelites finally encamped opposite the mountain, they were told that Yahweh would come down upon the mountain, but that the people should not go up the mountain or many would die. Be careful not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or human being. They shall not live. This is a very sensible prohibition to make in the face of an erupting volcano, particularly one that is apparently ejecting pellets or stones, and fits with the Bedouin account of the most recent eruption that was mentioned earlier. The warning, not to touch the edge of the mountain, also makes sense if some lava was descending the slope. Lava could have been coming from fissures on only one side of the volcano, as is often the case. On the morning of the third day, there was the sound of thunder the flash of lightning, the screech of a ram's horn or trumpet, and the mountain was wrapped in smoke and fire. Because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. Shallow localized earthquakes commonly occur as volcanoes erupt. The noise of eruptions, as we have seen, is often compared to thunder and the screech of steam and other volcanic gases escaping from narrow vents and fissures is not dissimilar to the screech of a ram's horn, which is likewise caused by a gas, air, escaping rapidly from a narrow aperture. Lightning is also characteristic of eruption clouds. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 11 describes the eruption this way. You approached and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain was blazing up to the very heavens, shrouded in dark clouds. Psalm 104, verse 32, reflects this tradition. The Lord, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. It has been suggested that these phenomena describe a thunderstorm in high mountains, despite the fact that neither rain nor hail is mentioned, and that lightning striking trees near the timberline produced the smoke and fire. Having personally been through several high mountain thunderstorms, and one particularly bad one in Montana, which my husband, a native Montanan, described as the worst he'd ever seen, I can say they have nothing in common with the smoke and fire show described in the Pentateuch. Nor were they associated with any earthquakes. Rather than being a perfectly normal, though violent thunderstorm at some inaccessible mountain altitude, or an elaborate theological metaphor, these accounts in Exodus and Deuteronomy are very specific and very accurate descriptions of a volcanic eruption, as is the pillar of cloud and fire that guided the Israelites to this spot. As one scholar wrote, 
It is hard to escape the conclusion that verses like Exodus chapter 19 verse 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 11 suggest a volcanic eruption and no other settled people of the Levant, so far as we know, spoke of divine intervention in these terms. To people who had never seen or heard such phenomena, they must have been awesome indeed. Revelation at the Mountain of God The biblical narrative of the original revelation on Sinai is a confused account. Moses is pictured as ascending and descending Mount Sinai at least three times without any apparent purpose. At times, the people are pictured as fearful and standing at a great distance from the mountain, whereas at other times there are repeated warnings which are intended to prevent any of them from breaking forth and desecrating the sacred mountain. God seems to fluctuate between his actually dwelling on the mountain and only descending in periodical visits. The usual way to explain the difficulties of these texts is to attribute them to different documentary sources. According to this explanation, the E, or northern source, deals with the making of the covenant between the people and God, the breaking of the covenant and the tablets, with the erection of the golden calf or bull, the making of the new tablets, and Moses as a prophet who intercedes with God for the people. The J, or southern source, is more fragmentary. Yahweh appears before the people who have purified themselves— the people stay at a distance because of the danger of being too close to Yahweh. Aaron and the elders accompany Moses partway up the mountain, but only Moses goes up to see Yahweh. In the priestly source, Moses goes up to the mountain and God gives him extensive instructions for the tabernacle, the priestly vestments, and other priestly matters. The laws are not given on the mountain, but later, when the tabernacle has been constructed— most scholars agree that this last account, i.e., the priestly source, is a relatively late version of the Sinai Theophany. At least some scholars agree that the inconsistencies in this account stem from the combining of two ancient traditions while they were still in an oral form, one a tradition of the people seeing God face to face, and the other that of Moses acting as intermediary between God and the people. Why Avisher sees a series of chiastic parallels in the text, the pivot of which is the Lord descending on the mountain in fire in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Chiastic structures, as noted before, are often found in orally inspired works. Many scholars also believe that these passages were originally followed by the presentation of the Decalogue, as described in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. How you once stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people for me, and I will let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me as long as they live on the earth, and may teach their children so. You approached and stood at the foot of the mountain. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, which he charged you to observe, that is, the Ten Commandments. The steep and lofty mountains in the Sinai Peninsula suggested as candidates for the mountain of God, notably 
the 2,637-meter, 8,455-feet high Mount St. Catherine, and the 2,285-meter, 7,467-feet high Jebel Musa, would have made the comings and goings as described in Exodus 19-24 through 24, logistically improbable, especially for the 70 tribal elders. Modern pilgrims scale Jebel Musa only with great difficulty, using a set of steps that were cut into the rock in Byzantine times. One round trip using stairs that did not exist in Moses' time takes nearly 4.5 hours. In contrast, many cinder cones of the Haaretz have relatively gentle slopes only a few hundred feet higher than the land surface on which they sit, although it is unclear whether the cone itself is climbable. Allah el Bedr, for example, is only about 150 meters above a flat sandstone tableland and 1,500 meters above sea level. Covenant Sacrifice and Maseba After his trips up and down the mountain, Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain of God and put up twelve standing stones for the twelve tribes of Israel, where burnt offerings of cattle were made to God. Since there weren't twelve distinct tribes at this point of time, one wonders if twelve might not be an early ritual number among the Israelites. Maseba, the Hebrew term for this type of standing stone, are common in the Jordanian and Negev deserts. In ancient times they served as witness to treaties and covenants, as markers of sacred areas, or as stones put up to ancestors. The Maseba put up by Moses at the mountain of God had elements of all three of these uses. Usually Maseba come in groups of two or three, occasionally in groups of five, seven, or nine. At the foot of Hala al Bedr, according to Musil informants, there were twelve, the same number said to have been erected at the foot of the mountain of God. After examining photographs taken in and around Halal al Bedr, Professor Jean Koenig claimed he had found the Maseba, a pile of sandstone rocks near the foot of what he believed to be Halal al Bedr. His conclusions were subjected to a withering critique by Jacqueline Piren, who claimed that Koenig's photographer had missed Halal al Bedr entirely, and the rocks mentioned by Musil were the same as the red granite ruins observed by the 19th century explorer Charles Doty, not the sandstone formation noted by Koenig. Granite rocks are exposed no closer than about 24 kilometers from Halal al Bedr, and ruins is a term that usually implies destroyed structures of some kind, rather than freestanding stones. Thus, it seems unlikely that Dodi's red granite ruins are Musil's Maseba. Whether the photographer and thus Koenig examined the right volcanic cones, Halal al Bedr and al Asi, the latter of which seems to have acquired a new name, and the right pile of sandstone blocks is certainly doubtful. If this is not the case, Musil's Maseba have not been identified and described. Even if they still exist, wind scour and sand blasting would probably have removed any traces of human alteration. Many people have been reluctant to consider a location for the Mountain of God in Arabia because its most common name, Mount Sinai, seems to connect it with the Sinai Peninsula. The name Sinai, in one hypothesis, was derived from the Sumerian-slash-Akkadian moon god Sin, who gave his name to the wilderness of Sin. One of the earlier stops in the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, 
and to Sinai, the peninsula, and to Sinai, the holy mountain. Alal al-Beder means in English, crater of the full moon. But because it is in Arabia and not in the Sinai, or near the wilderness of Sin for that matter, these places do not seem to have a common name connection. Another hypothesis derives the name Sinai from the Hebrew word for bush, Sena. In other Semitic languages, the cognate word refers to a particular thorny shrub, and a species of the thorny acacia is the best candidate for the biblical bush. Acacia tortillis, known to the Arabs as summer, marks the 2 to 4 inch, 5 to 10 centimeter, rainfall zone. Because it does not grow with less than 2 inches of rainfall annually, it is an important moisture indicator in the desert. No other bush remotely resembles it, and it grows extensively and often exclusively in the area of the northern Arabian Haaretz and throughout the region. In moister areas, with at least four inches of rainfall annually, other species of acacia will also grow. In these wetter areas, the acacia is recognized as a tree and is known by another word. In the 17th century BCE, the Israelites would have used the word senna to refer to acacia tortillis in the bush form. But since in many dry regions it would have been the only type of bush growing, senna would have meant bush. This would explain why widely separated desert areas were named Sena, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Wilderness of Sin. On the sandstone tableland of Halal al-Beder, that is, above the wadi bottoms and valley floors, such as the Al-Ghah Basin, rain was the only source of water, and only hardy vegetation, such as the Sena bush, would have been able to grow. Naming the mountain of God for a bush, especially one that marked Moses' first encounter with God, is just the sort of thing people of this region would do. The Hebrew scriptures contain a number of places named for streams, trees, and the like. The medieval Arab geographer, Yakut, wrote, It is said that Sina is the name of its, the mountain of God's, rocks or its trees, and... But in the Nabataean language, every mountain is called Tur, and as soon as bushes and trees grow on it, it is named Tursina. Musil found a number of geographic features, usually valleys or watercourses, and one hill east of the Wadi El Araba, named for another kind of bush, a type of gorse, the Ratam, Ratama, or Ratema. A shrub with long, rather stiff branches, long needle-shaped leaves, and hanging scented flowers. At least two wadis originating in the Harat al-Raha are named Ratem. Its Hebrew equivalent is Ritma. In Numbers chapter 33 verse 18, Ritma is a stop on the wilderness journey of the Israelites, only three resting places away from the wilderness of Sinai. Numbers chapter 33 verses 15 and 16. There is a second name given to the mountain of God in a few passages, Horeb. Horeb has the general meaning of a desert region, HRB, and may have originally meant only the desert region in which the mountain was placed, but HRB would also be the written form of Mount Harb, one of two peaks, the other is Dibba, that are notable landmarks in the area and mark the place where Israelites would have turned off the caravan route to cross into the volcanic desert of Harat Araha when journeying to Hala al-Beder.
If, as Noth believes, Horeb is a late addition to an older tradition, Horeb may simply be a form of Harb, the name being transferred from the landmark mountain to the mountain of God. Pilgrimages to the Mountain of God Numbers chapter 33 verses 5 to 49 presents a list of stops supposedly followed by the Israelites on their journey from Egypt to the plains of Moab. This itinerary was thoroughly studied by Graham Davies, who concluded that it formed the basis for the other itinerary segments in Exodus and in Numbers 20 and 21, and that it probably described an actual, widely known route. Earlier, Martin Noth suggested that part of the Numbers 33 itinerary was a pilgrimage route to the Mountain of God. Both Noth and Jean Koenig discovered that the names in Numbers 33 near the Wilderness of Sinai correspond to names, and in the same order, in or near Harat Araha. Using these names and Musel's map, Koenig even traced a route from Mount Harb, which he equated to Mount Shefer in Numbers chapter 33 verse 23, to Halal al that follows an ancient track. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2, it is stated that it is eleven days' journey from Horeb to Kadesh. Davies notes that the standard ancient rate of travel is about 30 kilometers per day, a distance that would better fit the distance between Kadesh and Mount Harb than that between Kadesh and Halal al -Bedr. However, Alois Musil's examination of Arabic sources detailing the pilgrim routes to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, as well as the study done by Greta Hort, show an average travel distance of 55 to 70 kilometers, an average of 30 miles per day through the Haggaz. The distance between Kadesh and Halal al bedr would fall within this 30-mile-per-day range. This latter figure involves traveling on camels which did not become domesticated until late in the second millennium BCE. Thus, the statement in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2 probably reflects a later time, such as Elijah's, when travel through the desert was typically done on camels and when the travelers were pilgrims, not the group led by Moses who, with their herds and their elderly and children, would have traveled at a much slower pace. It is clear that the mountain of God, where the first divine revelation was received, remained a sacred and holy place to the Israelites, one they would return to again and again throughout their sojourn in the wilderness and in later centuries as pilgrims. Early on, the mountain was the focal point of the Israelites' religious and tribal identity, However, as the years passed, Moses died, the volcanic emissions ceased, and the Israelites moved north. The sacredness of the mountain apparently was transferred, at least in part, to the tabernacle and the ark within it. This transfer paved the way for the establishment of cult centers in Canaan, far distant from the mountain of God. In time, the mountain at Sinai lost its importance as a pilgrimage destination for the Israelites, and became only a sacred memory. Chapter 6 The Sojourn in the Wilderness A Land Flowing with Milk and Honey After their first stay at the mountain of God, Moses led the Israelites north, intending to settle in Canaan. He sent spies ahead to scout out the land. The spies reported back to Moses at Kadesh that, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. 
Numbers chapter 13 verses 27 through 28. Southern Canaan at this time had a number of cities and towns, both large and small. The most impressive features of the larger Canaanite cities were their massive fortifications. Surrounding walls were abutted by enormous ramparts, and access to the city was only by complex gates that provided effective defense. The largest sites were closest to the coast, often deliberately built at the mouths of rivers or wadis to take advantage of the flourishing maritime trade between the Nile Delta, the northern Levantine coast, and Cyprus and the Aegean. The largest was probably Tel al-Ajul, thought to be the Sharuhan mentioned in the Egyptian texts. Manufactured goods from Egypt, ceramic wares from Cyprus, and exotic metals such as gold and tin were brought to the large coastal towns by ship and transferred to smaller towns inland. These inland towns were surrounded by villages and hamlets that produced wine, olive oil, and other agricultural products for trade. Southern Canaan was a major barley-growing area and also provided honey and herbs as well as grapes and olives. There was probably a trade in cattle and products from the herds of sheep and goats. The larger towns were also manufacturing centers, for numbers of locally made gold and ivory objects appear to have been fashioned on the spot. The gold and ivory come originally from East Africa and was passed either up the Nile to Avaris or overland by donkey caravan. The ancient overland spice route from southwestern Arabia may also have had its northern terminus in the cities and towns of southern Canaan, especially after the Wadi Tumilat was abandoned. Aromatics, especially myrrh from Punt, East Africa and Ethiopia, may have also come up this overland route after crossing the narrow stretch of sea to Yemen, thus avoiding the endemic piracy in the Red Sea. The Israelite spies also reported to Moses, The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. The Israelites had already fought the Amalekites, one of the pastoral peoples living in the area of the Negev. The term Hittites in the Bible seems to be more of a geographic term than an ethnic one, generally referring to groups of northern people and specifically the Hurrians, a non-Semitic people who migrated south into Syria and Canaan in the 17th century BCE. The term Jebusites in this context at least, may also refer to a group of Hurrians. Since Arana, the Jebusite who sold the threshing floor to King David, bore a Hurrian-style title. A clay tablet from Tel Ramada, Hebron, reveals both Amorite and Hurrian names. The Amorites are well-attested migrants into Canaan in the earlier part of the Middle Bronze Age, while the Canaanites were the original pre-MB inhabitants of the area still occupying the coastal plains and the Jordan Valley. From these pieces of information, we can see that the spy's description preserves a surprisingly accurate picture of Canaan during the latter part of the Middle Bronze Age. At Hebron, the spies reported that Aiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the Anakites, were there. Sheshi, as mentioned in chapters 2 and 5, was the first Hyksos ruler, whose scarabs were found along the Nile as far south as Kerma in Nubia and in several southern Canaanite cities, including Jericho. One Sheshi scarab was found in a tomb at Tel el Mascuta. Clearly the Israelite oral tradition preserved his name and a broadly correct time period. Attempted Invasion 
Archaeologists have found numbers of bronze weapons, particularly battle axes, within these Middle Bronze Age Canaanite cities. There is little doubt that their rulers could have marshaled large and effective fighting forces from both their towns and the surrounding countryside over which they exercised effective political control to defend themselves against nomadic invaders. Based on estimates of the 19th century Bedouin population of the Wadi Tumilat, I have suggested a figure of 3,000 Israelites, supplemented by possibly as many as 200 Avarans. The biblical number of 603,550 fighting men is a typical oral historical exaggeration. Given approximately four to five non-combatants for each fighting man, this number would yield a total of over three million Israelites, more than the entire population of Egypt at the time. However, 600 combatants, if related to the same number of non-combatants, is not wildly different from the number who fled the Wadi Tumilat. 600 combatants would have had no chance against the armies of the Canaanite city-states and their Amalekite allies. Numbers chapter 14, verses 44 through 45, describes the Israelites' abortive invasion into the southern Judean hill country and how they were thrown back. They retreated into the desert and began their extended sojourn in the wilderness. Early Descent Although the biblical version states that the original attempt of the Israelites to invade Canaan from the south failed because they were going against God's will, this was a later theologizing to explain why the invasion failed. The predictable result of this failure was descent and a splintering off from the main group. In Numbers 16, the Reubenites Dathan, Abaran, and On and their families separate from the main body of the Israelites and say to Moses, We will not come. Is it too little that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey, here they mean Egypt, to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also lord it over us? It is clear that you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, here they mean Canaan. We will not come. Another revolt, led by the Levite Korah, supposedly happened at the same time. But though Korah was said to have been swallowed up by the earth along with the Reubenites, all his sons survived, an indication that the Levitical uprising took place at a different time. Later, the two revolts were fused together. Greta Hort has suggested that the dissenting Reubenite splinter group was camped on a kawir, in the southern part of the Wadi Al-Araba. A kawir is a mudflat with thin layers of mud and salt above an expanse of soft clay. When pressure, such as tents, tent pegs, people, and animals, was put on the surface, it would break up and collapse. Another possibility is an earthquake, a relatively common occurrence in the tectonically active Wadi Al-Araba. The Length of the Sojourn after the seemingly miraculous destruction of the Reubenite dissenters, Moses' authority was restored, and the Israelites began their extended sojourn in the wilderness. According to the scriptures, this sojourn lasted 40 years. But the interval between a 1628 BCE exodus date and the destruction of Jericho in about 1550 BCE is 78 years, not 40. In both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, the number 40 is applied to all sorts of unknown time intervals. 40 is a perfect or a religious number. 
Moses was said to have been 80 years old when he confronted Pharaoh, and traditionally to have been about 40 when he fled to Midian. He then lived for 40 years in the wilderness, dying at age 120. More realistically, an impulsive killing such as Moses carried out in Egypt is the sort of thing a young man would do, say one in his early 20s. The highly distorted story in Exodus chapter 4 verse 25 in which Moses' wife Zipporah cuts off her son's foreskin to save Moses from being killed by God implies that Moses' son was in early adolescence when Moses set out again for Egypt, for circumcision is often an adolescent rite of passage as it was for the ancient Egyptians. If so, Moses would have been in his mid to late thirties when he returned to the Delta and led the Israelites out of the Wadi Tumilat. Psalm 90, verse 10, this psalm is called a prayer of Moses, says, The days of our life are seventy years or perhaps eighty if we are strong, implying that Moses lived well into his seventies. The thirty-eight years the Israelites spent traveling from Kadesh Barnea, Petra, to the Wadi Zared, may actually reflect the years Moses spent in the wilderness before he died, and the sacred number of forty may have originally been the number of years the Israelites spent in the wilderness after Moses' death. The scriptures do retain some hints of the actual longer sojourn in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 29 and 32, God says that, Your dead bodies shall fall in this very wilderness a reflection of the fact that everyone alive at the time of the Exodus, not just those over twenty, a later rationalization, did die in the wilderness. A second indication is the frequent statement that God will punish children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation. The most direct indication of the true length of the sojourn is found in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14 and 16, a supposedly prophetic but obviously later description of the exodus and sojourn, which describes how Abraham's descendants will be slaves in an alien land for four hundred years, and after leaving Egypt shall come back to Canaan in the fourth generation, allowing about twenty-three to twenty-five years per generation, brings us to sixty-nine to seventy-five years for the first three generations, so that a circa 78-year sojourn fits comfortably in the fourth generation. There's also a genealogical hint of the family of Caleb, one of the two faithful spies during the first unsuccessful penetration into Canaan. Caleb's great-grandson, Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, makes the ark to hold the tablets of the Decalogue, another four-generation span. The longer actual length of the sojourn in the wilderness meant that Moses died before the Israelites were able to return to Canaan. This created a need in later times to explain why Moses, God's chosen leader, did not get to lead the Israelites into the promised land. One explanation was that Moses was being punished because both he and Aaron had disobeyed God at the waters of Meribah. A second, quite different reason was offered in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 37. God would not allow Moses into the promised land, because Moses had not trusted enough before the first attempt to penetrate Canaan, and instead sent spies to scout out the territory. Both explanations are nonsensical. 
Unfortunately, telescoping the longer time span of three plus generations into the shorter perfect number of forty eliminates one of the story's truly remarkable features how the Israelites remained committed to moving back to Canaan despite the death of their great leader Moses. Fortunately, there are a few indications in the scriptures themselves of how this commitment was maintained. Annual Covenant Renewal Gathering at the Mountain of God Certain scholars have suggested that the oldest story of the Sinai Covenant is found among the verses in Exodus 24, 34, and 32. In fact, these passages are a collection of later episodes that were fused together with the first visit of Moses and the Israelites to the mountain of God. In the first episode, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders went up to the mountain and had a covenant meal, reminiscent of the covenant sacrifice and its accompanying meal between Jacob and Laban in Genesis. It is likely that this meal, on the mountain, reflected a regular sacrifice and covenant meal made by the Israelites each year of their sojourn in the wilderness. As Siegfried Hermann noted, Possibly in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, we have the rudiments of an early sacral tradition that has been preserved quite by chance. It would seem to know of sacred events and a solemn festival at the mountain, but as a periodic custom rather than as a single happening. Numbers chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 and the first line of Psalm 81 also suggest that the Israelites gathered at the mountain of God to offer up their covenant renewal sacrifices at the first full moon of the spring. Here the foundation story of the Exodus was repeated and renewed each year, keeping it fresh in the minds of the descendants of those who had experienced God's signs and wonders. Exodus chapter 24 verses 9 through 11 also describes a partial transfer of leadership from an aging Moses to a younger Aaron, a good many years after the first visit to the mountain of God. The mountain where Moses went up every spring at the covenant renewal gathering, meditated, prayed, and listened for God, would have been the obvious place to transfer any divine authority. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 14, Aaron is simply the Levite brother of Moses, i.e., a fellow Levite. Only later does Aaron become Moses' brother and a full participant in the Exodus story, equal to Moses, a change that mirrors the way the role of the tribal leader in the Hopi story, mentioned in the introduction, expanded through time. It is noteworthy that there is no mention of fire or smoke in these verses, but only something like sapphire tiles beneath God's feet. The volcano, then, was not erupting into the air at this later time. The basalts of the Harat Araha are unusually rich in olivine crystals, phenicists, which 19th-century explorer Charles Doty termed common greenish volcanic crystals. I myself have seen blue olivine crystals from a Hawaiian lava core. Optical refractive characteristics of the olivine are responsible for this unusual color. Revolt of the Levites Many of the Levites, led by Korah, Moses' cousin, opposed the appointment of Aaron. Hearing the protest, Moses directed Korah and 250 dissidents to appear the next morning at the tent of meeting, each one bringing with him a censer filled with fire with incense on it. 
Aaron, too, appeared with the censer, but Moses and Aaron were directed by God to move away from the rebellious Levites. Once they had done so, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men. A variant version of this story in Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 7 has Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu taking their censers and offering unholy fire to God, who then consumed them with fire. Greta Hort has suggested that the protesting Levites were struck down by lightning, attracted to the metal in the censers when a desert thunderstorm came up. However, the fire came out from the Lord. It did not fall from heaven, as it did in a similar incident when fire consumed the offering of Elijah on Mount Carmel in his contest with the priests of Baal. Molten lava from alkaline basalt volcanoes can break out through surface vents and fissures, sometimes miles distant from the crater itself, and flow across the ground at will. This may have been the fire that came out from the Lord. In addition, with the lava there could have been deadly gases issuing from these same fissures with similarly lethal effects to those gathered nearby. The Sharing of Leadership Between Aaron and Her At another later covenant renewal gathering at the Mountain of God, Aaron now shares leadership duties with Her. for Moses says to the elders, Aaron and Her are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Her, the son of Caleb, is the equal of Aaron here, and in Exodus chapter 17 verses 10 through 12, where he and Aaron hold Moses' arms up during the battle with the Amalekites. Caleb, Hur's father, is given two genealogies. He is either the son of Hezron, who is a grandson of Judah, or he is the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. In Judges chapter 1 verse 13 and chapter 3 verse 9, Kenaz is Caleb's younger brother. But in Genesis 36, Kenaz is a son or clan of Esau. Many clans or peoples living south of Canaan are connected to Esau in the biblical genealogies, and in this case, Kenaz or Kenazite is probably the equivalent of Kenite. The Kenites were smiths or metalworkers living in the Wadi al-Araba and would have had the skill to construct ritual objects of bronze or gold. Bezalel, her grandson, makes or oversees the making of the ark and all the furnishings of the tent, the incense and burnt offering altars, the table, vessels, and vestments. Emphasis is on the gold overlay or the fashioning of these objects from gold. Elsewhere, however, the altar Bezalel constructed is, more realistically, made of bronze, not gold. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, Moses asks his brother-in-law, Hobab, the son of Rule, the Midianite, to accompany the Israelites. Do not leave us, I pray, for you know how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. Judges chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, says the descendants of Hobab, the Kenite, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, Ain Hosb, in the Wadi al-Arabah, not far from Petra, into the Negev near Arad. It would seem that one tradition remembered Hobab as Moses' brother-in-law and thus a Midianite, and another, probably more accurately, remembered Hobab as a Kenite. I believe these narrative remnants about Caleb and her and their family and about Hobab point toward an alliance between the Israelites and the Kenites. 
The memory of this alliance is preserved in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 6, when King Saul says to the Kenites, For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. This alliance was sealed by Moses taking a daughter of Rule the Kenite as a second wife, his first wife having been a daughter of the Midianite priest Jethro. Hur's place as one of Moses' assistants was evidently part of this alliance, which included military actions against the Amalekites. In Numbers chapter 31 verse 8, Hur is one of the five leaders of Midian killed by the Israelites, a possible indication that Hur died of the plague outside Jericho. For nationalistic reasons, later Israelite tradition made the family of Caleb, Hur, and Bezalel into members of the tribe of Judah and gave them Judahite genealogies. Aaron's Rebellion At some point, Aaron, with the help of his sister Miriam, the prophetess, attempted to take control from Moses. Aaron and Miriam justified their criticism of Moses by asking, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Their attempt to secure control was easily put down by Moses, and the punishment was merely short-term banishment, probably for both of them, not simply Miriam. But a later incident, recounted in Exodus chapter 32, was a full-scale rebellion. In Exodus 32, while Moses is on the mountain of God, Aaron takes gold from the Israelites and makes it into the image of a young bull, not a calf, and the people worship it. When Moses finally comes down from the mountain with the newly made tablets of the covenant, he finds the people running wild or rioting. Moses breaks the tablets of the covenant, destroys the statue of the young bull, and makes the people drink the ground remains of the idol. After interrogating Aaron, Moses calls the Levites to his side, and they go among the Israelites and kill a good many of them. The next day, God sends a plague on the rest of the people. This account has inconsistencies and duplications, which have led some scholars to presume that it has been composed from disparate, often late, sources, but recent analyses by Ralph E. Hendricks and Christine E. Hayes have pointed out the chiastic structure of the story and noted the frequent use of repetition, both characteristics of orality, as well as the internal unity of the whole passage. Rather than being derivative, Exodus 32 is the source for other biblical passages that refer to this incident. By any logic, Aaron should have been punished for this idolatry, for the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 20. But only in Numbers chapter 20 verses 2 through 13 is Aaron punished, because he assisted Moses when Moses disobeyed God at Meribah by striking the rock to get water instead of speaking to it. Meribah here is supposed to be at Kadesh. The story of Meribah in Numbers chapter 20 verses 2 through 13 is really the first part of the story of the death of Aaron in Numbers chapter 20 verses 24 through 29. It comes directly after the story of Miriam's death at Kadesh and was attached to that story at a very early time when storytellers were relating the deaths of first one and then the other sibling. And Miriam died at Kadesh, and Aaron died. Thus the incident of the quarrel at Meribah, alluded to rather mysteriously in a number of later biblical passages, 
was juxtaposed with Kadesh early in oral tradition because of the association of Miriam and her death at Kadesh with her brother Aaron and his death. The same incident is related in Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 through 7, but in this passage, Meribah is at Rephidim. According to this text, the people were camped at Rephidim, which, according to Numbers 33, is only one stopping place from the mountain of God. They complained to Moses because there was no water, and Moses asked God, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. God instructed Moses to go on ahead with some of the elders of Israel, and God would be standing in front of them on the rock of Horeb. God directed Moses to strike the rock, and water would come out of it so that the people could drink. Moses and the elders went on to the mountain of God as directed. Moses struck the rock in the presence of the elders, and the story ends abruptly with an explanation of the names Massa, Test, and Meribah, Quarrel. What actually happened next is described in Exodus chapter 32, verses 25 through 29. Moses returned to the Israelite camp and found the full-scale rebellion fomented by Aaron. For Aaron let them, the people, run wild, to the derision of their enemies. The chiastic structure of Exodus 32 reveals that the passage, verse 26a, where Moses stands at the gate of the camp and calls on all who are on the Lord's side to come to him, is the focal point of the whole story. In verse 26b, the sons of Levi come to his aid. Many Levites, remember, had never been happy with Aaron's appointment in the first place. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 8, where Moses blesses the tribe of Levi, carries a remnant of this original version, for there Moses says, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your loyal one, whom you tested at Massah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. In short, the Levites had stayed loyal to Moses and thus to God at Meribah, just as described in Exodus chapter 32 verse 26 when they put down Aaron's rebellion. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, were killed in the rebellion, and Moses called on their kinsmen to drag their bodies by their tunics from the camp. In Leviticus in these verses, Nadab and Abihu were presumably burned to death but still had their tunics intact. But what became of Aaron? In Numbers 20, the Israelites set out from Kadesh, actually Rephidim, to Mount Hor, actually the mountain of God, and God said, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the Israelites, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Moses, Aaron, and his son Eleazar went up Mount Hor, actually the mountain of God, in the sight of the whole congregation, Moses stripped Aaron of his vestments and put them on his, Aaron's, son Eleazar, who obviously had not taken part in the rebellion. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. That is, Aaron was executed at the mountain of God for his rebellion. Because of erroneously placing Meribah at Kadesh and confusing Mount Hor with Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and further conflating the rebellion of Korah with, first, the Reubenite revolt, and second, the role Nadab and Abihu played in their father's rebellion, these stories became fragmented and their original meanings lost. The Tablets of the Ten Commandments 
Deuteronomy makes it clear that the tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them were made directly after the first appearance of God to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The tablets would have been carried with the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness. Returning to the mountain each spring, the tablets would have played a key role in the covenant renewal rites. Thus, even though Moses supposedly broke the first set of tablets when he saw the golden bull and the dancing, the tablets almost certainly were broken by Aaron's supporters during the rebellion. Monumental stone inscriptions in the ancient Near East served to eternalize an event, even to people who couldn't read the words. Egyptians in the Middle Kingdom, 1900 to 1750 BCE, created images of their enemies in stone, terracotta, or wood, or wrote their enemies' names on pottery. The image or name was then cursed and broken. It is scarcely believable that Moses would break a tablet with God's name on it, but the breaking of the tablets by the rebels would destroy the concrete symbol of the covenant and of Moses' authority from God. After Aaron's rebellion was put down, a second set of tablets was made, and the Levites, who had proved their loyalty, were given the task of guarding the tabernacle or tent that held the ark with the second set of tablets and ordered to kill anyone who came near it. The guarding of the ark suggests that some of the people were seen as potential threats to the new tablets. In Deuteronomy, Moses says he himself made the ark immediately upon coming down with the second set of tablets. But in Exodus, Bezalel made the ark at a slightly later time. If, as I maintain, there was an interval of years between the making of the first and second sets of tablets, then these two stories of the making of the ark may actually refer to two arks. The first made by Moses for the first set broken during Aaron's rebellion— and the second ark made later by Bezalel for the second set of tablets guarded by the Levites. The ten words of the covenant would have been written on slabs of the soft sandstone that is found throughout the region. In future centuries, many different peoples of the Hejaz would use this same sandstone for thousands of their own inscriptions. As 19th century English explorer Doty noted, We see in the cliff inscriptions at Midain, that the thickness of your nail is not wasted from a face of soft sandstone under this climate in nearly 2,000 years. We know that both the 14th Dynasty people and the Hyksos used Egyptian hieroglyphics, and that Proto-Canaanite script existed as well. Moses, or someone in the group, could have had the knowledge to inscribe words on stone. The Keeping of the Covenant and the Return to Canaan the third and latest episode at the mountain of God described in Exodus 24, 34, and 32 comes from even later in the wilderness sojourn, probably not long before the death of Moses. Moses and his young servant Joshua go up alone to the mountain of God, and Joshua promises to keep the covenant to return to Canaan and not make covenants with the Canaanites. Joshua, son of Nun, is named as one of the original spies Moses sent to reconnoiter Canaan prior to the original attempt to penetrate the country. But this is chronologically impossible. Numbers chapter 13 verse 8 gives the name of the original Ephraimite spy, Hoshea, son of Nun. Numbers chapter 13 verse 16 says, Moses changed the name of Hoshea, son of Nun, to Joshua. 
the story's way to explain the conflation of the two individuals. Joshua, if he was actually Moses' young servant, seems later to have been the Israelites' war leader against the Amalekites. The long, protracted battle against the Amalekites described in Exodus is probably a folkloric version of a whole series of battles and skirmishes between the Israelites and the Amalekites during their sojourn in the wilderness, some encounters going one way, some another. Joshua would thus have been middle-aged by the time the Israelites, under his leadership, made another attempt to enter Canaan, this time with the possible exception of some of the groups that eventually became part of the southern tribe of Judah. The Israelites did not attempt a southern penetration, but instead moved north on the eastern side of the Wadi Arabah, outside Amalekite territory, around the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and through what later became the kingdoms of Edom and Moab. The Israelite Journey Through Edom and Moab One of the most compelling arguments against an early date for the Exodus is the dearth of any substantial settlements in Edom and Moab that correspond to the biblical accounts of the Israelites' journey through these areas. In the 1930s and 1940s, an American, Nelson Gluck, conducted a site survey east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, in what is today's Kingdom of Jordan, and found hardly any archaeological remains that could be dated to the Middle or Late Bronze Age. Over 50 years later, these findings are still valid. There is scant evidence of Middle and Late Bronze Age settlements in Moab and an occupational gap in Edom. This does not mean that these areas were unoccupied at that time, however. It simply means that most of the people who occupied these territories were archaeologically invisible, as Israeli archaeologist Israel Finkelstein has demonstrated. Nomads living in tents and using vessels made of skins and utensils of wood would leave virtually no archaeological remains. Early nomadic leaders were not kings, but rather tribal chieftains, Eventually, some of these tribes would develop into the tribal kingdoms found in the stories in the Hebrew Bible. Stories of the Israelites' later conflicts with these tribes and their kings would eventually be included with the original Israelite journey north. This is an example of a common form of anachronism that oral historians call the lightning rod effect, where later events accumulate around an earlier time of origins. Egyptian texts from the 19th century BCE mention a land called Shutu, associated with the sons of Sheth, in the region that later became Moab. In numbers, the term Shethite is synonymous with Moabite. Even earlier, the Egyptian story of Sunuhi mentions a mountain chieftain of Kushu named Yaush. Kushu was south of Shutu, in the mountainous area, later also called Seir, that later became known as the homeland of the Edomites, who were equated in the Bible with the sons of Esau. Remarkably, the Yahush in Sunuhi's tale is found in Genesis as Jeush, a son of Esau. The term Kushu, or Cushite is also found in the story of Moses, for in Numbers, Aaron and Miriam speak against Moses for marrying a Cushite woman, although elsewhere Moses' wife is described as a Midianite. In Habakkuk, the tents of Kushan are equated with, or used in a parallel sense to, the tent curtains of Midian. Obviously, at some point, the Israelite tradition equated Midian with Kushu, although Kushu, or Kushan, was inhabited by descendants of Esau, 
who were later equated with the Edomites. The fusion of Midian with Cushu, later the land of Edom, and of Edom with Seir, may be why these lines appear in the ancient song of Deborah. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai. In the earliest version of the Israelite journey, in Numbers 33, the Israelites proceed north from the Gulf of Aqaba, through the territory of the sons of Esau. It is called Seir, not yet Edom, to Moab. This list of stopping places is just the sort of abbreviated version one would expect to find in oral tradition carried down for centuries. One significant stop was at Kadesh. The 3rd century CE Christian scholar Eusebius, in his Onomasticon, describes Kadesh Barnea as a wilderness that stretches at the town of Petra in Arabia. There Miriam ascended and died. Josephus, in the 1st century, places Miriam's death at Mount Zin. The word Zin, which refers to something sharp, probably applies to jagged mountain peaks, similar to those found in the area of Petra and west of the Wadi al-Araba in general. From Kadesh the Israelites head north across the Wadi Zered and go through the territory of the descendants of Lot, known as Ar or Moab. In Moab the Israelites stopped at Aya Abarim, and at Daiban Gad, or Daiban, north of the Wadi al-Mujub. Although no archaeological remains from the Late Bronze Age have been found at the ancient Tel, Daiban appears in a topographical list of Pharaoh Thutmose III, 1504-1450 to 1450 BCE. From Daiban they proceeded to the rugged western escarpment of the Moabite Plateau. On this plateau lies Mount Nebo, where Moses is supposed to have viewed the Holy Land before he died. In fact, he had died years earlier in the wilderness. Below the escarpment were the broad plains of the Dead Sea Pulapart Basin, into which the Jordan River flowed. Across the Jordan from the Israelites was Jericho, the gateway to central Canaan from the east. Here the Israelites stopped, for an unknown amount of time, in what would become the tribal territory of Reuben. It seems they settled here with their flocks and probably set up a cult center at Shittim. But events occurring in the outside world would intrude upon them, triggered by a series of natural events, profound political change, followed by deadly plague, would disrupt the Israelites' pastoral existence. Then another, quite different, natural event would provide them with what to their eyes was a divine sign that they should cross the Jordan and settle once more in the land of Canaan. Chapter 7 Meanwhile, back in civilization, while the Israelites were spending their three to four generations wandering in the wilderness, other events were taking place that would eventually provide them with the opportunity to establish themselves once again in the land of Canaan. The trigger was a series of global and regional changes in the Earth's climate. These changes facilitated the emergence of a disease that in turn became linked to a series of events in Egypt. The consequences of these events proved far-reaching and eventually resulted in the end of the Middle Bronze Age in Canaan and the return of the Israelites to their homeland. Regional and Global Climate Changes 
Volcanic eruptions, especially large ones, such as the Inayakchak and Minoan eruptions, will lower global temperatures for one to five years, and in the Middle East, result in cooler and wetter winters during those years. In normally semi-arid central and western Anatolia, this extra winter rainfall would have produced exceptionally bountiful harvests for several years, which in turn assisted the Hittites of central Anatolia in their expansion southward and eastward, and pushed other peoples, particularly the Hurrians, into Canaan. Around the time of the Minoan eruption, other longer-term and larger-scale climate changes were taking place. In Europe, the glaciers of the Swiss and Austrian Alps began to advance, and the alpine tree lines started to retreat. This marked the beginning of a cold and wet phase that commenced about 3340, plus or minus 100 radiocarbon years BP. Other workers date the onset of this cold stage at 3440, plus or minus 60 BP, and its range at 3600 to 3200 radiocarbon years BP. This change to a colder and wetter climate is called the Lubin phase in the Swiss and Austrian Alps, and the Pluvius phase in the French Lake District. It surpassed the Little Ice Age, 1300 to 1850 CE, in its intensity. Tree ring densities show an abrupt cooling starting in the later decades of the 17th century BCE, a recovery in the 16th and 15th centuries. And a renewed cold period from about 1350 to 1340 BCE to about 1200 BCE. This renewed cold spell coincided with a sunspot minimum that lasted from 1420 to 1260 BCE, much like the Sporer and Maunder sunspot minimums of the Little Ice Age. Lake sediments and pollen cores from the Swiss and French Alpine lakes record much the same climatic situation. And they can also be dendrochronologically tied to calendar dates. Wood preserved in Swiss lake sediments shows that high water levels in the lakes began in the 17th century BCE, and that shortly before 1600 BCE, people stopped building lakeside dwellings because the water was too high. This phase ended 1100 to 1050 BCE when lake levels dropped enough to allow lakeside building again. Beginning somewhere between 4,500 and 4,200 radiocarbon years BP, Central Africa became increasingly drier and cooler. Across wide swaths of territory, tropical rainforests were replaced by seasonally dry forests, and especially in East Africa, in the vicinity of Lake Victoria, by grasslands. This change in climate was caused by a northward shift in the intertropical convergence zone (ITCZ). Which also shifted the monsoon rains northward, bringing increased moisture to areas across the southern Sahara and the northern parts of the Ethiopian plateau, beginning shortly before 3,700 radiocarbon years BP and ending shortly before 3,000 radiocarbon years BP, about 1250 BCE. This shift in rainfall brought increased moisture to the catchment area of the Blue Nile and its tributary, the Atbara River. And was the cause of the very high Nile flood levels of Egypt's Middle Kingdom, and the generally abundant Nile floods of the 18th and early 19th dynasties. Microscopic pollen grains and diatoms from East African lake sediments record abrupt fluctuations between drier and moister conditions, starting about 7,200 radiocarbon years BP, 
and lasting to about 2200 BP. This was a time when climate became markedly more seasonal. During this period in East Africa, there were frequent shifts between dry periods and times when rains brought dramatic increases in the plant cover. This sort of transition from dry to wet conditions has often been linked to outbreaks of disease, such as the deadly Ebola virus in Central Africa, although the virus's animal vector remains unknown. The climate shifts in East Africa that brought increased moisture produced more vegetation and thus more food, allowing many rodent populations to explode. One of these, the multi-mammate mouse, is the principal host for fleas that carry the bubonic plague bacillus, Yersinia pestis. Cool, but not cold, fleas reproduce best between 18 and 27 degrees centigrade. Temperatures are also essential, because the plague bacillus will not block the foregut of an infected flea when the outside temperature is above 28 degrees centigrade, about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. At higher temperatures, plague bacilli pass through the flea's digestive tract. If it is cooler than 28 degrees centigrade, an infected flea will be unable to ingest the blood it draws from the animal it bites. Instead, it regurgitates this blood, now mixed with some thousands of the plague bacilli, into the animal it is biting. Most rodents, such as the multimamate mouse, that spend their lives harboring plague-carrying fleas, are immune to the disease. But when their population expands rapidly, they are likely to come into contact with other rodents, such as rats or predators, that are not immune. If, or more likely when, these other animals acquire plague-carrying fleas from the first group, the new flea carriers will fall ill of the disease and often die. Since a flea can survive unfed for one to three months, a plague-carrying flea will still be alive and hungry long after its new animal host has died. Given a chance, these fleas will abandon their dead host in search of a new source of blood, carrying the plague with them. In this way, plague-carrying fleas can reach human beings. When Yersinia pestis enters the human body from the bite of an infected flea, it multiplies in the body's lymph nodes. Two to six or eight days after the flea bite, the human victim gets a sudden fever, weakness, and headache. The lymph nodes swell, and one or more classic buboes form, usually in the groin or armpit nearest to the flea bite, and sometimes on the neck. These lumps are exquisitely painful and become filled with plague bacilli. In later stages, the urine may turn red or purple with blood. Often there are skin rashes, as blood vessels rupture, and the skin gets brownish or violet-colored, especially near the affected lymph nodes. These areas can ulcerate and result in gangrene. If the bacilli reaches the lungs, the plague becomes pneumonic. If it massively invades the blood, it becomes septicemic. When untreated by modern antibiotics, 40 to 60 percent of those affected by the bubonic form of the plague will die, while fatalities for the pneumonic and septicemic forms are virtually 100%. In the 20th century, about 20% of all plague cases were of the latter two forms. The percentage may have been higher in earlier centuries. The first widely recorded pandemic of plague occurred in the 6th century CE and is often referred to as the Justinian Plague. 
It happened, not coincidentally, after a massive volcanic eruption in Southeast Asia, possibly from the Krakatoa volcano, suddenly lowered world temperatures for several years. In this case, the origin of the epidemic was the rodent reservoir in East Africa. The disease was spread by flea-carrying rats transported on ships from East African ports. These ships sailed from East Africa around the Horn of Africa through the Gulf of Aden up the Red Sea and through a canal into the Mediterranean. From there, the infected rats moved to other ships and to cities throughout the Mediterranean world. The spread of bubonic plague by ship-borne rats and their fleas is not the only way the plague can travel. In the Middle Ages, the disease passed along the caravan routes of Central Asia, and before that it was carried by Mongol horsemen from southern China and Burma to the Central Asian steppes. Many other species of flea besides the common rat flea, Xenocilla chiapis, can carry the plague bacillus, and so can ticks and the human louse. Researchers, mostly French, who have studied the plague in the Middle East, are convinced that in past plagues in that area of the world, there has been a significant amount of human-to-human -human transmission when infected fleas or lice jumped from one person to another. Sometimes even exposure to lice or flea-infested cloth or clothing can spread the disease. Although a flea cannot become infected initially by biting a person, it can get the infection from a sick mouse or rat, then jump from the rat to one human and to another, infecting each on its way. In pre-modern times, nearly all humans carried fleas and lice. Historical records in Europe, the Middle East, and along the southern margin of the Sahara, the Sahel, show that the bubonic plague most frequently occurred when the climate was cooler and moister than usual, including during the Little Ice Age. The Lubin period was remarkably similar to the Little Ice Age. Climactically, plague would have been likely then. Moreover, plague outbreaks usually follow military or commercial trade routes, and so may be either slow or fast, depending on the prevailing political or social conditions. The ships that carried the plague bacillus from East Africa to the Mediterranean in the 6th century CE were principally carrying ivory. Ivory has been one of the primary trade items from East Africa to the Mediterranean since Pharaonic times. During Egypt's Second Intermediate Period, trade goods including gold, ivory, ebony, and exotic animal skins moved from sub-Saharan Africa north to Avaris and from there across the eastern Mediterranean. During the reigns of the later Hyksos rulers Chiam and Apophis, who apparently established a military presence along the entire length of the Egyptian Nile, trade items from East Africa would have freely passed up the river from Nubia all the way to Avaris. It was at this time, during the reign of Sekinare Tau of the Theban 17th dynasty, that there was said to have been plague in Thebes. A later Egyptian historian, Hecateus of Abdera, 300 BCE, wrote that the Egyptians interpreted this plague as the displeasure of their gods at alien rites and customs, and so they expelled the Hyksos. The End of the Hyksos in Egypt and the Spread of the Plague to Canaan Zekinenre Tau was, nominally at least, a vassal of the Hyksos, and he seems to have died in battle with them. His mummified remains show the unmistakable marks of violent death by knives, clubs, and battle-axes, 
as well as a hasty embalming. His successor, Camos, initiated a military campaign against the Hyksos that reached the walls of Avaris itself, probably toward the end of Apophis's reign. Following his northern campaign, Camos turned south to attack the Hyksos's allies, the Nubians of Kerma. Camos closed the Nile to the Hyksos and forced them to communicate with their southern allies via the oases of the western desert. Camos reigned for only a short time and was succeeded by his nephew Amos, Sekineri's son. When Amos became old enough to lead an army, he too attacked Avaris. There is a much-debated text, written in the eleventh year of an unnamed ruler, that documents the movements of an Egyptian prince and his forces against Avaris. Donald Redford concludes, correctly, I think, that the papyrus is dated to the last Hyksos ruler, Kamudi. It records the opening moves of Amos's campaign to defeat the Hyksos and drive them out of Egypt, which, in the higher Egyptian chronology that the later 17th century BCE Minoan eruption date requires, took place about 1550 BCE. Amos first took the fortress of Sili, on the border between the Delta and the Sinai Peninsula, thus cutting Avaris off from land contact with the southern Canaanite cities and their food supplies. Then the Theban monarch cut the Hyksos capital off from the sea by taking control of the feeder canal that brought the Pelusic branch of the Nile to the lake just north of Avaris, which served as the city's harbor. Finally, Amos attacked Avaris by land from the south. According to the 3rd century BCE Egyptian historian Manetho, the Egyptian pharaoh failed to take the Hyksos capital by direct attack. Instead, he was forced to besiege it. Logistically speaking, sieges are among the most difficult of military operations, for they usually require massive amounts of food and other supplies to be transported to the besieging army or navy. The Egyptians usually attempted to overcome this problem by investing a city just before its harvest, when stocks of grain in the town would be low, and their own armies would be able to live off the produce of the surrounding fields. This was not the strategy followed at Avaris, however. Because the Egyptian text states that the thrust against Sile occurred near the end of the first month of the inundation season, long after the end of the local harvest. Manetho relates how the Egyptian pharaoh, incorrectly called Thumosis, concluded an agreement with the Avarans that allowed them to leave overland, with their families and their possessions, across the Sinai Peninsula to Syria, Canaan. The one contemporary Egyptian account of the taking of Avaris speaks of looting it, but not of the forcible capture of the city. The archaeological evidence also suggests that there was no widespread destruction at the end of the Hyksos occupation. Manetho and other late Egyptian historians equated the Avarans with the Jews, who in their own time occupied the land, Judea, the Avarans fled to southern Canaan. According to another Egyptian historian, Apion, the Jews, that is, the Avarans, who left Avaris and crossed the Sinai, all had bubos in their groins. Bubos in the groin area are, of course, a classic indicator of bubonic plague. In the mid-16th century BCE, Hearst Medical Papyrus, and in the mid-14th century BCE, London Medical Papyrus, there are references to what is called the Canaanite or the Asiatic illness, when the body is coal-black with charcoal spots, and 
when the body is coal black with charcoal spots in addition to the water, equals urine, as red liquid, i.e. bloody. Hans Gudicke maintains that these are clear references to bubonic plague, and that, according to the Egyptians at least, this disease came from the Canaanites. Gudicke also suggests that the incidence of plague in Canaan was the reason why Amos's son, Amenophis I, did not follow up his father's victory at the city of Sharuhen, the main Hyksos city in southern Canaan, taken by Amos a few years after Avaris fell, by invading the rest of Canaan. Amenophis I's successors, Tuthmosis I and Tuthmosis II, made only small forays into Canaan itself. When Amos besieged Avaris, he would have brought the Theban army's food up the Nile by boat from the south of Egypt, and stored it where it was easily accessible for his troops. In this way, rodents from the south, including some who may have come up from East Africa in trading ships carrying ivory, ebony, and gold, were transported on the pharaoh's grain ships north to the delta. Once there, the rodents from the south would have mingled with the local delta grass rat, whose native flea is probably Xenocilla keopus. As the grain was consumed, the rodents would have searched for other food. Unlike the soldiers, the rodents would have had no trouble crossing the siege lines and walls to Avaris itself. There they would have come into direct contact with the besieged population. In Avaris, as in besieged cities throughout history, the rodents themselves may even have become food. In any case, the plague-carrying fleas would have spread effortlessly from rodent to human. An outbreak of deadly disease a common consequence of military campaigns and especially sieges would have been a very good reason why the Egyptians allowed the Hyksos to leave Avaris unmolested. Avarans fleeing across the northern Sinai to Sharuan and other cities and towns of southern Canaan would have taken the plague with them. Plague-carrying fleas would have ridden on human bodies or in their clothes or on their animals or on rodents hiding in any of the food brought along. The massive walls of the southern Canaanite cities and towns provided no protection against this microbial invasion. As people fled the contagion in one town by going to another, settlements throughout the area would have experienced outbreaks of this deadly disease. Outbreaks of plague are usually episodic over an extended period of time, such as the repeated outbreaks of the Mediterranean world in the 6th and 7th centuries CE. Sometimes it would spread to myriad towns and villages in a single year, while on other occasions it would bide its time, skulking in a few quiet or remote localities only to burst forth from these nameless havens of death a few years later. The 16th century BCE plague likely followed a similar pattern. A clear indication of a mid-16th century BCE plague in southern Canaan is found in the tombs of Jericho. Here, in tombs used at the very end of the Middle Bronze Age, just before the city was destroyed, tomb group 5, there is evidence of an epidemic. Approximately 53 bodies of all ages were buried at one time in six tombs, and the tombs were never reused, unlike other earlier tombs. Jericho was both connected to the coastal-to-inland trade network and a transfer point for overland caravans coming north from Arabia. At Jericho, trade items carried from the Mediterranean coast could be exchanged for aromatic spices, especially frankincense and myrrh, 
brought up from southern Arabia as caravans passed around the eastern flank of the Dead Sea and headed northward to Syria. Thus it would have been a likely destination for travelers carrying the plague. Biblical References to the Plague Indications of this plague also appear in several biblical passages. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, there is the statement that the Lord will send hornets in front of the Israelites, among the peoples of Canaan, to drive them out little by little, in the course of a year. In written Hebrew, the word for hornets closely resembles another word that was used for severe infectious diseases that afflict the skin. This similarity has caused commentators and scholars since the 12th century to translate hornets in these passages as pestilence. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 15 says that the Israelites will not be affected by the dread diseases of Egypt they had previously experienced, but that God will lay them upon those who hated the Israelites. This reference to previous Egyptian diseases may hearken back to the plague mentioned in Numbers, a plague that killed a good many Israelites. The text says 24,000, a typical exaggeration of a story passed orally. It is implied that the plague was caused by Israelite men having sexual relations with Moabite or Midianite women as part of the worship of the Canaanite god Baal of Peor, when the Israelites were encamped just east of the Jordan River at Shittim, in what was to become the tribal territories of Reuben and Gad. In later times, Shittim was part of the kingdom of Moab. In oral transmission, the tellers of a story will change unfamiliar proper names to familiar ones. In this way, the term Midianite would have been changed to Moabite, because it made sense to Israelites in later times, just as the change from Canaanite to Judean made sense to Egyptians in later times in their stories about the defeat of the Hyksos. Several scholars also argue for the antiquity of these text passages and the primacy of Midian in this story, including W. F. Albright, who suggested that the Midianites were donkey caravanners. Midianite donkey caravanners could easily have acquired the plague at Jericho, brought there by fleeing Egyptians, that is, Hyksos. It could then have spread to the Israelites camped not far away. Afterward, the Israelites avenged themselves on the Midianites, the ensuing slaughter of the Midianites described in Numbers 31 includes some rather remarkable precautions that the Israelites took after they had killed the Midianites and taken Midianite girls captive. Camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person or touched a corpse, purify yourselves and your captives on the third and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, Everything made of goat's hair and everything made of wood, gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, and lead, everything that can withstand fire shall be passed through fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for purification, and whatever cannot withstand fire shall be passed through the water. You must wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean. Afterward, you may come into the camp. These strictures are in fact extreme simply for ritual purification, including as they do the washing or burning of personal possessions of the Midianites, in addition to the remarkable, for that time, amount of cleansing of body and clothing. 
We should recall that the plague manifests itself in two to eight days, and usually in two to six days. Wash on the third and the seventh days. That both lice and fleas reside in one's clothing as well as on one's body, and that goats are carriers of the plague bacillus. Everything made of goat's hair. From roughly the same time period, the 18th century BCE archives of Mari in northern Mesopotamia mentioned that King Zimri Lim ordered the isolation, quarantine, of a woman who came down with skin lesions. Even the personal possessions of the patient were to be avoided. Obviously, then, the ancients knew about the communicability of disease. The steps taken in Mari are essentially the same, though far less extreme, as the purification rites of the Israelites after they had slaughtered the Midianites. After the slaughter of the Midianites, the Israelites remained encamped on the east side of the Jordan River. At this time, their leader was Joshua. It seems clear from the biblical passages that it was Joshua who urged the Israelites to cross the Jordan and encamp on the west side of the river. However, Joshua might not have been successful in getting his people to move, but for another natural event that convinced the Israelites it was their God's wish that they should cross the Jordan River and conquer Jericho. Chapter 8 The Destruction of Jericho The Ancient Tell of Jericho since the 19th century, the ancient Tell of Jericho, now known as Tell es Sultan, has been the focus of archaeological interest as excavators have attempted to find traces of the biblical account of the fall of Jericho at the site. The first of three archaeological excavations at Tell Jericho in the 20th century was an Austro-German expedition led by biblical scholar Ernst Sellen and archaeologist Carl Watzinger in the years 1907 through 1909, and again in 1911. They found what they believed were traces of the massive walls destroyed by the Israelites. Later, these walls proved to be from the end of the Middle Bronze Age, much too early, in the scholarly opinion of the time, to be linked to the biblical Israelites. A second excavation team headed by British archaeologist John Garstang dug at Jericho in the 1930s, and the third, and most famous, series of excavations was conducted by Kathleen Kenyon in the 1950s. Kenyon traced human occupation at the site back more than 10,000 years, but she also confirmed that the walls found by Selen and Watzinger were indeed from the end of the Middle Bronze Age. Her work clearly showed that there had been no walls around Jericho in the Late Bronze Age, when the Israelite conquest was supposed to have occurred. The various archaeological teams were able to trace the remains of both early and middle Bronze Age walls around the northwest and south sides of the ancient Tell. The east side had been cut through by a modern road, destroying whatever remained of the site's eastern walls. From the surviving remnants, it seems that both early and middle Bronze Age walls were built to include the town's permanent water source, the spring, within them. In this way, an attacking army could not cut the town off from its water source. More recent geological investigations in the area, however, have shown that this apparent advantage also contained within it a fatal weakness. A Geologically Active Basin 
Ancient Jericho is on the western edge of the Dead Sea Pull-Apart Basin. The basin itself forms part of the boundary between the Sinai Micro or Subplate and the Arabian Tectonic Plate. The Dead Sea Depression is, in fact, simply a continuation of the geologic rift that contains the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba farther south. North of the Dead Sea Depression, this rift stretches through the Jordan River Valley into Syria and northward to the boundary between the Arabian and the Eurasian plates in southern Turkey. Because it is part of an active tectonic rift, the entire Dead Sea Depression is filled with faults, both major and minor. The eastern edge of ancient Jericho is directly above one active north-south normal fault. Groundwater from deep in the rocks of the adjacent escarpment seeps up through the fault and forms a perpetual spring, the Spring of Alicia. This permanent source of fresh water is the reason that Jericho has been occupied for thousands of years since the end of the last Ice Age. The disadvantage to extending the eastern town wall around the spring was that it would cross the fault in several places. As a consequence, the eastern wall was repeatedly damaged or destroyed as the ground moved along the fault line. Substantial earthquakes would have caused even greater damage to both the town and the walls. The Bronze Age Walls of Jericho The early Bronze Age wall on the summit of the Tell was built in freestanding sun-dried bricks. With nothing to support it, the wall collapsed a number of times from earthquakes. In the thousand years between 3100 and 2100 BCE, the Jericho walls were destroyed about 17 times. Toward the end of the early Bronze Age, the town was destroyed, burned, and abandoned for a time. Later, more, and perhaps different, people came and built houses of green mud bricks on top of the tell. But again, there was an earthquake, fire, and abandonment. This was followed by a period of major erosion in the first part of the Middle Bronze Age. Earth, brick fragments, and other occupation debris from the top of the tell eroded down the slopes. Eventually, in the later Middle Bronze Age, these eroded sediments were used to form the rampart for another, far more impressive wall. This wall, built of stones, started at the base of the tell and rose some 4.5 to 5.4 meters, over 15 feet. It is called a revetment wall, and it is similar to many others that surrounded Middle Bronze Age cities in Canaan. In front of the revetment was a sloping ramp made of crushed stones. Behind the revetment wall, the massive earthen rampart, more than 20 meters wide, sloped up to the upper part of the tell. Buildings were built upon the rampart, sloping up to the upper regions of the tell. There was also a second wall, crowning the plastered slope of the earthen rampart, similar to the other Middle Bronze Age city walls. On top of the stone revetment wall was another wall, a parapet wall of sun-dried mud brick. It was at least eight feet, about 2.4 meters high, and had windows along its outer surface. These windows, as the pictures of Selen and Watsinger clearly show, belonged to buildings built out of the mud brick wall that stood on top of the revetment wall. Unlike the revetment wall, the mud brick wall was, like the early Bronze Age mud brick walls, unsupported and susceptible to collapse in the event of a major earthquake. In fact, Mud brick is one of the most susceptible of building materials to earthquake damage. Middle Bronze Age Destruction 
The Middle Bronze Age city of Jericho came to a violent and fiery end in the mid-16th century BCE. The archaeological estimate for this destruction is about 1550 BCE. One recent radiocarbon estimate is 1571 to 1529 BCE, a remarkable agreement. The city had been thoroughly burned. Kathleen Kenyon found evidence of fire covering the whole area of her excavations, about 52 by 22 meters. The tops of the wall stumps were covered by a burned debris layer about a meter thick. Upper stories of buildings had collapsed into lower floors, and walls and floors were hardened and blackened. One wonders how the fire happened. One unusual feature of the MB destruction layer of Jericho was the presence of large storage jars filled with grain. Obviously, the city had not been under siege for any length of time, since so much food was found in the city. Nonetheless, the stores of grain would have provided ideal tinder. Could an earthquake have caused the fire? In modern times, fires usually follow earthquakes as gas mains rupture and electrical cables break. But even before gas and electricity, earthquakes caused fires. Immediately following the massive 1755 earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal, fires from upset cooking fires and fallen oil lamps that ignited stores of wood and thatch did even more destruction than the quake itself. Kathleen Kenyon noted that the eastern walls of certain rooms at Jericho had collapsed before they were affected by the fire. This suggests an earthquake, perhaps one involving the fault on the east side of the city. The Biblical Account in Joshua According to the biblical account in the book of Joshua, Joshua sent two spies to Jericho while the Israelites were encamped on the west side of the Jordan River. The spies spent the night with Rahab the prostitute, who hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. Joshua chapter 2 verse 6 Just after it is harvested, flax needs to be laid out and redded before it is processed into linen. Joshua chapter 3 verse 15 also puts the time of year at the harvest. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Both these statements are in accord with the large amount of grain found in the town by the archaeologists. In return for hiding the spies, Rahab was promised safety for herself and all of her family, as long as she put a crimson cord in the window through which she let the spies down. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. A look at the excavations of Selin and Watzinger shows how closely the Middle Bronze Age wall fits the description in Joshua. What Kenyon called the upper wall on the crest of the rampart is also an inner wall, and the parapet wall atop the stone revetment is the outer wall. The description of the crimson cord hanging from the window on the town wall points not simply to a promise of safety, but to a stratagem for gaining access to the town. Rahab's house was probably close to the town gate on the east wall, to better welcome her potential clients. A picked force of Israelites, entering at night through her window, marked by the cord, up the rope that the spies used, could have rushed to the gatehouse, overcome the guards, opened the gate, let in the rest of the Israelite fighters, and taken the town. After hiding for three days, the spies crossed the Jordan River and reported back to Joshua at Shittim. 
This is the same Shittim mentioned in Numbers, where plague devastated the Israelites. Numbers reports that all the spies, save Caleb and Joshua, who had been sent out in the earlier reconnaissance of Canaan, just after the Exodus, died of plague. It would certainly have made sense to later Israelite storytellers for the unfaithful spies in Numbers to have died of the plague, but it is more likely that it was these later spies, from Rahab's time, who succumbed to the disease. Acting on the spies' report, Joshua and the rest of the Israelites moved to the edge of the overflowing Jordan River and prepared to cross. Joshua told the people, The waters of the Jordan flowing from above shall be cut off. They shall stand in a single heap. And the waters flowing from above stood still, rising up in a single heap far off at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, while those flowing toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, were wholly cut off. Then the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Earthquakes and the Jordan River Earthquakes of varying magnitudes are common among the faults of the Dead Sea Depression. Earthquakes have long been measured by the Richter Local Magnitude Scale, but seismologists also use another type of scale called the Modified Mercalli Intensity Scale. This measures how intense the shaking is at any given spot. It is particularly useful because it describes the sorts of damage different intensities will produce. For example, with an earthquake of Mercalli Intensity 7, poorly built structures break, brick chimneys break at the base, sand and gravel banks cave in, walls are damaged but they probably do not collapse. Studies by Israeli geologists have shown that earthquakes with a local magnitude greater than 5.5 on the Richter scale occur about once every 600 years near Jericho. But they don't seem to occur at evenly divided intervals. In fact, like earthquakes in many other parts of the world, the earthquakes along the Dead Sea Fault tend to cluster. Three earthquakes with an estimated magnitude of 6.2 or more occurred within a hundred years in the Dead Sea Jordan River Fault Zone in the 19th and 20th centuries in 1834, 1837, and 1927. The most recent of these on July 11, 1927, was recorded on modern seismographs. Northward of the town of Adam, which is about 28 kilometers north of Jericho, the Jordan River flows about 20 kilometers between high cliffs composed of soft marls of the Lausanne Formation. Earthquake-caused landslides from these cliffs have dammed the flow of the Jordan River repeatedly in the past. After the 1927 earthquake, the river was cut off for 22 hours. In 1546, landslides from a large earthquake caused an identical stoppage for two days. In 1267, another earthquake caused stoppage from midnight until 10 the following morning, after which the Bridge of Demaya had to be repaired. These events are identical to the scene described in Joshua. The stoppage of the river in Joshua's time seems to have lasted for less than a day, similar to the duration of the 1267 earthquake. Destruction of Jericho's Walls after crossing the Jordan Riverbed, the Israelites set up camp at Gilgal on the west side of the Jordan. There they kept their covenant renewal feast, called the Passover in the biblical text, and ate the produce of the land. That is, they harvested what crops had not yet been brought in by the people of Jericho. 
The biblical text implies that the Israelite appropriation of Jericho's harvest and the siege of the town directly followed the Passover celebration. However, both barley and wheat were found in the storage jars that archaeologists recovered from the destruction of the town. Apparently the Israelites interrupted the Jericho wheat harvest, which took place in May, after the barley had been harvested. The people of Jericho were now besieged. During the next few days, according to the book of Joshua, the Israelites marched around the city with warriors, priests, ark, and ram's horns. In Joshua 6, there is a good deal of confusion about the trumpets, that is, the ram's horns. The order given in verse 10 to keep silent until a war cry is raised does not agree with the many occasions when the trumpets are blown, sometimes by the soldiers and sometimes by the priests. In verses 14 and 15, one circuit of the town was made on the first six days and seven on the seventh day. The priests blow the ram's horns on each circuit on the seventh day, verse 4, or only on the seventh circuit, verses 5 and 16, or during all the circuits during all seven days, verses 8, 9, and 13. On the seventh day, seven is another ritual or perfect number, the Israelites blew their ram's horns, gave a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Trumpets and shouting do not bring down walls, but earthquake aftershocks can, especially since the mud-brick walls on both the parapet and the upper walls of the town would have sustained structural damage from the first quake. Almost all large earthquakes have aftershocks, the largest and most substantial ones usually in the month following the main quake. Earthquake Waves and Building Collapse Earthquakes along faults produce two types of seismic waves. One, body waves, primary and secondary, from deep in the earth, and surface waves. Body waves travel from the earthquake's epicenter at higher frequencies and speeds than surface waves. Primary body waves at higher frequencies can be heard by the human ear, often allowing people to hear an earthquake before they feel shaking from the surface waves. There is thus a good possibility that it wasn't ram's horns that everybody heard just before the walls of Jericho started to fall. Buildings and walls have natural frequencies. Low buildings have higher natural frequencies than tall buildings. Sometimes the frequencies of earthquake waves match the natural frequencies of the buildings and walls they pass under. When this happens, a great deal of damage is done to the buildings and walls. A higher-frequency seismic body wave, one that can be heard, is more likely to match the natural frequency of the low buildings and structures, such as those at Jericho. In front of the Jericho revetment wall, and on top of the crushed stone piled deliberately against it, Kathleen Kenyon found piles of red mud bricks piling nearly to the top of the revetment. These bricks apparently came from the parapet wall or from the upper wall of the MB city. Given Jericho's location, its eastern wall built on top of an active fault and surrounded by many other active faults, an earthquake or aftershock is the most likely cause of the collapse of the red mud brick walls. Israelite Conquest of Jericho Joshua relates what happened next. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. 
It has been suggested that they clambered up the piles of downed brick to enter the city. Although the inhabitants were slaughtered, Rahab and her family were brought out, items of precious metals were taken, and the rest of the city, according to Joshua, was burned. Fires would have already started from the earthquake's aftershock. Unchecked, they completed the destruction of the town. Supposedly, Jericho's oxen, sheep, and donkeys were devoted to destruction. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Keep away from the things devoted to destruction, so as not to covet and take any of the devoted things, and make the camp of Israel an object for destruction, bringing trouble upon it. Could the recent plague in the town have anything to do with making most things in the city objects of destruction? During the Israelite attack on Jericho, Rahab and her family were brought from the city and set outside the Israelite camp, in effect quarantined there, just as King Zimri Lin of Mari required the quarantine of the woman affected with skin lesions. Rahab and her family were said to have lived among the Israelites until the present day. In fact, there is no evidence for anyone living at Jericho between the MB destruction and the middle of the late Bronze Age. In the late 14th century BCE, a single dwelling structure and its outbuildings occupied one edge of the tell. Although it is possible that the residents of this structure were or claimed to be descendants of Rahab, the story of her survival may simply have developed in the late Bronze Age to explain this single residence on an otherwise deserted mound. Chapter 9 The Conquest and Settlement of Canaan After the destruction of Jericho, Joshua returned to his base at Gilgal, not far to the north of the ruined town, and pondered what to do next. The plains and broad alluvial valleys of Canaan were heavily populated and still contained the fortified Middle Bronze Age cities. Because of this, the hill country was to be preferred. The Canaanites' chariots could not be used there, and the steep terrain precluded deployment of heavily armed troops. A gifted military commander, Joshua realized that the terrain of the hill country worked to the advantage of his lightly armed and more mobile Israelite warriors. His options, and those of his people, were limited by the nature of the land itself. The Land of Canaan Canaan, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, stretches for about 220 kilometers, about 140 miles. South of Beersheba, the Negev Desert extends for another 190 kilometers to the Gulf of Aqaba. The distance from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River is only about 80 kilometers, 50 miles, from the flat coastal plain up through the foothills to the rugged highlands and down to the desert just east of the Jordan Valley and Dead Sea Rifts. Rainfall is greater in the highlands, but the highland soils, the red terrorosas, and the brown forest soils and rangenas are often shallow and rocky, better for pasturage in many areas than for arable farming. Farthest north in the highlands or hill country is Upper Galilee, a land of steep relief with high peaks, including the highest mountain in the area, Har Meron, 1,208 meters. Southward in Lower Galilee, the mountain ridges are lower and separated by several east-west trending valleys. Lower Galilee is divided from the central highland hills by the Jezreel Valley, 
which contains the most important east-west route through Canaan. South of the Jezreel are the low chalky hills and intersecting valleys of Manasseh, bordered on the south by Shechem. South of Shechem is a rugged highland area, formerly heavily forested with few inner valleys, the hill country of Ephraim and Benjamin. Ephraim has rugged limestone bedrock and lacks the broad plateaus of Benjamin and Judah. It is the most inaccessible part of the hill country. To the south, the saddle of Jerusalem separates Ephraim and Benjamin from the Hebron hills. Another important east-west route leads from the coastal plain through the Judean hills to Jerusalem, then down into the desert to Jericho and across the Jordan to the Transjordan Plateau. The Israelite Attack on Ai According to Egyptian sources, Jerusalem was the most important town in the southern hill region at that time. Rather than take his chances against this powerful city or its territory, Joshua sent spies to reconnoiter a more northerly route up the wadis of the Judean watershed to the fortified town of Bethel, which commanded the ascent to the watershed. Joshua's spies discovered that Ai, not Bethel itself, guarded the ascent at the edge of the watershed, and that only a small force would be needed to attack it. The original Hebrew meaning of Ai is not the ruin, as was once thought, but the extreme limit, a good description of Ai's strategic location at the edge or limit of the watershed and the cultivable land. Ai has long presented a serious problem in biblical archaeology. Despite the fact that the narrative in Joshua chapters 7 and 8 contains graphic and accurate descriptions of the local terrain, as well as a highly reasonable account of the military action, the archaeological picture reveals no occupation at the proposed site of Ai from the end of the Early Bronze Age to the beginning of the Iron Age. Furthermore, the site was abandoned not long after 1050 BCE. One attempt to solve this problem by relocating Bethel and Ai has met with little acceptance and has degenerated into a squabble over the location and significance of certain Roman milestones. The archaeological excavations at the generally agreed-upon site of Ai, at Tel, show that the Iron Age village was built within the upper reaches of the earlier, well-fortified Early Bronze Age town. The Iron Age occupants of the site took advantage of the still-extant EB fortifications, located to the northwest, west, and southwest, and of the EB walls on the north and south, and on the east, where there had been a major gate. Even in the 20th century, part of the EB walls were standing to a height of seven meters, well over 20 feet, and the remains of a city gate were still apparent. At the western edge of Ai, a narrow saddle of land connects it to a series of rises between the town and Bethel itself. The high ground of these rises visually screens Ai from Bethel. Zioni Zevet has suggested that the two battles for Ai described in Joshua were invented sometime after the Iron Age occupation of the town, possibly to explain the ruins. In the first battle, the small Israelite force is defeated by the men of Ai, who kill 36 of the attackers. Zevet translates the Hebrew word Sebarim in the next sentence as a ruin. They, the men of Ai, pursued them, the Israelites, in front of the gate to the ruined walls, that is, the remaining E.B. walls of the town, and down the slope.
After this defeat, Joshua chapter 7 verse 7 and 9 describes the Israelites' acute vulnerability among the far more numerous people surrounding them, another piece of evidence that they were not a great host. Instead, they fear they will be surrounded and destroyed. To preclude this dire threat, Joshua decides to launch another and better planned attack on Ai. First he sends a small force, an ambush party of 30,000, probably 100 or fewer men, by night to hide in the hilly rises that border the narrow saddle of land to the west of Ai. Joshua and the main force, probably several hundred men, then come up under the cover of darkness and camp across a ravine just north of Ai. He also sends a small screening force to block the approaches from Bethel, or at least to give warning should reinforcements be sent from Bethel to Ai. Early the next morning, the king of Ai and all the inhabitants of the city went out and met the Israelites, who then pretended to flee. Thus encouraged, the people of Ai pursued them. The story relates next that Joshua went up to the top of the slope and pointed, waved, or flashed his sword or dagger to signal the ambush party hiding to the west of Ai. At this prearranged signal, the ambush party rushed into the city, setting fires, their signal to Joshua that they had entered Ai. At this, Joshua and all Israel turned back from their pretended flight and struck down the men of Ai. Joshua chapter 8 verse 21 After the inhabitants were slaughtered, the town was looted and burned, and the king of Ai was hung upon a tree, his body thrown down at the city gate. The degree of realism in this story is so marked that efforts to suggest it was invented in the Iron Age to explain a set of ruins are more than a little lame. Two Israeli military experts, Haim Herzog and Mordecai Gihon, had another suggestion. If so many of the early Bronze Age fortifications were still standing in the Iron Age, even more would have existed several hundred years earlier, in the end of the Middle Bronze Age, expressing their appreciation of the great strength of ruins prepared as defensive positions. Herzog and Gihon suggest that a contingent of people from Bethel, in order to forestall an attack on their town, occupied Ai as a fortified outpost once they heard of the Israelite conquest and destruction of Jericho. Such a short-term occupation would probably leave no archaeological trace, especially since nearly all the fighting took place outside the remains of the town's walls. Even the intentional setting fire to the city, Joshua chapter 8 verse 19, might really have been only the lighting of a signal fire or two to let Joshua and the other Israelites know that the detached force had entered the ruins of the town proper. Upon seeing the rising smoke, Joshua and his force at once turned around and reversed their retreat, while the picked men came out of Ai to surround the enemy and kill them. In typical oral exaggeration, the Israelites promoted the executed enemy leader to King of Ai. None of the biblical descriptions of the encounters at Ai, the initial confidence of the spies reconnoitering the area, the men and people of Ai running out after the Israelites on two separate occasions, the Israelite picked force entering the town and passing rapidly and easily through it to catch the people of Ai from the rear. 
suggests a walled and securely gated town with a settled population and intact buildings that would have prevented such easy movement. According to Joshua chapter 8 verse 25, only men and women composed the people of Ai. No children, although women would likely have been at the outpost to cook and tend to various domestic needs, they would have left their children within the safer confines of Bethel. If there is an invented part of the story, it is the statement in Joshua chapter 8 verse 28 that Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap of ruins. It already was a ruin. The Israelite-Gibeonite Alliance and Battles Against the Canaanites After the battles at the Ai, the Israelites returned to their base camp at Gilgal, where they made a peace treaty with the four cities of the Gibeonites, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and kiarath Jiriam. This alliance with the Gibeonites, for it probably was an alliance, gave the Israelites control of the roads leading up from the foothills of the Shephelah to the highlands, especially the Bet-Horon Road. According to Joshua 10, the king of Jerusalem, upon hearing of the treaty, joined with the kings of Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, and besieged the Gibeonites. Jerusalem was the dominant town in the southern hill country, and had a substantial interest in the east-west route that passed through it down to Jericho, a route the Israelites now blocked. It would make a good deal of sense for Jerusalem's ruler to muster military contingents from some of his allies, or subordinate rulers, to move against an Israelite-Gibeonite alliance. The Gibeonites appealed for help to their allies, the Israelites. Joshua and his men launched a surprise attack at dawn and defeated the Canaanite forces, chasing them down the defiles of the Bethoran Pass and into the Ajalan Valley. Herzog and Gihon suggest that early morning fog, common in the Ajalan Valley, played an important role in the battle, allowing the more lightly armed Israelites to defeat their enemy with help from the local Gibeonites, who rolled stones down on the fleeing Canaanites. This military action brought the Israelites out of the hill country and into the foothills, or the Shephela. The hills of the Shephela are made of Eocene limestone, separated from the Judean highlands by a narrow trough of exposed Sononian chalk. The Israelites, probably with some of their Gibeonite allies, followed up their pursuit to prevent the enemy from reaching friendly fortified towns. Pursue your enemies and attack them from the rear. Do not let them enter their towns. Joshua chapter 10 verse 19. Only the remnants of the Canaanite force reached the town of Ezekiel by way of the valley of Elah. The next part of the account is somewhat confused, but the Canaanite forces seem to have fled south down the trough to the town of Mekeda. The Israelites, probably with their Gibeonite allies, followed and supposedly trapped the five kings in a cave. More likely, the Israelites left a force to keep the Canaanites holed up in Mekeda, while another group went on to wipe out whatever survivors they could find. Joshua chapter 10 verse 20. After this, all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Mekeda. No one dared to speak against any of the Israelites. Joshua chapter 10 verse 21. This last phrase again suggests that the Israelites were only one part of the attacking alliance or coalition. Joshua 10 goes on to relate how Joshua killed the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Lachish, Jarmuth, and Eglon, 
and then took Makeda. Following this, he and the Israelites captured the cities of Livna, Lachish, Hebron, Eglon, and Deber. Joshua 11 relates how, after returning to Gilgal, the Israelites turned north to defeat a consortium of northern kings at the Battle of the Waters of Maram, and then burned Hazor. Joshua 12 follows with a list of the kings defeated by the Israelites under Joshua. In contrast, other parts of Joshua and Judges give different and sometimes contradictory stories of these conquests. Most interesting is a list of the towns that the various Israelite tribes did not drive out or conquer. Some of these towns are on the conquered king's list in Joshua 12. Could the relatively small number of Israelite warriors, even with their coalition allies, have successfully assaulted the highly fortified Middle Bronze Age Canaanite cities? Would the ruler of Hazor, so far north of the Israelite base camp at Gilgal, even bother with the incursions of such a small group, let alone form a coalition against them? The king of Hazor in this story has the same name as the king of Hazor in a later story, in which the army of Jabin of Canaan, or Hazor, is destroyed by the forces of Deborah and Barak. A king Jabin of Kishon is mentioned in an Egyptian 13th century BCE topographical list, and Kishon is also mentioned in Judges, while archaeological evidence shows that Hazor was destroyed in the 13th century BCE. The battle and subsequent destruction of Hazor in Joshua is most likely a 13th century BCE story that got included with the conquest, as did other stories of later conquests by the Israelites. These are more examples of the lightning rod effect in oral traditions when significant foundational events and leaders, such as the conquest and Joshua, attract unrelated events from other time periods. Another story that made its way into the conquest traditions is from an earlier time period. In Judges, Judah and Simeon defeat Adonai Bezek at Bezek and go on to take Jerusalem and Hebron. Bezek is in the territory of Manasseh, north of Shechem, and Adonai Bezek means Lord of Bezek. But the defeated king was more likely the ruler of Shechem. If so, this story harkens back to the story of the killing of Hamor and his son Shechem by Simeon and Levi in Genesis. In fact, both stories are probably two highly altered oral traditions of a single battle fought at Bezek, between Jacob and his familial band on the one hand, and the Shechemites on the other. This battle probably relates back to Genesis, which suggests, contrary to the versions in Genesis and Joshua, that Jacob conquered Shechem. These are all indications that the story in Judges was originally an earlier story from the time of Jacob, not a story from the conquest period. The taking of Jerusalem and its king Adonai Zedek in Joshua chapter 10, verses 1, 3, and 23 through 26, is not historical and results from the similarity of the two kings' names, Adonai Bezek and Adonai Zedek. The Destruction of Canaan at the End of the Middle Bronze Age The archaeological record presents an even greater puzzle than the biblical text, for not only were all the identifiable towns in Joshua destroyed or abandoned at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, but so were a great many more. In fact, there was wholesale destruction of nearly all the towns and villages in Canaan, starting in the mid-16th century BCE. 
Of the 249 recorded Middle Bronze Age sites in the Central Hill Country, only 27 survived into Late Bronze II in the hills of Manasseh. Only five in Ephraim, and only one Jerusalem in the hill country of Benjamin. Only three of eight settlements survived in the hill country of Judah. In the coastal areas and northern regions, the destruction or abandonment was less severe, but it still approached 60 to 65 percent. At the height of the Middle Bronze Age, the estimated population of Canaan was 140,000. In the succeeding Late Bronze Age, it was less than half as large, about 60 to 70,000 people. What then happened to all these MB towns, villages, and cities, and their inhabitants? The long-favored explanation was that the Egyptians under the pharaoh Amos and his son Amenophis I conducted campaigns of destruction throughout the country after destroying the main Hyksos center of Sharuan. It has even been suggested that many of the people of this central hill country were killed or sent to Egypt in mass deportations. The problem with this explanation is that there is virtually no Egyptian textual evidence to support military activity in Canaan on such a massive scale during this time, and later Egyptian pharaohs did not usually destroy sites. They preferred to extract tribute from cities, not demolish them. In fact, the destructions and abandonments in Canaan seem to have taken place over the course of the whole 16th century BCE, with the inland regions being ravaged first and the coastal settlements and major valleys slightly later, the exact opposite of what the Egyptians would have done. A second explanation is that the Hyksos, escaping from Avaris and Sharuan and fleeing to other cities and towns, intensified population pressure and intercity warfare throughout Canaan. The conquest of Avaris and Sharuan would have ended the trade network that supported most of the people in the hill country, leaving this densely populated area with no market for their grain, olive oil, or wine. But many of the smaller sites in the hill country had already been abandoned in the final part of the Middle Bronze Age during the Hyksos dynasty. Their populations seem to have been drawn to the large cities of the southern coastal plain or strongholds in the highlands. Archaeologist Israel Finkelstein has proposed that widespread social breakdown caused much of the population of the Central Hill Country to become nomadic pastoralists, and thus archaeologically invisible. There is evidence for a sizable pastoralist population in the Hill Country in the Late Bronze Age, but were these pastoralists descendants of the Middle Bronze Age populations of the area, or newcomers, such as the Israelites? Nadav Naaman of Tel Aviv University believes that the Hurrians, northern peoples from Anatolia, migrated into Canaan in large numbers during the late 17th and 16th centuries and started the chain of events that ended with so many large and small sites destroyed and abandoned. Egyptian textual evidence shows a marked increase in Hurrian names in Canaan from the 17th to the 15th centuries BCE. Unfortunately, there is no textual evidence from the 16th century BCE. However, these textual sources seem to indicate that the Hurrians were partial to cities, not the hinterland of the central hill country. There are also natural phenomena explanations, plague, earthquake, and fire. 
The most ambitious of these is the hypothesis of Niev, Bakler, and Emery, who maintain that the Mediterranean coast of the Sinai and Israel has been subject to fault activity and earthquakes for many thousands of years. According to them, the coast has risen and fallen three or four times in the last four thousand years. One tectonic oscillation occurred at the break between the Middle and the Late Bronze Ages, and another between the Late Bronze and the Iron Ages. They maintain that the 16th century BCE transition from the Middle to the Late Bronze Age was marked by catastrophic tectonism and a change to a more humid climate with more swamps and sand dunes near the coast. These ideas are controversial, however, and such coastal oscillations do not explain the destruction of the highland towns and villages. And finally, there is the no-real-cause explanation. Middle Bronze Age urban culture in Canaan was a self-organizing open complex system in which a period of stability was followed by short interval of strong fluctuation or chaos, characterized by nomadization and migrations, from which a new level of stability emerged, the Late Bronze Age urban culture. In this systemic approach, a small random minor cause may have triggered the collapse of the entire network of Middle Bronze Age settlement. All of these possibilities do suggest a multifaceted picture of collapse at the end of the Middle Bronze Age. The fall of Roman Britain in the 5th and 1st part of the 6th centuries in the Common Era serves as a useful comparison. In 410 CE, the Britons were cut off from their political and military capital, Rome, due to a barbarian invasion on the continent. At the end of the Middle Bronze Age, the cities of Canaan were cut off from their trade centers of Avaris and Sharuan, both conquered by the Egyptians. In Britain, barbarian invaders soon came from the north, the Picts, the west, the Irish to Wales, and across the North Sea, the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. In Canaan, Egyptians penetrated as far as Sharuan and Gaza in the west, Hurrians came from the north, Israelites from the east, and Kinezites and others from the south. Native British efforts to repel their invaders were partially successful up to the middle of the 6th century, but then bubonic plague cut a swath through British communities, leaving the Germanic invaders relatively unscathed. In Canaan, at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, although the effects and extent of the plague are unknown outside of Jericho, the disease must have decreased urban populations and left them vulnerable. Naaman, writing of the Hurrian, says, The newcomers gradually sacked and ruined towns and villages in the inner parts of Canaan, blocked the roads and disrupted trade, despoiled the crops in the fields, and finally conquered and destroyed major Canaanite centers. Undoubtedly, the invading Israelites also did some of these things as they penetrated and settled the central hill country north of Jerusalem an area that had probably already lost a good deal of its population to the cities. It is not coincidental that, of all the areas of Canaan, the hill country of Benjamin and Ephraim contained the highest percentage of destroyed Middle Bronze Age sites, followed by the hill country of Manasseh. Tribal Divisions and Tribal Boundaries Although passages in the Bible describe the allotments of the twelve tribes, the Israelites at this time were composed of separate lineages or clans that developed in time into tribal identities. 
The clearest indication of this is found in Joshua, in which the tribe of Joseph complains that they do not have enough land, and Joshua tells them to clear the forest in the hill country. As archaeologist Lawrence Steger notes, the number and composition of the tribes fluctuated through time with changes in demography and geography. As fusion and fission occurred among clans, some rose to tribal status. The process of fission was dominant among the northern tribes, while fusion characterized the southern Israelites. The oldest tribal divisions are reflected in boundaries that geomorphological evidence dates to the earliest part of the Late Bronze Age, or even earlier, when the Dead Sea extended both farther north and farther south than it did later on. From about 2140 to 1445, or 1500 BCE, the Dead Sea was in the process of falling from an earlier high stand that existed prior to the 15th century BCE to below 380 meters below sea level. The northern and southern tongues, or bays, could have existed only when the water level was above 370 to 375 meters below sea level. Sometime between 1440 and 1120 BCE, the Dead Sea reached the extreme low level of 410.5 meters below sea level. Lake levels remained low between about 1,000 and 550 BCE. The southern boundary of Canaan and of Judah, Joshua chapter 15 verse 2, refers to a southern tongue of the Dead Sea that could have existed only during this period of higher 380 to 370 meters below sea level, in or before the early Late Bronze Age. In a similar fashion, Joshua chapter 15 verses 5 through 6 and chapter 18 verse 19 describe the Judah-Benjamin border from the northern bay of the Dead Sea at the mouth of the Jordan River to the slope or shoulder of Beth Hogla and then westward. Beth Hogla, near Ain Hajla or Dar Hajla, is about five to six kilometers north of the present mouth of the Jordan, so running the border from the river mouth to this area would require a meaningless loop north. But with the Dead Sea, at about 375 meters below sea level, the border would start at the top of the northern bay, go due west to Beth Hogla and westward from there. Even the boundary between Reuben and Gad on the east side of the Jordan River indicates a northern bay and high Dead Sea level, because all the cities of the Jordan Valley were given to Gad, except for Beth Jeshemoth. With a high early late Bronze Age, pre-15th century BCE, dead sea level, Beth Jeshemoth is not in the River Valley, Gad's territory, but instead is on the east side of the Dead Sea itself, in the territory of Reuben. Such early geomorphically determined dates for these boundaries functionally preclude an Israelite conquest of Canaan in the 13th century BCE, that is, during or after the reign of Ramesses II. They also eliminate a conquest at the end of the 15th century BCE, following an exodus date derived from 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1. Israelite Settlement in the Central and Northern Hill Country Many of the early traditions in Joshua were probably part of a combined tradition of the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, and also Benjamin, before Benjamin split off from the original group. Benjamin means son of the south, and his position as last born of Rachel 
indicates this tribe's later emergence from a larger Israelite group. Also separating Ephraim and Manasseh were Gilead, another name for Gad, and several clans of Manasseh who settled west of the Jordan. There are hints that other tribes also originated in the Ephraim-Manasseh heartland. Bariah, the son and founder of the northern tribe of Asher, is listed as a son of Ephraim in First Chronicles. His sister is listed as a daughter of Ephraim, while his grandson, Berzaeth, lends his name to the Iron Age settlement of Beer Ezite, 15 miles north of Jerusalem. Also, a section named Asher is mentioned as a part of Manasseh in Joshua chapter 17, verse 7. Even more interesting is the 13th century BCE Egyptian papyrus Anastasi I that mentions some Shasu, nomads or Bedouin, living in the tall bush near a pass in the central hill country of Manasseh. Their hearts are not mild, and they do not listen to wheedling. The name of these Shasu is Asher. The sons of Issachar lived in the hill country of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the archaeological evidence points to a Manashite origin for the settlers of the territory of Issachar. The boundary lists in Joshua 15-19 indicate that the early tribal confederacy included only Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali. By the time of Deborah, it had expanded to include Issachar, Dan, Reuben, and Gilead, Gad, as well. The fact that many Canaanite cities are on the periphery of the tribal territories is a clear indication that the nomadic Israelites settled around and between the cities, which served them as trading centers. They did not conquer these cities, at least not at the time the boundaries were formed. In Galilee, the tribal boundaries for the most part followed valleys, again indicating that the Israelites themselves lived in the sparsely populated mountainous regions. In the 14th century BCE, the Galilean region was said to be inhabited by Epiru. Israelite Settlement of Southern Canaan The settlement of the southern Israelites, known biblically as the tribes of Judah and Simeon and part of the tribe of Levi, is much less straightforward than that of the northern Israelites. Certain biblical traditions point to an Israelite invasion of Canaan from the south by a group that split off from the main body somewhere in the Wadi Araba. Judges chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, says that the descendants of Hobab, the Kenite, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, Ein Hosb, in the Wadi Al-Araba, not far from Petra, into the Negev near Arad, and tells how Judah and Simeon took and destroyed Hormah on the border between the Judean hill country and the Negev. In numbers, the conquest of Hormah was a prelude to the unsuccessful invasion attempt under Moses. Levite towns were in the south. Evidence that most of the Levites originally settled in southern Judah, along with the Simeonites, who settled near Beersheba. Some Levites, however, remained in Ephraim. Among them, the ancestors of the Mosaic priesthood later found at Shiloh and Dan. The Levites also probably became the repositories of the Israelites' traditional history when their responsibility as guardians of the Ark evolved from a military to a ritualistic role as religious practices developed around the Ark. The conquest of Hebron, the main city of the southern hill country, is credited to both Joshua and to Caleb, one of the two faithful spies from the first reconnaissance under Moses. Deber, not far from Hebron, was conquered by Othniel, 
Caleb's nephew. In fact, Hebron and Deber were probably both conquered by Kenites or Kenizzites, and the story of this conquest later integrated into the overall southern Israelite oral tradition. The only archaeological evidence for the conquest of Hebron is much later, at the end of Late Bronze Age II, just before the onset of the Iron Age. However, most of the ancient city is still unexcavated. The northern Judean hill country was settled by the Ephrathites. The name means men of Ephraim. And this group, which includes the ancestors of King David, clearly came from Ephraim. In Chronicles, it is recorded that Caleb married Ephrathah, who bore him a son named Asher, the father of Tekoa, actually Kirbet Teku, five miles south of Bethlehem. This genealogy reflects the peaceful coming together of the Ephrathites and the Calebites. Othniel, son of Kenaz, is Israel's first judge, who delivers his people from the tyranny of King Cushan Risatham of Aram Neharaim. The name Aram in Aram Neharaim was probably originally Edom, and the king's name, Cushan of Double Wickedness, reflects the ancient name for Edom, Cushu. Thus, the story of Othniel came from a group of Cushites who fought a Cushan-Edomite tribal leader and then merged with the southern Israelites. The tangled genealogies and varied stories in the biblical accounts point to close relationships among the pastoral nomads of the Judean hill country, those of Edom and Seir, as reflected in the Othniel stories, as well as the Jeremelites of the Negev, in a study of biblical family names Avi Ofer, found that Judah shared 35% of its names with the people of Edom and 33% with the tribe of Simeon. Only the Israelite tribe of Reuben had a higher percentage of shared names with Judah, 37%. In fact, scholars have long noted that the tribes Reuben and Judah share two clan names, Hesron and Carmi. In the Bible, Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob and its tribal border, as discussed earlier in this chapter, existed in the earliest part of the Late Bronze Age. Reuben's territory was east of the Jordan in what later became the northern part of Moab. However, Frank Moore Cross noted that place names associated with Reuben are found on the west bank of the Jordan along the northern boundary of Judah. It may be noted that all of these sites follow the main ancient road from the ford across the Jordan immediately north of the Dead Sea, up the Wadi Daber, by the Stone of Boan, son of Reuben, modern Hajar al-Azba, through the Imak Akor, Valley of Trouble, the modern Buka, then north to Jerusalem or south to Hebron. Cross suggested that a western division or offshoot of Reuben penetrated from Shittim to Gilgal on the Jordan, and along this ancient route through the Valley of Trouble into the territory that later became known as Judah. Judah was probably originally a geographic name referring to the hill country from north of Bethlehem to south of Hebron. As often happens in oral traditions, it became anthropomorphized into a person. Eventually, all these disparate population elements, Western Reubenites, Simeonites, Calebites, Kenizzites, Edomites, Ephrathites, and Jeremelites came peacefully together under the tribal rubric Judah possibly during the reign of King David in the 10th century BCE. Populations and Malaria in Late Bronze Age Canaan 
archaeological evidence of a series of isolated cultic shrines or sanctuaries unrelated to any settlements or beyond the boundaries of towns, and of cemeteries not adjacent to any permanent sites, suggests a substantial population of pastoral nomads living in the central hill country of Canaan in the late Bronze Age. They would have lived principally in the desert fringe. The desert fringe of Manasseh alone could have supported 1,500 to 2,000 nomads, and in the eastern part of the hill country, trading with the peoples of the towns, Shechem and Bethel, etc., burying their dead in cemeteries located away from cities and maintaining their own religious cult centers at Shiloh, and near, but not in, Shechem and Lachish. Naaman gives a rough estimate of seven to ten thousand for the overall number of nomads in Canaan in the late Bronze Age, a number not out of line with the expected increase of the Israelites. Archaeologists and ethnographers have recently come to realize that past population fluctuations were much greater than previously suspected. Certain ethnic groups have expanded in both numbers and territory, while others have gone extinct. In South America, for example, the Yanomami, who live in the Amazonian rainforest, have expanded by two or three times in the past hundred years. The survival of young children is the most important factor in determining population increase, and thus societies in which these children are more likely to survive will outcompete their neighbors in terms of population growth. Climate factors, especially those that affect the survival of children, are also very important. In pre-modern times, the lowland areas and interior valleys of Canaan contained many interior drainage networks, resulting in more standing water and swamps. These swamps were breeding grounds for malaria mosquitoes. Malaria takes a high death toll on young children, particularly in areas of higher population density, such as towns and cities. Town dwellers in the lowlands and valleys of Canaan in the late Bronze Age, with their higher population densities, would be subject to endemic malaria, particularly if they slept outside on rooftops in hot weather, as people in that part of the world have long done. Most malaria mosquitoes bite at night. Pastoralists, in contrast, have lower population densities, and thus lower incidences of malarial infection. They are surrounded by animals who are more likely to be targets for mosquitoes and sleep in tents. The Israelite pastoralists of the late Bronze Age, living in the hills and highland areas away from the swamps and standing water, with their animals, their lower population densities, and their tents, would have been far less affected by this scourge, and thus have fewer deaths of their infants and young children. Consequently, the Israelites would have experienced a higher population growth rate than their town-dwelling and valley and lowland Canaanite neighbors. Apiru and Shasu in Late Bronze Age Canaan Late Bronze Age texts contain many reports of Habiru or Apiru in Canaan and elsewhere. As noted before, the term probably included the Israelites but was not limited to them. During this period, the term Apiru developed a more negative meaning than it had had in the Middle Bronze Age. It now referred to bands of uprooted people who came down from the highlands into the lowland areas of Canaan and caused trouble for some local rulers and acted as mercenaries for others. Jephthah the Gileadite was a typical Apiru of the Late Bronze Age. The son of a prostitute, Jephthah was forced by his legitimate brothers to flee Gilead. 
He became the head of an outlaw band. But when Ammonites attacked from the area of today's Amman, Jordan, the people of Gilead asked Jephthah and his band to defend them. After he beat the Ammonites, Jephthah fought with the Ephraimites, although they were, like himself, fellow Israelites. The most interesting reference to the Epiru appears in the early 14th century BCE Amarna correspondence from Egypt. These clay tablets, found in the royal city of the pharaoh Akhenaten, include many letters sent by Canaanite rulers to the Egyptian court. These rulers often complain to their Egyptian overlord about raiding Habiru and plead for contingents of Egyptian archers to help defend against these marauders. In one of them, the ruler of Shechem is accused of being in league with the Epiro. Another letter from another Canaanite leader accuses the ruler of Shechem of being an Epiro himself. Several generations later, the Epiro were still active around Shechem, much as the Israelites are reported to have been during the time of Abimelech. Another term that probably includes the early Israelites is the Egyptian word Shasu which in the New Kingdom period referred to nomadic peoples, usually but not always, living to the south of the Dead Sea. By the end of the 13th century BCE, Shasu are said to be from Edom, but an Egyptian list that reflects an earlier 15th century topographical list names six groups of Shasu, including the Shasu of Seir, the Shasu of Ribbon, the Shasu of Samoth, probably a clan of Kenites, the Shasu of Werber, probably near the Wadi el-Hessa, and the Shasu of Yo. In this context, Yo is the name of a place, but most scholars agree it is an early form of the name of the Israelite god Yahweh. And although some scholars simply equate the Shasu with the Edomites, the different names in the Egyptian list point to a more complicated situation in which some of the groups of Shasu were connected to occupants of what eventually became the tribal territory of Judah. The Judean hill country during the late Bronze Age was sparsely inhabited, the only substantial settlement being Kirbet Rabud, a site of only two hectares. Almost all of the population in the territory that became Judah was nomadic and would qualify for the Egyptian term Shasu. The western offshoot of the Reubenites may have been the Shasu of Ribbon. The Kenites would have been represented by the Shasu of Samoth, the Moabites by the Shasu of Werber, the Edomites by the Shasu of Seir, and the southern Israelites, Simeonites, Levites, possibly Jeremelites, by the Shasu of Yo. The very real probability that some of the people the 15th and 14th century BCE labeled Shasu by the Egyptians were in fact people who would become known as Israelites is important because during those centuries, Egyptian texts contain reports of large numbers of Shasu taken as captives or slaves to Egypt. Some of these, most notably the Shasu of Yao and the Shasu of Ribbon, would have found themselves in the land their ancestors had left so precipitously about 175 years before. This time around, just as described in the book of Exodus, the Israelites actually were slaves. Chapter 10 Back to Egypt Campaigns of the Warrior Pharaohs While the Israelites and other peoples were invading Canaan, 
that is, in the second half of the 16th century BCE, Egyptian kings contented themselves with the taking of the Canaanite cities of Sharuan and Gaza. Rather than referring to campaigns in Canaan, Egyptian records for this period contain accounts of expeditions and raids farther north, into Lebanon and Syria. Amos, the first ruler of Egypt's 18th dynasty, reigned for 25 years and was succeeded by his son, Amenophos I. Amenophos I's successor was Tuthmosis, or Thutmose I, who had married Amenophis I's sister. Tuthmosis I was a commoner of obscure origin, but he was the first of the 18th dynasty's warrior kings, leading campaigns into Nubia and to the northern Levant as far as the upper Euphrates River, where he erected a stela to commemorate the event. His son, Tuthmosis II, was married to his half-sister, Hatshepsut, Tuthmosis I's daughter. Upon the death of Tuthmosis II, Hatshepsut became regent for her stepson, Tuthmosis III, who was a young child at the time. Not long after assuming the regency, however, Hatshepsut took over power and became queen in her own right. It was only twenty-two years later that Tuthmosis III became the actual ruler of Egypt upon Hatshepsut's death. His reign, counted from his childhood accession, lasted for nearly fifty-four years. Tuthmosis III was the greatest warrior pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and he was the first to campaign actively in Canaan. His father, Tuthmosis II, had led a raid into the Sinai and Negev and returned with a number of Shasu prisoners, and Tuthmosis I's army had marched through Canaan on its way to Syria. But Tuthmosis III led an army through Canaan to put down a revolt of the Syrian princes, led by the ruler of Kadesh, an important city-state on the northern Orontes River. These princes and their armies moved south into northern Canaan just as Hatshepsut was dying. After only a month as sole ruler of Egypt, Tuthmosis III set out with his foot soldiers and chariots along the coastal road across the Sinai and north through Canaan until he came to a halt just south of the Carmel Ridge. North of the ridge were the armies of the Syrian princes, just outside the town of Megiddo. There were three routes open to the Egyptians, a detour to the north, another to the south, or a narrow steep route through the Aruna Pass directly across the ridge. Against the advice of all his generals, Tuthmosis III decided upon the direct route, up a steep and difficult path, where the chariots would at times have to be lifted manually. He and his chariot were first in line. At dawn the next day, a surprised Syrian army beheld the entire Egyptian army on their flank, before the Syrians could redeploy to face their opponents head-on, the Egyptians attacked down the hill. The forces of the Syrian princes broke and fled, chased by the victorious Egyptians. A few of their princes made it into Megiddo, but it did them little good in the long run. Tuthmosis III kept the town under siege until it surrendered seven months later. Once he had captured the city, Tuthmosis extracted loyalty oaths from the enemy princes and sent most of them back to their respective towns. When Tuthmosis returned to Egypt, he had a record of his victory and his subsequent campaigns carved in stone in the temple at Karnak, providing a detailed history of his military campaigns. Later in his reign, he had a tall black granite tablet engraved with the words of the god Amun-Re. 
inscriptions of previous monarchs had the ruler addressed the god. Here, Amun-Re himself speaks of the exploits of Tuthmosis. Tuthmosis III returned to Syria and Canaan often, exacting tribute and loyalty oaths. Later he installed commissars in Canaanite cities to keep the tribute flowing back to Egypt. Much of this tribute was in the form of slaves. In year 30 of Tuthmosis III's reign, 36 men, 181 male and female servants, in year 31, 492 prisoners of war, in year 33, 579 male and female servants with their children, in year 34, 602 male and female servants, in year 38, 50 prisoners of war, and 522 male and female servants. When large numbers of prisoners or slaves were acquired, the entire group was handed over as a unit to one of the great temples to work on the temple estates. The tomb of Rechmira, Tuthmosis III's vizier of the south, contains paintings of prisoners of war, some of them from Syria Canaan, making bricks for a ramp that was used in the construction of a temple. Also in the picture are stick-wielding Egyptian overseers. Egyptians, by the way, habitually used straw as chaff in their bricks. Tuthmosis III's last recorded campaign in Syria Canaan was in year 42 of his reign, but as late as year 50, when he was 55 to 60 years of age, the pharaoh was still campaigning in Nubia. For the last two years of his life, Tuthmosis III's son, Amenophis II, was co-ruler. This young man was 18 years old on his accession. In the last year of his father's life, Amenophis II led his own campaign to Syria Canaan. By the time he returned to Egypt, or very soon after, his father, Tuthmosis III, was dead, on the thirtieth day of month seven, in the fifty-fourth year of his reign. By modern calculation, on the 17th of March, 1450 BCE. Tuthmosis III's Naval Base Tuthmosis III soon realized that it would be easier for the greater part of his army to sail to Syria than to make the long and arduous trek through Canaan. The chariots and horses probably still traveled overland. Around the year 30 of his reign, he constructed a large naval base where a fleet was built that could transport most of his army to the northern Levant coasts. There they would disembark and march east to confront the Syrian city-states. These ships could also carry the pharaoh's tribute and slaves back to Egypt. That at least some of these slaves were Israelites is indicated by this warning at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt by a route I promised you never would see again, and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Manfred Bittach has recently uncovered an extensive early 18th dynasty occupation of Tel el-Daba, specifically at Esbet Helmi, that included a great palace and storage facilities, probably for a temple, a military base, workshops, and probably a dockyard. Within the settlement he found scarabs of pharaohs from Amos to Amenophis II, reactivating the old Hyksos capital of Avaris, probably never completely abandoned, makes a great deal of strategic sense, given the site's position near the head of the Pelusic branch of the Nile, and as the terminus of the northern land route through the Sinai to Asia. The fortress at Tel Hebwa, known as Jaru, 
on a peninsula between the open sea and the brackish coastal lagoon, the Shihor, was also reactivated in early New Kingdom times and controlled the main land route from the forward base at Avaris to the Sinai and Canaan. After becoming sole ruler, Amenophis II did not long continue the use of Avaris, by whatever name it was then known. Instead, he built another dockyard and naval base called Heru Nefer, Happy Journey, near Memphis. This base was farther from the Egyptian Empire in Syria Canaan and farther from the overseas timber sources needed to build the Egyptian ships. Why did Amenophis II relocate his forward base back from the Delta proper to Memphis? One factor was undoubtedly the control of his labor force. The temple and palace complexes required large numbers of slaves to carry out various tasks and to work in the fields, and the dockyard, too, may have utilized a great many unfree workers. If these people were originally from Syria and Canaan, and Amenophis II brought thousands of prisoners from these lands to Egypt, they would be tempted to escape eastward from the delta through the shallow reedy lakes that covered so much of the isthmus that separated Egypt from the Sinai Peninsula. In the Sinai proper, the 18th dynasty Egyptian forts were small way stations manned by local tribesmen. Only in the 13th century BCE did the 19th dynasty exercise sufficient control of the northern Sinai Peninsula by means of a crocodile-infested border canal, a fortress in the Wadi Tumilat, and a line of massive roadside fortresses garrisoned by Egyptian troops along the northern land route from the delta through the Sinai itself. To build another great urban center in the eastern delta, High Ramesses, just north of Tel el-Daba. The Pharaoh of the Exodus in 1963, J.G. Bennett suggested that Tuthmosis III was the pharaoh of the Exodus and that the eruption of Santorini was connected to both the destruction of Atlantis and the Exodus from Egypt. Basing his calculations on the statement in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that the Exodus occurred 480 years before the beginning of Solomon's temple, Bennett put the Exodus in 1447 B.C.E., which he thought was the year of Tuthmosis III's death. In 1982, using the genealogical information available from the Egyptian royal family, William Shea argued that the exodus occurred during the co-rulership of Tuthmosis III and Amenophis II, when Amenophis was on his first campaign in Asia. The pharaoh drowned in the exodus, he concluded, was Tuthmosis III. In revenge, his son, Amenophis II, conducted a brutal campaign in Canaan and harbored a lifelong hatred of Semites, both of which are documented in Egyptian records. In Chapter 4, we looked at the two Exodus stories found in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the more recent of these, the Exodus expulsion, the Israelites are slaves who ask permission of Pharaoh to go on a three-day's journey into the wilderness to make a slaughter offering to their god. But Pharaoh refuses their request and makes them work harder, denying them the straw for their bricks, so that the Israelite supervisors are beaten by their Egyptian taskmasters when they fail to make their daily quota of bricks. The Israelite supervisors complain to Pharaoh, but to no avail. Pharaoh comes across as extremely arrogant and breaks off negotiations. After that, the Israelites kill and eat the sacrificial lambs and bread. Genesis chapter 31 verse 54. 
That evening, the firstborn of Egypt die. Pharaoh connects the deaths with his Israelite slaves and expels them. Rise up, go away from my people, go worship the Lord as you said, and be gone. Exodus chapter 12 verses 31 and 32. Exodus chapter 11 verse 1 also refers to Pharaoh driving the Israelites away. The Exodus in Egyptian Texts Several Egyptian sources may relate to this expulsion. The first is in the work of 3rd century BCE Egyptian historian Manetho. In quoting Manetho, the Jewish historian Josephus substitutes the names Hethmosis and Thumosis in the story of the expulsion of the shepherds or Hyksos from Egypt, whom Josephus equates with the Jews. For example, Josephus writes, Hethmosis, the king who drove them, the shepherds, out of Egypt, and Moses was the leader of Jews, as I have already said, when they had been expelled from Egypt by King Pharaoh, whose name was Tethmosis. The confusion went the other way in another ancient writer's version of Manetho. Sincellus, following Africanus, reports that Moses went forth from Egypt in the reign of Amos. This confusion seems to stem from the mixing of two expulsion traditions, one relating to the expulsion of Asiatic Hyksos to southern Canaan by Amos, and the other involving a pharaoh named Tuthmosis, who also expelled the group of Asiatics, in this case southern Israelites, to Canaan. In the account by Artapanus mentioned in chapter 5, Pharathosis was king of Egypt in Abraham's time. This name is a conflation of pharaoh and thoth, the latter being the root of the name Tuthmosis. As psychologists studying serial recall discovered, Events from the end of a story often become fused with ones from the beginning. This characteristic of memory probably explains why the name of the pharaoh in the last part of the story of the Israelites in Egypt, Pharaoh Tuthmosis, found its way into the story of the first trip to Egypt, the trip made by the Israelites' patriarch, Abraham. The third Egyptian source is the inscription on the naos originally found at El Aresh, mentioned in chapter 1. The inscription was carved on black granite, and in the 19th century, when archaeologists first discovered it, it was being used as a water trough. The text was destroyed on one side, and there was a good deal of damage elsewhere. Hans Goodicke believes that the Naos was made just before the Persian invasion of 525 BCE. The inscription gives a folkloric version of Egyptian history, including references to the Hyksos, called the Companions or Children of Apophis, and evildoers of the desert, into the early 18th dynasty. Instead of referring to actual kings, the inscription follows the typical practice in ancient Egypt and uses the names of gods, in this case, the gods Shu, his twin sister and wife, Tefnut, their son Geb, the earth god, and Ra Harakte, the god of eastern horizon. The English translation of the text also refers to another god, Thum, or Tum. The inscription describes the building of a palace temple complex on the easternmost frontier of Egypt above Memphis, actually two temple enclosures joined by an avenue, which is the common New Kingdom form. The text also refers to a great storehouse in front of the temple. One of the bodies of water east of this complex was called the Place of the Whirlpool. The king, the term pharaoh is not used, fortified the mounds or hills that guarded the roads leading into Egypt from the east to protect the delta from the Asiatics, 
called the Children of Apophis. He is also said to have conquered the whole earth and to have been always at the head of his troops, but sickness came upon him, confusion seized the eyes, and evil fell upon the land, and there was a great upheaval in the palace. The rebels carried disorder to the household of the king himself. His Majesty King Shu departed to heaven. He died with his attendants. Another part of the text says that King Shu had died and no one left the palace during the space of nine days, during which time there was such a tempest and darkness that neither men nor gods could see the faces of those next to them. The text then says that the king's son, Prince Geb, was wandering around looking for his mother, and after King Shu's death, his son Prince, now King, Geb, retrieved his mother at Pai Karoti where she had gone to see what had happened to King Shu. The text also says His Majesty, Raharakte, fought with the evildoers, or rebels, at the place of the whirlpool. The Naos inscription presents a very confused account, written many centuries after the events behind it had passed into folklore. But it does seem to relate to a real historical incident. A conquering ruler built or maintained a great palace temple complex on the eastern edge of his domain above Memphis. This complex seems to have been started by an earlier king. There was some sort of upheaval or rebellion by Asiatics in the palace complex, and a malady, possibly a sickness. The king died with his attendants, possibly while fighting the rebels at the place of the whirlpool east of the palace temple complex, near a place called Pai Karati. There was a period of storm and intense blackness. The figure nine days can probably be discounted because nine is an Egyptian ritual number. His son becomes king and discovers that certain Asiatics carried his, the king's, scepter, called the guy, who lived on what the gods abominate. It's the Asiatics who live on what the gods abominate. The idea that Asiatics are connected with abominations, found in the El Arish inscription, goes back at least to the reign of Hatshepsut, who claimed to have driven off Asiatics, called the Abomination of the Great God Re. During the New Kingdom, Egyptians revered sheep as being the residence of the soul, or Ba, of the god Amun-Re. Amun, a Theban deity, was combined with the sun god Ra, or Re, in this period and a cult revering the wild sheep existed in Deir el-Medina, west of Thebes, during the 19th dynasty. Even earlier, during the reign of Amenophis III of the 18th dynasty, there was a proliferation of images of Amun as a sheep in Thebes. The idea, mentioned in the plague accounts in Exodus chapter 8 verse 26, that Israelite sacrifices of sheep would be seen as offensive or an abomination to the Egyptians and their god Amun-Re, fits with this time period. There is another Egyptian tale that relates to the slaughtering of animals sacred to the Egyptians, found in the work of Manetho, as quoted by Josephus. Manetho repeats a fragment of legendary Egyptian history in which King Amenophis, on the advice of his seer, also named Amenophis, cast all the lepers and other polluted persons into the stone quarries east of the Nile, and later let them live in the deserted city of Avaris. There they revolted under a priest of Heliopolis called Osarsef, 
and sacrificed and butchered animals sacred to the Egyptians. They also allied themselves with the shepherds, that is, the Hyksos, who had previously lived at Ephorus. After a campaign in Ethiopia, Amanophis returned to battle the lepers and polluted persons and their allies, the shepherds, defeated them, and pursued them to Syria. In fact, the first 18th dynasty pharaoh, Amos, did open up stone quarries that used Asiatic workers in the 22nd year of his reign. He also reoccupied and rebuilt part of Avaris, as shown by Manfred Bitak's archaeological excavations at Tel el-Daba, after first expelling the Hyksos, some of whom were probably carriers of, or polluted with, the bubonic plague. And though it was Amenophis III who promoted the divine images of Amun as a sheep, and had an advisor also named Amenophis, it was Amenophis II, son of Tuthmosis III, who defeated the Asiatics and campaigned in Syria and Canaan. All of this shows that the Egyptians could confuse, conflate, or syncretize their legendary history as easily as anyone else. But this story does contain enough 18th dynasty connections to suggest that sometime during the earlier part of this dynasty, Asiatics were living in the vicinity of Avaris, revolted, and sacrificed animals that were sacred to the Egyptians, much like the revolt mentioned in the Alaresh text. The revolt between the lepers and the gods of Egypt, centering on illegal sacrifices, is much like the confrontation between the Israelites and Pharaoh recounted in Exodus chapters 5 through 10. In this account, Moses and Aaron repeatedly ask Pharaoh for permission to make a three days journey into the wilderness to celebrate a festival to their god. Pharaoh, rightly from an Egyptian point of view, claims not to know or to heed the god of Israel and eventually, Exodus chapter 10 verse 28, expels Moses from his presence. Comparing the El Aresh inscription with the biblical text. The El Aresh Naos account contains marked similarities with the biblical Exodus expulsion story. In the Egyptian text, the king goes to the palace temple storehouse complex in the eastern delta, while his son, Prince Geb, is off on a journey. Disorder by rebels is carried into the king's household, and there is, apparently, sickness. In the biblical story, the Israelites ask Pharaoh for permission to hold their slaughter offering in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 5, verse 1b. This can only have been their annual covenant renewal sacrifice. Since the Israelite lunar calendar falls behind the Egyptian solar calendar, unless adjustments are made every few years, the Israelites may have been making their request to Pharaoh a little before the spring equinox. When refused permission to leave, they kill the ritual lambs anyway, right where they live. The animals must have been taken without permission from the palace and temple flocks, the act of rebellion referred to in the El Aresh text. Isolated within their own dwellings and eating their sacrificial lambs and covenant meal, the Israelite slaves do not fall prey to the illness that strikes the Egyptians. This malady seems to have preferentially killed children whose immune systems are far less developed than those of adolescents or adults. Food poisoning, such as an outbreak of salmonella or Escherichia coli, often has this sort of infection and mortality pattern. The tainted food, prepared in the central kitchen of the palace temple complex, 
would have been passed to all but those children and infants who were still breastfeeding, not the firstborn. In the biblical account, Exodus chapter 11 verse 2, chapter 12 verse 35 and 36, the Israelites leave following Pharaoh's expulsion order, taking some gold, silver, and clothing, possibly offerings from desperate parents hoping for divine intervention to save the lives of their sick children, as implied in Exodus chapter 12, verse 32b. Then Pharaoh changes his mind, Exodus chapter 14, verse 5b. Deciding that he doesn't want to lose his slaves, he calls out his chariots and sets off in hot pursuit. The El Aresh text implies something quite different, that the Asiatics had the royal scepter. Retrieval of his scepter and his slaves are both good reasons for Pharaoh to chase after the Israelites. The Roots of the Israelites and of Pharaoh's Army From Avaris, both the Israelites and the pursuing Egyptians would have moved east along the way of Horus until they reached Tel Defenna. The main route, the Way of Horus, proceeded northeast up the narrow peninsula to the fortress of Jaro. This peninsula is actually a Kirkur sandstone ridge, a structural ridge that is part of a system of faults and lineaments which extends well beyond the delta to the northeast and southwest. The stabilized sand dunes covering this ridge are the fortified mounds or hills mentioned in the Al-Aresh text. Southeast of this uplifted sandstone ridge is a tectonic trough once filled with a brackish coastal lagoon, the Shehor. This lagoon, or at least its northern or northeastern segment, was open to the Mediterranean Sea through several breaks in the Kirkur Ridge. A peninsula jutted out from the shore opposite Jaru. The road went from Jaru across either a bridge or dike to this peninsula and southeast from there. If the road was atop a dike then the southern or southwestern part of the lagoon was cut off from the sea. There was another land route, one that went east from Tel Defenna, across the Isthmus of Kantara, between the Shehor and the northern edge of the Bala Lakes. It would have joined the main way of Horus near Tel Elborg, upon which was a fort built by Tuthmosis III, on the east side of a water channel that most likely flowed into the northeastern Shehor. For the Israelites, this route would have been an easier way home since it bypassed Pharaoh's largest fortress and may even have offered a way around the smaller fort at El Borg. This secondary route was a bit longer and would have crossed low-lying ground in places and thus would not have been as suitable for horses and chariots. Tuthmosis and his chariots would have used the shorter main route from Tel Defenna northeast across the Kirkur Sand Ridge to Jaru at Jaru. He would have picked up more chariots and men if he needed them. Encounter at the Edge of the Mediterranean Sea There were probably no more than several hundred Israelite slaves in the group expelled by Pharaoh, principally nomadic Shazu from the southern Israelite tribes. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 2, the Israelites are camped in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. Pi-Hahiroth is remarkably similar to the name Pi-Karati, found in the El-Aresh Naos text. Both terms refer to the mouth of a canal. A recent interpretation of Baal Zephon by James K. Hoffmeyer associates this name with the Waters of Baal, somewhere near the northern edge of the Bala Lakes, the biblical Reed Sea. 
north of the Bala Lakes, was the fort at El Borg. Hofmeyer proposes that the biblical Migdal, which means a tower in Hebrew, was located between the southeastern tip of the coastal lagoon and the Bala Lakes, but El Borg in Arabic means the tower, and it is a good candidate for the biblical Migdal. According to Exodus chapter 14, verses 9 through 10, as the Israelites camped by the mouth of the canal, Hai-Hahirath, in front of Baal-Zephon, they saw Egyptian soldiers on their fast-moving chariots coming up behind them. They realized that Pharaoh had changed his mind, and now they were trapped. If they were on the secondary road, northeast of them was the fort at El Borg, and beyond it, the canal itself. North and west of them was the coastal lagoon, a branch of the Mediterranean Sea, and south of them, the waters of Baal, the Bala Lakes, or Reed Sea. The biblical text implies that it was at the end of the day. Pharaoh, reaching his fortress of Charo, also stopped to rest his horses and organize his forces for an attack the following morning. Pharaoh and the Egyptians also knew that the Israelites were trapped. Exodus 14 does not give us a clear picture of what happened when the Egyptians caught up with the Israelites. As one scholar has said, The story as it now stands is a composite of several traditions which, having been brought together, fail to present a clear picture of a comprehensible event. In one version, as the Egyptian chariots approach, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea and the waters split, allowing the Israelites to walk between the waters. When the Egyptians follow, Moses stretches out his hand again, and the waters return, drowning the Egyptians. According to scholars, this version of the miracle of the sea, and the names Baal-Zephon and Pi-Hahirath, belong to the tradition in the P, or priestly source. A second version of the encounter is also preserved in Exodus 14, one usually attributed by scholars to the J source. The second version contains the pillar of cloud. The fire is thought to be a later addition, which is in front of the Israelites until they see the Egyptians pursuing them. Then the pillar moves between the Israelites and the Egyptians, and the two groups camp with the darkness between them. That night a strong east wind blows the sea back until there is dry ground, but at dawn the sea returns to its normal depth. Early in the morning, the Egyptians panic when they see the cloud and flee into the sea. In this version, the Israelites don't move anywhere and don't follow the cloud, but sit in their camp and watch what happens to the Egyptians. The movement of the waters, although described, doesn't fit into the story. In different ways, both of these accounts are conflations of the two separate exoduses, the earlier exodus flight Moses leading the Israelites, the wind blowing the waters away, leaving a corridor of dry land for them to cross the Bitter Lakes or Red Sea, and the later Exodus expulsion story experienced by the Israelite Shazu, which features the drowning of the Egyptian soldiers on their chariots that took place in front of Baal-Zephon by the Reed Sea. Another version of this latter encounter is contained in two pieces of ancient poetry found in Exodus 15. Both include the lines, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and charioteer, or rider, he has thrown into the sea. The verb to throw in this song usually means to shoot as to shoot arrows. 
Some scholars think that this version recounts a battle with the Egyptian forces that ended in the drowning of the enemy. The shorter version of this song, usually called the Song of Miriam, may have been connected to Miriam simply because her name rhymes with the last phrase of the verse. However, as writer Jonathan Kirsch notes, The most intriguing and important feature of the Song of Miriam is the fact that Miriam did not seem to know, or at least chose not to mention, the most colorful and memorable details of the miracle of the sea that so captivated the later authors of the Bible. She said nothing of the parting of the waters, nothing about the crossing of the seabed between walls of water. Neither did she utter the name of Moses or make even an oblique reference to any role he might have played in the miracle at the sea, which raises the provocative notion that he played no role at all because he was not there. Another part of this ancient poem, Exodus chapter 15, verse 8, describes how the waters behaved. At the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. In chapter 3 we saw what happens when a tsunami approaches the shore. The bottom of the wave slows down and drags at the upper part, causing the wave to bunch up to a great height. This closely matches the description in Exodus chapter 15, verse 8. Eruption and Tsunamis There are textual, traditional, and physical indications that one or more tsunamis occurred in the eastern Mediterranean about this time. Manetho stated that the flood of the mythological Greek hero Deucalion occurred in the reign of Misphiagmothosis, and that Misphiagmothosis reigned for twenty-six years. Misphiagmothosis is Mancapere, another name for Tuthmosis III, but twenty-six years was the length of Amenophis II's reign, not Tuthmosis III's. Manetho may have meant that this flood occurred during the co-rulership of Tuthmosis III and Amenophis II at the end of Tuthmosis III's reign. Greek archaeologist A.G. Galanopoulos linked Deucalion's flood with the Santorini eruption. In one early version of the Greek myth, the flood comes from the sea, which suggests a tsunami. Estimates of Deucalion's flood vary. The date, based on calculations of traditional genealogies, is 1430 BCE, while a date derived from inscriptions on a pillar known as the Parian marble, found in the 17th century and since destroyed, is 1529 B.C. Parian marble dates are usually higher than others, however. Attic Greek folk traditions produce two dates for the flood, 1800 and 1500 B.C.E. Greek myth also includes another earlier flood, that of Ogyges, who traditionally is the founder of the city of Thebes in Greece. The early Christian writer Julius Africanus put Ogyges' flood in the time of Moses. At Tel Michal, a coastal site in Israel, not far north of Tel Aviv, the sea cliff collapsed twice, once in Middle Bronze 2B and a second time in Later Bronze Age 1, 1550-1400 BCE. Geologists suggest that tsunamis were involved in these cliff collapses. If Ogyges' flood, as well as the first collapse at Tel Michal, was related to tsunamis from the Minoan eruption of Santorini at the time of the original exodus from Egypt, then other tsunamis may have produced Deucalion's flood and the second cliff collapse at Tel Michal in the late Bronze Age I. 
Correlating this event with the traditional Greek dates and Manitho's dates makes it most likely to have occurred in the mid-15th century BCE. Tsunamis can be produced by earthquakes, most often if there has been a massive undersea landslide that displaces great masses of water. There is a long record of tsunamis generated by earthquakes in the eastern Mediterranean, and particularly in the Aegean Sea. Volcanic eruptions in the ocean can also trigger such landslides if seawater gets into erupting vents, the caldera collapses, or underwater parts of the volcano slump. Eastward of Santorini on the Aegean volcanic arc are the islands of Kos, Niseros, and Yali, the latter two the remnants of past volcanic eruptions. Between Yali and Niseros are additional volcanoes on the sea floor. Volcanic rocks from the island of Yali have been dated to the second millennium BCE, based on thermoluminescence dating methods, which give an age of 1460 BCE plus or minus 460 years. These rocks were probably produced by an eruption from one of the volcanic calderas now on the sea floor between Niseros and Yali, sometime in the middle of the second millennium BCE. Yali is a small islet shaped a bit like a bowtie tucked between Niseros to the south and Kos to the north. Minoan pottery has recently been recovered from volcanic pumice deposits located on the isthmus, the knot of the tie, between Yali's northern and southern sections. The most notable ceramic piece from this collection is the top of a painted beaked jug, which the excavators call Late Minoan 1A, but which bears a striking resemblance to mature Late Minoan 1B forms. New radiocarbon dates are consistent with the long-held view that the Late Minoan 1b, Late Minoan 2 transition took place about 1450 BCE. The Minoan pottery from Yali is said to have been found within the wind-blown pumice. On the southern end of Yali, geologist Jorge Keller found post-Neolithic prehistoric pottery associated with a paleosol that was also covered with pumice, indicating a volcanic eruption. Unfortunately, this pottery was never published, and the site is now destroyed. On the island of Telos, southeast of Niseros, tephra layers were found in a trench that also produced pottery from the Middle Minoan, the Late Minoan 1A, the Late Minoan 1B, and into Late Minoan 2. Geologists studying the Telos tephras have not found any on the island dating to the Bronze Age and no studies have been done to determine if the tephra deposits associated with the Minoan pottery on Telos are primary deposits or reworked-slash-redeposited older deposits. Although a lack of precision in the dating and the absence of detailed study of the Aegean sites preclude certainty, the various factors mentioned above do suggest that there was an eruption of a volcanic vent in the area of Yali and Niseros in or around the mid-15th century BCE. If the vent was above sea level at the time of the eruption, it would have produced airborne tephra, and the vent's collapse and submergence into the sea could have triggered one or more tsunamis that caused Deucalion's flood along the coasts of southeastern Greece and across the northern shore of Crete. Tsunamis directed toward the south or southeast, diffracting around nearby islands, would cross the Mediterranean to the coast of Israel and the Egyptian Delta. Had the local winds been coming from the northwest at that time, ash particles would have blown southeast to Egypt.
Since the timing of these events is also unknown, an eruption cloud could have arrived at the delta before the collapse of the vent and any accompanying tsunamis. The Miracle at the Sea The El Aresh inscription and the Exodus 14 account both describe an intense darkness. In the biblical account, the darkness has been transformed into the pillar of cloud that led the first group of Israelites to the mountain of God 178 years before. A clue that this was a quite different cloud is found in the last part of Exodus chapter 14 verse 20, an enigmatic passage that reports that the pillar of cloud and fire did not turn to fire on that particular night, but remained dark. The El Eresh text describes the sort of darkness produced by a tephra cloud. Not as long-lasting or as extensive as the Santorini Tephra cloud, this one was nonetheless unexpected and extraordinary. To the Israelites, camped at Pihahirath, awaiting the Egyptian onslaught, the Tephra cloud would have been a manifestation of Yahweh's divine presence, the great and wondrous cloud in which God resided, coming once again to help them. To the Egyptians, it could only have embodied terror and horror. Ancient Egyptians believed that each night the sun god, Re, was opposed by the forces of chaos, embodied in the serpent Apophis, who attempted to stop Re from reaching the eastern horizon and starting another day. On sunless days, Egyptians believed Apophis had at least temporarily vanquished Re. For them, unusual darkness, such as a solar eclipse, was terrifying. The long-reigning Hyksos ruler, had the same name as the Egyptian serpent of chaos, and as suggested by the El Aresh texts, Asiatics were the children of Apophis. In the popular Egyptian mind, both the Hyksos ruler and the serpent of chaos. What then did the Egyptians think when they awoke at what should have been dawn the next morning to attack the children of Apophis, this band of recalcitrant Asiatic slaves, and saw nothing but the darkness of the Tephra cloud? To them, the serpent of chaos, Apophis, had defeated the sun god Re. The panic among the Egyptian horses and men must have been enormous, and they probably balked at moving out. Exodus says, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Despite the panic among his troops, Pharaoh was able to lead his men and chariots out of the fort across the bridge or dike that linked Hebua one to the small peninsula on the other side of Shehor. A strong military leader, such as Tuthmosis III must have been, could have regained control of at least some of his troops, and with these advanced on the Israelites. The tsunami waves, traveling south from the Aegean, would have gained height as they reached the shallow water off the delta. Crashing through the breaks in the Kirkur Ridge, they would have expanded across the coastal Shehor lagoon in all directions, Roaring across the shallow lagoon, they engulfed the Egyptians crossing the narrow peninsula opposite Jaru, drowning them. The Israelites, camped inland and out of the direct line of the waves, were spared. Later, when the drowning of the Egyptians at the land crossing between the two halves of the Shehor lagoon became fused with the older Exodus story of the dry corridor between the two bitter lakes or the northernmost extension of the Red Sea, the single wall of water, the tsunami, became two walls of water, one on each side of the dry corridor. See Exodus chapter 14, verse 16. 
After the waves departed, the Israelites may have collected the Egyptians' weapons, as Josephus reported, and fought any remaining Egyptians. The El Aresh text mentions a fight. The Remains of Tuthmosis III After it was all over, the Egyptians would have concentrated on finding the body of their pharaoh Tuthmosis III, for his death meant a victory of the forces of chaos over the forces of order in the universe. Only after the king was buried with proper rites was the cosmos set in order again. That would explain why the queen was at Pi-Karate, like the Egyptian goddess Isis, she was looking for the body of her dead husband. But she may not have found it. The biblical account implies that Pharaoh was drowned with his army. Tsunamis typically suck many of the bodies of their victims back into the sea with the retreating wave, as the Egyptian name of this location, Place of the Whirlpool, implies happened here, although some bodies must have been left on the shore. In 1881, Egyptologists discovered a cache of royal mummies at Deir el-Bari near Thebes, and in 1898, the tomb of Amenophis II in the Valley of the Kings yielded a second group of mummified royal remains. The mummies in both caches, individuals from the 17th through the 19th dynasties, had been stripped and mutilated by ancient tomb robbers. During the 21st dynasty, after being moved several times, the mummies were rewrapped and relabeled. Among those identified by their 21st dynasty labels were Tuthmosis I, Tuthmosis II, Tuthmosis III, Amenophis II, Tuthmosis IV, and Amenophis III. Starting in 1967, these royal mummies, now at the Cairo Museum, were x-rayed by a University of Michigan, University of Alexandria team, headed by James E. Harris, then chairman of the Department of Orthodontics at the University of Michigan. Edward F. Wendt of the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute was also called in to provide the historical ages and family trees. Based on x-rays of the skeletons, physical anthropologists provided detailed estimates of the ages of the mummies at death. Later, Harris went on to analyze the craniofacial bones of each mummy with detailed computer imaging and statistical analyses of 177 data points from each skull. Given that these craniofacial features are the result of inheritance, his analyses provide the best available approximations of genetic relationships and can either affirm or contradict the labeled identities of the mummies. The age estimates, based on analyses of the X-rays, were generally and often markedly younger than the agreed-upon historical ages of many of the mummies. For example, the body in the coffin of the presumably middle-aged Tuthmosis I was that of a youth of 18 to 22 years who did not have the pharaonic pose of arms crossed over the chest. Harris's craniofacial analyses highlighted even more mismatches. The mummy labeled as Seti II of the 19th dynasty bears a striking resemblance to the kings of the 18th dynasty. He is probably Tuthmosis II and the mummy labeled Tuthmosis II is Tuthmosis I. The craniofacial morphology of the supposed Amenophis II mummy does not suit his being the son of Thutmose III and father of Thutmose IV. In fact, the Amenophis II mummy is the only one suitable to be the father 
of the Amenophis III mummy, who strikingly resembles images of Akhenaten. The mummy supposed to be Tuthmosis III was identified by a shroud folded on top of the mummy, which was found in the now-stripped outer coffin of that pharaoh. It is, however, estimated to be thirty-five to forty years of age at death, and Tuthmosis III was about sixty years of age when he died. According to Edward Wendt, James Harris's analyses suggest that the most likely genealogical sequence for the mummies is Tuthmosis III, Tuthmosis IV, Amenophis II, and Amenophis III. Tuthmosis IV is the only one of this group that was correctly identified by the 21st Dynasty restorers. Thus, the mummy labeled Tuthmosis III is more likely to be that of Amenophis II, Tuthmosis III's son. The age is a better fit as well, since the mummy's estimated age, 35 to 40 years, is close to the estimated historical age of Amenophis II at death, 44 years. If Harris and Wentz's re-identifications are correct, the real possibility exists that the mummy of Tuthmosis III has not been found. Return to Canaan While the Egyptians were busy collecting their dead, the fleeing Israelites would have turned south, away from the Way of Horus, called the Way of the Land of the Philistines in the Bible, an anachronism. Instead, they made their way across the Sinai along the Way of Shur. That led eventually to Beersheba and Hebron. Reunited with their own clan and tribal groups at last, they told the story of their struggles with Pharaoh and their miraculous deliverance, their covenant slaughter offering to Yahweh, the disease that plagued the Egyptians but passed them over, their expulsion by Pharaoh, and finally, their rescue by Yahweh, and the death of the Egyptians by the waters of the Reed Sea. This story became a living and vital part of their tribal traditions, joining the tradition stories of the earlier exodus in the composite lore of these peoples. This would have a considerable effect on the tradition history of the Israelites. As the years and then the centuries passed, these two sets of tradition stories would fuse or merge as similar stories invariably do in oral traditions, into one composite epic story of one exodus from Egypt, as we will see in the next chapter. Chapter 11. The Formation of the Exodus Tradition In the two and a half centuries following the second exodus, Israelite tribal groups continued to live as pastoralists in the highlands and along the edges of the desert areas of Canaan. For them, virtually all of this period fell into what oral historian Jan Vencina termed a floating gap, and once forgotten, could not be reclaimed in the historical record. Only the more notable tenures of certain judges, such as Gideon and Deborah, were remembered from this period. Biblical scholar Frank Moore Cross has suggested that during this period of Israelite history, many of the elements of tribal folklore were incorporated into a larger epic tradition that was recited each year at the Spring Covenant Festivals of the tribes. He notes that the two cores of this epic tradition are the divine victory at the sea and the covenant at Sinai. In fact, these two themes reflect the two Exodus stories, and it was during these centuries that the two exoduses merged into one grand, all-encompassing Exodus tradition. 
In the remainder of the Late Bronze Age, after the Second Exodus, from 1450 to about 1200 BCE, the earlier Exodus under Moses at the time of the Minoan eruption of Santorini and the ensuing journey to the Mountain of God became merged, at least for those groups whose members had participated in the subsequent event, with the story of the mid-15th century Exodus at the time of the second volcanic eruption offshore of Yali and the accompanying destruction of the Egyptian army by the shores of the sea. As in most cases of memory fusion, the more recent event, the 15th century BCE Exodus, overshadowed the older set of memories, except where the older story contained elements not found in the more recent one. The first nine plagues and Moses, the overwhelming leader, as well as the journey to the mountain of God and the destruction of Jericho, had no counterparts in the later Exodus story, and so survived relatively intact. Elsewhere, the framework of the more recent Exodus dominated. Rather than being farmers and pastoralists in the Wadi Tamilat under a Hyksos overlord, as they were at the time of the first Exodus, in the final tradition story, the Israelites were slaves in one or more store cities of the Egyptian delta, making bricks for a hard-hearted native Egyptian pharaoh, as they were at the time of the second Exodus. The anonymous negotiators at the time of the second Exodus were replaced by Moses, the leader of the first Exodus, with the later addition of Aaron. Pharaoh Tuthmosis III retained his overbearing personality, but lost his name in later Israelite tradition, a common occurrence since names often drop out in the leveling process. Only the Egyptians, as recorded by Manetho, seem to have retained the monarch's name in their own traditions of these events. The time of the first exodus at the beginning of February was lost as the story was shifted to the spring equinox, the approximate time of the second exodus. This shift made sense to later Israelites in Canaan because the original story included the harvest times for the barley and wheat. In Canaan, the barley was harvested beginning in late March, and the wheat in late May, early June. These later Israelites needed to make sense of these harvest times, and they did not realize that the harvest times in the Egyptian delta were about two months earlier than harvests in Canaan. This nearly two-month shift caused the first Exodus's feast of unleavened bread to become merged, albeit incompletely, with the second Exodus's Passover. The Passover, which in historical fact had been the annual commemoration and renewal of their people's first 17th century BCE covenant sacrifice and meal at the Mountain of God, thus became inextricably linked with the second 15th century BCE exodus. The events at the time of the two volcanic eruptions on the Aegean volcanic arc also merged. The nine plagues caused, except for the locusts, by the Santorini eruptions, tsunamis, and ash falls merged with the death of the non-infant children at the time of the second exodus for a total of ten plagues in the composite exodus story. The 15th century ashfall and tsunamis from the volcanic eruption off Yali, saving the Israelite slaves from Pharaoh and his army at the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, just north of the Bala Lakes, the Reed Sea, was merged with the 17th century BCE story of the passing of the Israelites from the Wadi Tamilat into the Sinai Peninsula, across a land ridge 
between the Bitter Lakes or the Red Sea. However, the traditional time interval between the Exodus and the giving of the Covenant of Sinai was retained in Israelite tradition. This resulted in the emergence of an association of the giving of the Torah at the Mountain of God with the Festival of Shavuot, Festival of Weeks, which marks the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest in Canaan. Egypt in Canaan, 1450-1200 BCE There is no mention of an Egyptian presence in Canaan in the biblical narratives of the tribal or judges period of Israel's history. The only hints in the biblical texts of Egyptian contacts come in the names Ramesses and Python for the delta localities occupied at earlier times by the Israelites, Avaris and TKW. During this period, nomadic Shazu watered their flocks near Python, and in all likelihood, later Israelite slaves labored at Pyramesses, capital city of the 19th dynasty's greatest ruler, Ramesses II. Escapees or travelers would have carried these names back to Canaan, where they were incorporated into Israelite tradition by storytellers, explaining to their listeners what these places were called in their own time. During the earlier part of the 19th dynasty, 13th century BCE, the Sinai Peninsula forts along the way of Horus were enlarged or rebuilt and manned with Egyptian garrisons, while certain towns in Canaan along the principal trade routes acquired Egyptian administrators and garrisons. 19th Dynasty control of the Isthmus of Suez and of the land route across the northern Sinai would have precluded the escape of all but a few individual slaves to Canaan, however. One late 19th Dynasty Egyptian papyrus contains an account of only two slaves escaping through the lakes of the Isthmus and their pursuit by Egyptian authorities. It is clear from this text that even so few escapees called for extensive actions by the Egyptians guarding the border. A large group of slaves, such as the Israelites, fleeing successfully across the Sinai, is not historically feasible during this time period. Israelite Population Growth and Settlement By the end of the Late Bronze Age, circa 1200 BCE, the Israelites living in the central highlands, the hill country Ephraim and Manasseh of Canaan, had become a numerous people. The need to feed their growing population now led them to begin settling down in permanent villages to supplement meat and milk from their herds with the cultivation of cereal grains. The first Israelite villages in the late 13th century BCE were near highland Canaanite cities, where the land was already deforested and also on the desert fringe. Later, settlement expanded westward into the forest areas of the highlands and out onto the western slopes where the available agricultural land was maximized through the building of terraces. From Ephraim and Manasseh, Israelite settlements spread north into Lower Galilee in the 12th century. In Upper Galilee, the tribe of Naphtali crystallized in the territory of Hazer, and the tribe of Asher within the territory of Akko, probably after these cities had been destroyed in the 13th century BCE. In the hill country of Judah, the archaeological evidence suggests that there was a transition from nomadic to settled life beginning in the second half of the 13th century and that most of the Iron Age I settlers were originally members of local pastoral groups, 
an exception is in the area of Jerusalem, where northern peoples, the Jebusites, conquered the city and its surrounding territory. The central hill country population in the 13th century BCE, toward the end of the Late Bronze Age, is estimated at about 12,000 people. By the 12th century, it had grown to about 55,000 people, and by the 11th century BCE, to about 70,000. Rene Pennington's analysis of early human population growth rates demonstrate that these increases are in line with the initial Israelite nomadic population, 7,000 to 10,000, in the late Bronze Age, particularly because there are substantial increases in the survival of young children as populations switch from nomadic to sedentary lives. Even when, as typically happens when people settle down, the overall death rate increases. As mentioned in Chapter 9, survival of young children is far and away the most important factor in overall population growth. Climate Change at the End of the Late Bronze Age At the same time that the Israelites started becoming sedentary villagers late in the 13th century BCE, the climate in Europe and Africa changed from cool and wet to warmer and drier. This change in the last part of what is called the Saboreal Phase in Europe was recorded in alpine lake levels and in atmospheric carbon variations and was connected to fluctuations in the sun's radiation. The Sahara began to get drier again after 3000 BP, about 1250 BCE. In East Africa, lake levels fell dramatically beginning in 1260 plus or minus 50 BCE and agriculture ceased in Nubia after the reign of Ramesses II. In Canaan, the Dead Sea fell to 20 to 25 meters lower than it had been during the Late Bronze Age. Soils in coastal Syria, Ugarit, and Cyprus reflect hotter and drier climatic conditions at this time. Analysis of modern-day rainfall and drought patterns show that a pattern that produced drought through most of Greece and the Near East fits well with that of the supposed population movements at the end of the Late Bronze Age. With this climatic change, the delicate balance between nomadic pastoralists and farmers in the Near East was disturbed. Beginning at this time, texts report nomadic incursions and migrations, disastrous famines and droughts in Anatolia, Syria, Mesopotamia, and Libya, lasting into the 10th century BCE, and evidence of low Nile flood levels starting in the second half of the 13th century BCE. The pharaoh Merneptah, 1212 to 1202 BCE, sent grain to the Hittites in Anatolia in 1212 to relieve a famine, but decreased Egyptian agricultural output caused by the generally worsening climatic conditions must have been a decisive factor in instituting a new Egyptian policy toward Canaan, late in the 13th century BCE. From Bronze Age to Iron Age in Canaan Described on Cairo Museum Stila number 34025 and depicted on a series of reliefs in the Temple of Karnak in Thebes, is a campaign in which Merneptah captures the Canaanite cities of Eshkelon, Gezer, and Yanom, and lays waste to Israel, not a town, but a people, with an eponymous male ancestor. Merneptah, or his son, 
also captured some Shasu nomads and brought them back to Egypt with the captive Canaanites. The men of Israel, depicted in the Karnak reliefs, are dressed like other Canaanites in long gowns, the Shasu wearing kilts. The town-dwelling Canaanites are depicted as having chariots, possibly the chariots of iron, referred to in Judges. The wells of Merneptah, referred to in Papyrus Anastasi III, may have been the same place name as the well of waters in Nephtoah in Joshua. The proper name of the pharaoh having passed into the Hebrew and become garbled in its oral transmission through the centuries. Whether Merneptah's campaign was in response to a Canaanite rebellion against the tighter controls the Egyptians were putting into place, or itself the initiation of these controls, its net effects were direct Egyptian rule in a number of areas of Canaan, more Egyptian taxation, and the building of Egyptian administrative centers throughout the country. One of its most significant consequences was that large quantities of Canaanite grain passed to direct Egyptian control. All pastoral groups, including the Israelites of the Canaanite highlands and desert fringe, are dependent upon their settled neighbors for grain, pottery, and other manufactured products. Because of this dependency, the Egyptian sequestration of Canaanite grain stores beginning in the late 13th century BCE and the destruction of many lowland cities in the 13th and 12th centuries would have exerted enormous pressure on the highland Israelites to accelerate their already begun process of settling down to village life. The archaeological evidence from Iron Age I villages does show certain features that indicate recent sedentization, a site layout that is a series of connected rooms forming an oval around a central open courtyard reminiscent of a nomadic tent encampment, the so-called four-room pillared house with stabling for animals along the sides of a main room, and large stone-lined silos, usually one or two meters in diameter, typical of the way many new sedentary peoples store their grain. Highland pottery from this early Iron Age I period, although mostly an assortment of large, rough, undecorated vessels, also contains some styles that clearly harken back to the earlier Late Bronze Age inhabitants of Canaan, suggesting that the majority of early Iron I villagers had been in the area for some time. This mixture of old and new is most evident in the hill country of Manasseh, but existed as far north as Galilee. This combination of old and new accords well with the notion that the Israelites had been nomadic occupants of Canaan during the Late Bronze Age, and then formed the majority of the settlers in the Iron One highland villages and hamlets. As local pastoralists, they would have used local Canaanite pottery styles. As newly sedentary people— and ethnically distinct from the urban Canaanites, they would have their own house types, settlement layouts, and storage pits. Earthquakes and the Migrations of the Sea Peoples In addition to the climate changes in the late 13th century BCE, there is physical evidence of a sequence of earthquakes in the Aegean and Anatolian area between 1225 and 1175 BCE, a series of disasters that devastated many late Bronze Age cities and towns. These earthquakes, occurring along one or more connected tectonic faults as strain passed from one section of a fault to the next, 
with one earthquake on the fault triggering another one in an adjacent section, have been termed an earthquake storm. Together, these climatic and tectonic events spelled the end for the Hittite Empire in Anatolia and set in motion a series of migrations of peoples from the Aegean and Anatolian areas of the eastern Mediterranean. For the peoples of Canaan, the most important of these migrations was that of the Sea Peoples, who invaded Egypt during the reign of Pharaoh Ramesses III, 1184 to 1153 or 1151 BCE. Some of these invaders appear in the Bible as the Philistines. Recent scholarship has been able to show that these were related to the Mycenaeans of Greece. According to Egyptian sources, the pharaoh repulsed the invaders in 1175 and settled some of them on the coast of southern Canaan. More recent work suggests that they had already invaded southern Canaan prior to the battle with the Egyptians, exterminating the populations of several Canaanite cities. Rather than actually controlling the Philistines, the Egyptians were merely able to contain them to a narrow coastal strip about 20 kilometers wide and 50 kilometers long until about 1150 BCE. Battered by the Sea People's invasion and continuing poor harvests, after 1170 BCE, grain prices in Egypt increased to eight times their earlier amount, peaking at 1130 and stabilizing about 1110 BCE. The Egyptians withdrew from their cities in Canaan in the late 12th century BCE. Following this withdrawal, the Philistines expanded in all directions. Soon they came head-to-head -head with the Israelites expanding westward across the highlands and into the foothills. In the Battle of Ebenezer, described in 1 Samuel, the Philistines defeated the Israelites, captured the Ark, and destroyed the cult center at Shiloh. The break in the Israelite year count, which Josephus incorrectly identified with the commencement of the first temple in Jerusalem, probably marks this disaster instead. As such, the defeat and destruction of Shiloh would have occurred in 1056 BCE. From Tradition to Proto-History The generalized weakness of the Egyptian, Assyrian, and Babylonian empires during this period of drought and poor harvests, the shift of the Israelites from small nomadic groups to larger and more politically sophisticated sedentary units, coupled with the need for the various Israelite tribes to unite under a strong leader to defend themselves against the invading Philistines, provided the impetus for the creation and the sustaining of the Israelite monarchy. The beginning of the monarchy is the time, according to Abraham Malamet, in which Israel entered its historical period. More realistically, this period is better termed proto-historical, a time during which the traditional stories of the tribal league became the traditions of the United Monarchy, traditions which eventually found their way into the early written texts that were the precursors of the later biblical texts we have today. Recreating the Events Behind the Exodus Tradition This book has shown how natural phenomena are connected with the biblical accounts of the Exodus, the sojourn in the wilderness, and the Israelites' conquest of Canaan. It differs from previous books and articles about the connection between the Exodus and a volcanic eruption in that there are two volcanic eruptions and two Exoduses related to the Exodus found in the Bible. 
First, the 1628 BCE Minoan eruption of Santorini slash Thera. It was the cause of most of the Exodus plagues and the impetus for the first departure from Egypt. And the second, an eruption from a volcanic vent off the Aegean island of Yali, 178 years later, that caused another period of darkness and a series of tsunamis that drowned the pursuing Egyptians during a second exodus from the Egyptian delta. No one has proposed a composite two-part exodus with two separate volcanic eruptions, and no one has pointed out the connection between the eruption off Yali and a second exodus. This hypothesis also explains many of the inconsistencies in the Exodus story that previous hypotheses have not been able to or ignored entirely. The request by Moses, or the Israelite elders, to go on a three days journey into the wilderness to give a slaughter offering to their God. The seeming separation of the feast of the unleavened bread and the Passover the burning bush and the obviously volcanic description of the mountain of God, and the timing of the biblical events in relation to the destruction of Jericho and the conquest of Canaan. No one, to my knowledge, has taken seriously the dates given by the first-century Jewish historian Josephus and found in them not only a near-accurate date for the first exodus, but also the correct time of year for it. With this knowledge and with the accurate scientific date for the destruction of Jericho, which is so vividly and correctly described in the biblical text, we can go back to the correct time period for the first exodus, during the Hyksos rule of Egypt. Archaeological evidence from the Wadi Tumilat for that period clearly shows a distinct subgroup of Semitic pastoralists who suddenly and inexplicably deserted the Wadi and never returned, at about the time of the Minoan eruption of the Santorini-Thera volcano. The latest scientific information on the Minoan eruption conforms, in detail, to the description and order of eight of the first nine Exodus plagues. The biblical story of the unleavened bread is a reliable time marker, showing that this Exodus occurred before Egypt's new kingdom, which began about 1550 BCE. Other time markers show that a second exodus occurred during the New Kingdom, when native Egyptian rule was restored. By looking at an early Egyptian tradition about Moses, one discounted by nearly all scholars, we can see that part of the Moses story related to the 13th dynasty ruler Kanifera Sobekhoptep IV and his contemporary, the 14th dynasty ruler Nehesi. Names in the family genealogy of Moses relate to this story and to Nehesi himself. This part of the Moses story actually relates to an earlier Moses, for whom the biblical Moses was named. The biblical Moses, the Moses of the first exodus, fled to Midian, where he saw what was most likely a volcanic fire fountain, described in the biblical tradition as the burning bush. Returning to the Wadi Tumilat, he was able, because of the plagues precipitated by the Minoan eruption, to persuade his people to accompany him to the mountain of God, to make a new covenant there with the God of their ancestor Abraham. One of the most important new findings presented in this book is that Moses and his people arrive at the mountain of God at the very beginning of spring, and they held their covenant offering and feast at the first full moon after the spring equinox. 
This, of course, is when the Passover is held. After a failed attempt to invade Canaan, the Israelites spent 78 years, not 40, in the wilderness, or into their fourth generation. Moses died during this time, but earlier he had formed an alliance with the Kenites under their leader, Hur. The rebellion under Aaron, a fellow Levite, destroyed the first set of covenant tablets, but it failed because of Levite's support for Moses, and Aaron was executed at the mountain of God. Eventually, global and regional climatic changes sparked the emergence of bubonic plague in Egypt, helping the Egyptians to defeat the Hyksos. The flight of the Hyksos back to Canaan spread the plague to Jericho, and also to the Midianites and Israelites camped east of the Jordan River. At this time, an earthquake dammed the Jordan River, allowing the Israelites to pass dryshod across to the western side of the river not far from Jericho. An aftershock destroyed the already weakened walls of Jericho while the Israelites were besieging it, and the town was destroyed. The purification rites described in the Bible after the Israelite conquest of Jericho closely resemble measures taken to avoid contamination by the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague was a hitherto unsuspected factor in the fall of Canaanite cities and towns at the end of the Middle Bronze Age, and malaria played a role in the population increase of the Israelites relative to their lowland Canaanite neighbors in the Late Bronze Age. An important finding highlighted in this book is that the oldest Israelite tribal boundaries relate to Dead Sea levels that existed before the 15th century BCE. This eliminates an Israelite conquest of Canaan during or after the time of Ramesses II, thought by many to have been the pharaoh of the Exodus. Various groups, both Israelite and non-Israelite, including one offshoot of the Israelite tribe of Reuben, united to form the biblical tribe of Judah. Israelite Shasu were slaves in Egypt during the reign of Pharaoh Tuthmosis III, the pharaoh of the second Exodus. These slaves held the first Passover in about 1450 BCE. It was, in fact, their annual commemoration of the first covenant sacrifice and meal at the Mountain of God in 1628 BCE. After the death of numerous Egyptian children, the slaves were expelled, but then pursued by Pharaoh Tuthmosis III and a force of Egyptian chariots. This second exodus coincided with another volcanic eruption off the island of Yali in the Aegean Sea. A tephra cloud from this eruption caused the darkness mentioned both in the Bible and in an ancient Egyptian inscription from El Aresh, and the tsunamis produced by this eruption drowned Tuthmosis III near the Mediterranean Sea, north of the Bala Lakes, the Reed Sea. His body was probably not recovered, and the mummy said to be his is more likely that of his son. After they had returned to their own tribal groups, the fleeing Israelites told their stories of the remarkable events that had happened. These stories became merged as the centuries passed with the stories of the first exodus. By the time of the United Monarchy, there was only one exodus, one Passover, one journey, and one overwhelming leader, Moses. This exodus tradition became the foundation story of Israel. It still is.